Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. Let's move on to one that is slightly less complicated, and that's Rock of Kerr Ridges. So, this is just a red phantom monster. Yeah. You got 3R for summon rock. It's a 3-3 flying with otherwise just flavor text. Pretty noteworthy uh, in a set. Well, there's a lot of noteworthy comparisons for the rock within the set. There's all the red creatures across the different rarities from the gray ogre to the Uthan troll to the granite gargoyle at rare. And then there's a comparison to all the blue flyers, namely the phantom monster and the air elemental. So... The rock is a really interesting card in how it reflects the purpose of rarity and the color pie in alpha. Yes. Steve, what do well, you think? Um, you you kind of led off with the main point that this is a reprint at rare of a blue uncommon, which is <laughs> mm-hmm. very odd. Um, it's also odd to me that this card is, I think, more widely acclaimed than Phantom Monster. Which is hard, <laughs> Which hard to strange. reconcile. Yeah. Why is this card yeah. so well regarded? And it can't just be because it's red, because in red we have better flying options in the form of yeah. Dragon Well. So I, I really don't know what to make of that. I will say that one of the reasons I think this card had some historical resonance is there was a deck that Brian Weissman had written about in the mid 1990s that he called the Rock Deck. And it was a deck that was built around Rock of Courages that he argued because of the efficiency of it with a certain, you know, that they were hard, it was hard to stop um, in the, like, the um, the early days of the game, a deck that, that had enough disruption and efficiency with Rock and Phantom Monster. But, okay, I don't really know, I don't really know, if, you know how, val- how that, validated that hypothesis doesn't, that yeah, that doesn't seem to have been borne out over right, time. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. I, I would argue that the the thing you're observing probably has a little bit to do with PR, just at being rare. Yeah. You know, rare is just more noteworthy and catches your eye as opposed to Phantom Monster, which is smaller than its uncommon brethren in Air Elemental. You know, there's no uncommon flyer that Rock of Courages is smaller than, unless you count Dragon Whelp in a sense. But I don't think people really did. I don't. I remember being, again, going back to my youth and revised, I remember being a little disappointed opening a Rock of Courages, <laughs> right? I. By the time I got one of these, I knew it was rare and thought, oh, that's that's kind of a bummer. I've already got Phantom Monster. <laughs> but at the same time, the fact it was rare did give it a little bit of cachet. Otherwise, I don't have a whole lot of affinity for this card. No. Rock is a cool creature type that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, it has to be. It, it, look, it's we've already reviewed Phantom Monster, and that art is not bad. It's compelling in its own way. But... That's true. I don't know. Maybe the the rarity of this card combined with the art. Look, I will say this. The art here is more memorable in some ways than Phantom Monster, which by its abstract nature is harder to encode and I think visualize, right, in your mind's eye. Um it's it's yeah. you know, it's Fa- Phantom Monster is more like what's that what's the um the the Black Legends rare, the creature that's kind of like like that. It's not you know, a completely like a, a monster. Yeah, it's, it's a monster, <laughs> but it's not not like evil, the, not the evil eye, because that's very visually memorable. But something there's a cosmic horror, and then there's the there's an infernal something, an infernal spawn. Well, anyway, 
the the rock. I mean, it's kind of like it looks kind of like an eagle, you know, very flat dimensionality to it. You know, uh, like a two dimensional image with two dimensional backdrop background. It's almost like a Nintendo, <laughs> Nintendo original <laughs> Nintendo screen in its simplicity. Um, it doesn't even look. It doesn't look painted or particularly well rendered. It's like almost drawn in a charcoal or ink style. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe sometimes simplicity is 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 more memorable in that sense. Well, the rock art is one that stands out for me in the set. It uh, Andy Rusu did not do a lot of cards in Alpha or in Magic in general, and this style is kind of like a it's kind of like the logical conclusion of Quentin Hoover's mm, style. Good point. Right. It very pencil focused, fine line, uh, line line shaded uh, comic book style art. His work in, I mean, he did Goblin Balloon Brigade in Alpha, and that's the only other Alpha card. His Goblin Balloon Brigade is much less of this style. There's much fewer just kind of comic book solid lines outlining things. It's much more shaded, looks much more graphite than solid pencil. But a lot of Andy Russo's other work, which only extends to Legends and then Alliances, Ice Age and Alliances, a lot of his other work is very much in this same style as the Rock of Courage's. Lots of line shading. Lots of uh, relief type work that you could you could envision is actually just kind of carved into wood. It's a pretty interesting style, but it didn't it didn't last in Magic beyond alliances. Interesting, interesting history there. Yeah, the Rock also spawned a, a small lineage of bird creatures. Uh, most notably, in my opinion, is the fact that. In an homage to Ruck Egg, which we're not about to review here today, which came out in Arabian Nights, but several years later after Ruck Egg in M11, we got a reinterpretation of that Ruck Egg as Rock Egg, which is obviously kind of a combined allusion to Ruck Egg and Rock of Kerr Ridges, which is kind of a cool callback in Magic's development. But in totality, there's not, there has not been very many rocks. To my eyes, it looks like there's only been maybe a half dozen, and there are they're all birds by today's standards, but yeah, it's not a common creature type, except for its association with birds in general. And for the sake of thoroughness, the Rock of Courage's only lasted until Summer Magic. This is another one of those cards that was in the file for Summer Magic, but then didn't make it into 4th edition. And I think rightly so, as we talked about with Phantom Monster. It didn't need to continue its life, at least not as a rare it could have been reprinted at some other rarities later on if they wanted, but I think they properly observed that Red was not supposed to have this this kind of medium to large size flyer at lower rarities. So they just kind of As went away. As we've embarked and are now deep into this, this set review, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's become more uh, apparent to me is the immense variety in the rare slot. That, that th- totally. especially for a set like this, you know, if you know what the rare slot is, opening a pack of Alpha Beta Unlimited can be an immense disappointment, <laughs> right? <laughs> but th- I think that the you've got the full gamut. Yeah, I think from from Black Lotus to Basic Plains. Yeah, Basic Land, <laughs> Basic Island, most famously. I think that the um, I think though that the in design intent in terms of distribution of the set was that you were not supposed to know what was rare and what was not. That that was that was part of the intent. Now it's no longer the goal, right? The, we, every magic card yeah. is, is actually color coded now <laughs> on an insignia that tells <laughs> you if it's rare, mythic, so on. Um, 
I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. Has that been documented yes. by Garfield? Uh, I I've read it somewhere in a in a, in a place yeah. that appeared to be somewhat authoritative at least. So I believe that is actually it. My yeah. recollection. Yeah. Anyway. Well, anything else on Rock? No, just that I think within the context of this set, you know, clearly there are enough red flyers that this is not a card that I think would be high in demand in a constructed context. It does have slightly more splashability than Dragon Whelp, but this yeah. just feels like, you know, it, it it's inexplicable to me that this is rare while Phantom Monster is uncommon. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a strong statement on the color pie and the function of rarity, but it's a little muddied because of all the other things that have gone on in Alpha. Yeah, and especially since all the other colors get good uncommon flyers just about, right? <laughs> well, I mean, Red's red's entry into that contest is Dragon Whelp, is it exactly. not? Yeah. All right, let's move on from a rock to a rod, and we're talking about Rod of Ruin. Rod of Ruin is a four-mana artifact. A mono artifact, mind you. It says three colon rod of ruin does one damage to any target. Pretty effective language, and also a card that uh, you know has kind of a long history. Even though <laughs> culturally, uh, prodigal sorcerer kind of won out in terms of its cultural definition and the the nomenclature we use for pinging. Like we never say I'm going to rod that yeah, creature. <laughs> good point. <laughs> but. Uh, but Rod of Ruin kind of had its place in a number of signposts throughout history, both in reprintings and in uh, in, in the culture. My experience with the card was that it was a, a handy way to to shoehorn some removal, colorless removal, into it, any deck in the early days. Not efficient at all in it, and I learned my lesson later on, especially when I learned about cards like Triskelion. But uh, there was a time in which I was putting Rods of Ruin into decks just for the heck of it. I find this card to be interesting a number of ways. I think you hit on one of the key points, which is that contrasting this with Prodigal Sorcerer tells us how much they thought how much they thought Prodigal Sorcerer was a good deal, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That seven mana yeah. to get one effect. I mean, that's what actually strikes me the most about this card is just how darn expensive it is, and how how it's it, true. On artifacts how highly they price direct damage. I mean. That that continues along along in Arabian Nights to Aladdin's Ring, eight mana to cast, oh, yeah. eight mana to, you know, to activate. It's like they just scaled this all the way up, right? In a sense, compared to this, Aladdin's Ring looks like a good deal, right? Am I wrong? <laughs> Shotgun. I mean, on on pure rate, you're completely yeah. correct. In terms of ability to cast, of course not. But yeah. um, of course, there's some trade off to being able to incorporate it into any deck. And to be able to use it at any time, immediately, not just you know having to wait for summoning sickness, but uh, there's a vulnerability to being an artifact as well, um, one that only increases over time as you get to antiquities. The art on this is so menacing, and the background is so. Uh, I like the I like everything about the art here. I like how the background color pattern. It, there's a there's an interesting kind of splatter pattern in the background. But it's not a random splatter pattern. It's like a, a pollock, right? It's a there's kind of like a splat a splatch on each side of the figure in the background that allows the mm-hmm. central figure, the the rod, the staff, to be uh, illumined from back the backdrop from behind, which then makes the like the face of the rod seem even more menacing, you know. But the ability here just does not match the power of this art. By any stretch of the imagination, it's a problem, and I don't know how you would fix this, 
I don't know if it should have been like two and two, or if it needed to, you know, tap and do three damage. Then you would be that would be pretty powerful. Well, the good news is is we have a fair bit of historical precedent to to consult when we talk about how to improve this effect. Obviously, not all of it was designed to just make a rod of ruin better, but it's noteworthy that there's effectively a rod of ruin in Corset 2020, and it is called Retributive Wand. It costs three mana instead of four. It has exactly the same activated ability. Three, tap, Retributive Wand does one damage to any target. Then it has this rider. When Retributive Wand is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, it does five damage to any target. So we actually have a modern Rod of Ruin in terms of very close cost and activation. Three and three instead of four and three. But then it has this rider that if it ever gets destroyed or you sacrifice it, for example, for any profitable reason, then it does a big five damage spike, which which is definitely a way to power this card up. In the vintage context, though, we have kind of a raft of examples over time, right? I mentioned Triskelion already. That's a historical favorite. But that was replaced by Walking Ballista, right, in the modern context, which is obviously a significantly different card, but carries this torch forward through time. Some closer versions to the rod would include things like Endbringer and Staff of Nin. Obviously, much powered up wow. versions at much better rates in the long Remind run. Remind me, Staff Staff and then is the one that has all the abilities, right? It was. Uh, no, I think you're thinking no, of Staff, Staff of, of Domination Dominate. there. Staff of Nin is the the draw Howling Mind one, tap. where you draw an extra oh. card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, tr- I mean, Trike is just so good. You know, if you're just looking at like <laughs> the best creatures up to ninety, you know, up to Antiquities, or even up through Legends, mm-hmm. like Trike. I think has to be in like the top ten. It certainly wouldn't have been, would not have been in the top ten in 1994. But from our historical perspective, right. I think we have a much better appreciation of how great that card is. Um, yeah, and it makes Rod of Ruin look yeah. pretty silly, <laughs> innocuous by comparison. This is this is not a Rod yeah. of Ruin. This is a Rod of an- <laughs> no. You're not getting ruined no, by this. It's at a all. Rod of annoyance. It, actually, it's not even. This annoyance. is like Rod of bother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a Rod of uh, irritation. Is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah completely agree and and for that reason among several others that i'm just baffled that it got printed as long as it did abu revised fourth fifth sixth seventh eighth ninth tenth and m10 then it skipped a couple and was in m14 now and and the thing that also kind of baffles me is it's an uncommon throughout all these sets I don't understand why after a half a dozen printings we didn't realize that this card was garbage and could be at common and still be a fine, but I think, well, for a long time there was kind of policy against there being good common artifacts, but that policy should have been abandoned a decade before it was. Uh, so this lived all the way through 10th edition and then one more printing in, in M14. About the last, you know, eight or nine of those were just kind of unwarranted. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Yeah. Great art with an underwhelming it, effect. Yeah. I do kind of wish I had a, a black-bordered sign oh, one of these by Chris gorgeous. Rush, though. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool card. All right. Oh, let's talk about uh, Gamma, just because I'm curious. Same. Was Rod of Ruin in yes. Gamma as exactly the same card? All right, there you have it. All right, next up, one that is far more interesting and fun, Royal Assassin. Royal Assassin is pretty famous. One BB for Summon Assassin. A tap to destroy any tapped creature, and it's a 1-1. There's lots we can say. In fact, there's lots we have already said about Royal Assassin vis-a-vis its combos within Alpha. But I want to just point out that 
this card had a whole bunch of mystique mm-hmm. for me because when I first started buying the products, I got a, a starter and a couple of boosters, went back a week later or so to buy some more boosters and noticed that they had a, a singles binder. This was at a, a shop that no longer exists bef- anymore, Fanfare in Battle Creek, Michigan. I was paging through their um, binder of singles and it had a whole bunch of gaps in it. They did not have a good selection. Mostly commons and uncommons and bad rares were there. But they had a listing in the front that listed every card in Revised. And I was just kind of scanning through the names and I saw a Royal Assassin. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what could a Royal Assassin do? That sounds incredible. <laughs> and it was probably six to ten months before I even saw a, a Royal Assassin and, and learned what it did. And I was just in awe of that name and the whole mystique of the thing. And when I saw it, I was not disappointed. I mean, the card is really sneaky and the art is really you know, underhanded. And I just, I just love this <laughs> card still to this day for that reason. Yeah, this is an iconic card from ABU, from Limited Edition. Uh, I have mm-hmm. a similar personal experience with this card. So the first time I played Magic, or remember playing Magic, which was in December of 1993, there were, aside from the basic lands, there were only two cards that I remember to this day as encoding. One of them was Guardian Beast, and the other is Royal Assassin. And nice. and both cards, I mean, are just... The, they are a combination of art effect and uh, flavor, right? All you get, you hit all three oh, yeah. elements. Um, so starting with the art, I mean, the the cool thing about the art is that the well, first let's describe. So there is the assassin is standing in like a shaded alleyway on the edge of a building that's a, uh, a side a a, side of a outside of a pub, and the. Uh, <laughs> Inside the pub, you can see through a window a cartoonish kind of foglio silhouette of someone enjoying their, you know, their food and liquor inside. Right? Clearly, the this looks to be reveling and apparently yeah, toasting, perhaps. Clearly, the target. But you have this mm-hmm. weird combination of the cartoony target, the kind of, um, you know, uh, and then the very gritty uh, environment, and then a very lethal appearing assassin, you know, just barely out of the shadows. So it has a mm-hmm. perfect combination of of threatening and fun. Um <laughs> also the t- the Agreed. title is great as you said. The this is in my opinion a clearly a top 10 creature from the set, certainly in alpha league or alpha, you know, 40, but I think just in general it was. It's a kind of card that you could imagine seeing, like on an inquest list, if inquest had existed in '94 as well, because it it hits the combination of being a competitively useful and casually alluring. Right? It's like the kind of card that a k- kitchen top magic player who's playing multi would want to have, because as we've already discussed, there are so few, few utility creatures in this in out in limited edition. You know, and so there's just a dearth of utility effects, and this is clearly a very good one at a very good price. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a couple things more I want to say, though, Kevin. One is that whoever made this, I feel like, is a is a genius in terms of design, and I presume it's it's Richard Garfield. But here's the thing about it: it's the perfect combination of lethality and vulnerability. Right? Mm-hmm. Making this yep. a one-one, I think, is just so perfect because it it means that you know. In a face-off between a Tim or a Rod of Ruin, this thing is quite vulnerable. But it, which means that in a casual setting, it's not going to be particularly threatening because there's probably more Rod of Ruin type effects around. But in a competitive environment, it can be quite frustrating. 
because you have to waste a, a removal spell, Sonic Blast, Lightning Bolt on this to deal with it, Swords to Plowshares. And you'll be glad to have done so, right? Because yeah. aside yeah. from Sarah Angel, if you plan to win with by attacking, you basically need to deal with this. It's very difficult yep. to get you know 20 damage in one shot with anything. Um, <laughs> and... And we've talked, we've made a point of calling out prior spells, which is a short list in this set that can give you card advantage on the board. And we've been guilty of talking about it mostly in terms of spells, right? Wrath of God, Earthquake, Fireball. Well, this is one of those, a short list of permanents that can give you card advantage on the board throughout a game. That's right. And it's important to emphasize just how wide the scope is. This thing kills jade statues. I mean, Llanowar Elves. (laughs) Uh, Shivan Dragons, you know, Hypnotic Spectrum Juggernauts. It really, it's just, it's so unrestricted in terms of its scope of application. It's really, really remarkable. Um, Yeah, I've certainly had my Jade Statues felt by this. Uh, It's a card you've got to deal with. Uh, And it's also, I think, well-costed, right? You can ritual it out, but that's not where you're getting a lot of your value. You're typically going to be because it's not like a card it's not a tempo play right <laughs> right right yeah your opponent's not going to just scoop it up like they might to a, a turn one hypnotic specter yeah and it also is interesting in terms of its positionality it's not that great against like zoo decks although it can probably get some work in right because it can it can pick off curd apes and scrib sprites and uh our gothian our gothian pixies and serendibifrites uh, but it's just mm-hmm. as good. It, but the thing is, those decks are likely to have, you know, the max burn. You know, once you get to 95, then they're running, in addition to Lightning Bolt and Chain Lightning, Incinerates and Psy Blasts. <laughs> like 12 burn mm-hmm. spells. But if you're right, playing against right. a mono black deck, say, uh, you have very limited options against this, right? You're bringing this in. It's going to kill hippies, Juzems, black knights, uh, you know, just about everything. The only way to deal with this is a drain life. This card was also... My earliest lesson in synergy, maybe not earliest, but it's a, it's one of the earliest lessons in synergy. It is very clear. It's a very clear path from seeing this card and then gradually. I mean, again, I'm saying gradually because I was a bad player to start with, but I was casual. Uh, gradually realizing how strong it is for the reasons you just said. If you're my opponent's trying to attack me, well, their creatures are going to turn sideways. This can just pick them off. Like that's. Once you start to feel that, that's really powerful. Well, then you start to think about, well, can I just tap my opponent's creatures? And then all of a sudden you look over your other cards and you're like, oh, I've got this Icy Manipulator. I've got this Nettling Imp. I've got this Twiddle. Like, th- you start to, you know, you just this card begets combinations. And it was really a doorway for me in terms of deck building. And it's, as you said, the design is genius. And I think it is for that and many other reasons. Because... It's just like many other things, the combinations are all there, the pieces are all there within the set to amplify the power of this thing. Yeah. The other thing the other thing about uh about this card, Royal Assassin. So you you yeah, I see twiddle, you know is that to your point, just let me just underscore your point, actually. It's not another thing, it's the exact same point, which is that <laughs> part of the what makes out limited edition so amazing in magic in general is that at its best, you have simple effects that have powerful synergy. And yeah. and this is an exa- a good example of that. Whether it's Icy in this or Icy in Psychic Venom, simple interactions that become incredibly powerful through 
not their individual isolated applications, but through their interactions. And I, I love that about this. You know, COP Red and Orcish Artillery being another example. Absolutely. So the lineage of the Royal Assassin is, I mean, I, I, I can't lay it all reserved, out because way, it's, it's, you go into it's long. Okay. Uh, no, no, definitely not. The, the lineage is that there are a lot of variants of tap to destroy on <laughs> permanence, but the tap, the, specifically the tapped target, has been replayed in one particular example, which is obviously a direct reference to this, which is the black sorcery named Assassinate. Assassinate is just destroy target tapped creature. And that's a clear reference to this card, right? The uh, The notion of destroying tapped creatures has since shifted from black into white over time because black's, um, black's removal has become, well, it still just straight up destroys things, but it's become situational based on the nature of the creature, like color or size. And white's removal has become more focused on combat destroying creatures that are either attacking or blocking or some variation thereof and being tapped has shifted over shifted over into white and so there's a number of white um abilities creature abilities as well as spells that interact with creatures that are either tapped or attacking or some combination thereof but the card itself royal assassin has been reprinted a whole bunch of times as in it skipped a couple of core sets after fourth edition unfortunately but then it kind of came back in a renaissance in eighth nine ten uh, looks like 11 and 12. So it just sort of became a corset staple again between 8th and 12th. There is one notable other printing. I like to call out these these uh, exceptional printings with respect to alpha cards because the after it was it kind of left the game after 4th edition for a couple of sets, it came back in 8th edition with a new art, a new art by Mark Zug which is obviously a direct reference to the original art. It's also a, a single character unsheathing a knife in a back alley in the dark, right? I mean, it's a very straight reference. But the very next printing of the card, you might say it was ninth edition. No, it wasn't. It was for the Junior Super Series, which was an international series of events for young people in 2004 and five. They commissioned an alternate art by Tom Wanderstrand, who did the alpha art, and they were printed in foil in the U.S. and Europe and in Japanese and Japan with this alternate art by Tom Wanderstrand, which is another direct allusion to the alpha art. The same exact uh, robed figure with a, a knife, a much more menacing knife, and this time in a kind of in a sewer. I just think it's totally cool. And that art is the one that's been used actually most recently digitally on Magic Online, is that Junior Super Series Tom Wanderstrand art. I would normally not call out an art, an art that wasn't the alpha art, you know, in such regard, but because they actually asked Wanderstrand to come back in and do it, and because it's such a direct homage to the original, I think it's noteworthy. Interesting point. It's, it's pretty I cool. I had always assumed, Kevin, that the selection and inclusion of flavor text on Magic cards generally came with the same art. So that if you had a reprint pattern in which you, let's say, had an original art then you shifted to a different art and right. then went back to the original art that the revised version the the third edition of the card which which reincorporated the original art would also reincorporate the original flavor text but one of the things that i notice in this reprint pattern here is that in the 10th edition version of the card m10 rather not 10th edition there's <laughs> there's also mm -hmm. a 10th the 10th and m10 versions actually have the original in the, which have Mark Zug art, have the original flavor text. But the M11 version, 
which has the Mark Zug art, has new flavor text, which carries over into M12. So that's odd. That That's unusual, I would argue. Good observation. Yeah, I would agree. That's That's probably pretty unusual for a flavor text to be the only thing that changes between subsequent printings, especially since they went back to the original flavor text for the Magic Online version, <laughs> which is kind of a hodgepodge of different printings. Well, no, wait a second. The Magic Online version is pretty much just a... No, I was wrong. It's pretty much just a straight-up representation of the Junior Super Series card. Same art and same flavor text. You're right, Steve. That's pretty unusual. I would imagine that that does not happen very often. So you've got different flavor text on 11 and 12. They're the only printings of Royal Assassin without the original flavor text. <laughs> are, are 11 and 12. Yeah. Strange. Especially yeah. since they decided to carry the original flavor text through two different editions of art. But Yeah, yeah. That's strange. Definitely unusual. The card, unfortunately, is not in Gamma, not from Gamma. So I have no idea what the reason why is, but it was added to the set after Gamma. And I have to say, some of those things were a mistake, but this one was definitely a home definitely. run. Yeah. Anything else on Royal? Next, we have Sacrifice. Sacrifice is an interrupt, which is of note. And it's uh, for one black, sorry, for a single black man is what I should have said. It's an interrupt that says destroy one of your creatures without regenerating it and add to your mana pool a number of black mana equal to creatures casting cost. (laughs) It's pretty funny now that uh, the card that we use to shorthand the act of sacrificing a creature is called sacrifice for a reason, (laughs) right? And yet the original version does not use that language. (laughs) Destroy without regenerating. It's also worth noting that the destruction is on resolution of the spell and the alpha card, the alpha text, does not target. So what should happen in purely alpha context is you simply announce the spell sacrifice and wait for your opponent to respond with any interrupts. And then when it resolves, you choose one of your Uh creatures, destroy it, don't regenerate it. It's the the opposite of like Tinker. (laughs) <laughs> right well and it's not it's the opposite of the oracle wording of the card which is just like yeah. tinker it says as an additional cost to cast it sacrifice is a creature. Culling, but the alpha the alpha card you know the creature's not chosen until resolution is calling the weak on resolution or upon uh announcement it would be an announcement too okay. just like this card calling the weak it functions exactly like this card except the amount of mana you get is fixed interesting of note too it's funny you use that example culling the weak is on a short list of cards that were printed with the type mana source (laughs) right (laughs) originally which is alone yeah there's only been one printing of culling the weak every printing of culling the weak as the type i mean that there are some cards that were originally printed not as mana sources but subsequently as mana sources yes and then an even smaller number (laughs) of cards that were originally printed as mana sources yes exactly well, what else can you say about Sacrifice, Steve? I oh. mean, uh, it, it is one of those cards that we now colloquially refer to the the whole effect by this name. <laughs> yeah, you're creating a list of those. Um, a couple things. <laughs> one is that, you know, it is interesting to try and think through what the design intent of this card is, right? I mean, obviously, yes. there was some thought that players might want to, you know, trade in an investment on one card into another. But there was no, I think, appreciation given for card disadvantage in doing that. Um, this doesn't even scale up. Like calling the weak, you can turn an ornithopter into four black. You can't, you can't yeah. really do that with this. It can, it can marginally scale up, but it doesn't actually give you any boost. It's just turning whatever you have. I suppose 
I suppose one possible. See, the the other thing is one possible use of this would be to turn something that's going di- to already die in combat or from direct damage into something else. But clearly, it's mm-hmm. hard to use mana in combat, like a bunch of black mana in combat, <laughs> right? You could activate. Yes. I guess you could activate like a jam day tome or something like that, um, rocket launcher, but that's typically typically not going to be the case. So mm-hmm. I, I've just I've never seen a real good use case for this. Um, and it's hard to envision what the design intent thought or the thinking around it from a design perspective was. This is the only card in Alpha where you proactively sacrifice something. Well, okay, Black Lotus, but <laughs> that's not the same. That's not the same ballpark. There are a couple of other cards, and they're all black, where you sacrifice something for a benefit over time. Lord of the Pit, Demonic Chords, but. This is really is one of a kind within Alpha. It's the only card. It's what's especially the only card where you sacrifice on announcement in Alpha. There are a number of cards where they become sacrificed if you don't do the right thing, like you know the island home stuff that we talked about. But this is unique. I feel as though my instincts are that this is actually just top-down design. They wanted something to evoke the the effect of sacrificing, yeah. right? And then they, it's pretty easy to map that into magical mechanics, and I think they did a fine job of that. Your points are well made. I think there's some strong connective tissue between this card and the cards that require black mana to scale up, like Pestilence and Drain Life. Yeah. Right? Those effects are few and far between in Alpha, and so the fact that this generates pure black... this can t- You know, you could put this on a two-color deck. You could sacrifice a... Call it an Air Elemental to power up a big Drain Life in a way that you would otherwise have trouble doing in a two-color deck, right? So it, it functions a little bit like color fixing, but I think it's unique and narrowly defined in the, the the limited edition context with respect to black specifically. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is a, a top-down design. In terms of the fixing or acceleration component, it's hard to say this accelerates, as we've discussed. Uh, it competes yeah. just so fiercely with Dark Ritual being like the defining... <laughs> It is quite strange that it's in the same set as Ritual. And ironically, it continues to be in the same set as Ritual in Ice Age, where they recapitulate Sacrifice as Burnt Offering and also put Dark Ritual in the set, along with a couple other rituals, like the Songs of the Dead and Damned or whatever. Ice Age was strange in a number of rituals it had. It's interesting, Steve. I want to reinforce your observation about using this on a creature that's about to die. Because the gamma version of this card is the same in every way, except it's a sorcery. Wow. And so it's pretty clear that they wanted to amp up the situational wow. utility of the card by making it or an interrupt. Or they just were trying to make mana production consistently interrupts so that you could respond. Because oh. if someone tries to, you know, like, let's say, power sink you, yeah, and you can't respond with sacrifice, that's that's a unlike the fact that you can you know respond. What? Yeah, you're probably I mean, right. you can tap all the other mana tapping things say you can play this as an interrupt speed mm-hmm. from black lotus to dark ritual lana or elf yep i stand corrected you're probably right i think that standardization is probably the more powerful draw there it's funny sacrifice follows the same exact reprint pattern as rock of courages <laughs> it was in every set up to summer and then didn't make this the transition from summer into fourth edition yeah but in the case of rock of courages well in the case of both these cards they were probably also just both doomed and destined to be superseded by better cards like the card i was mentioning a moment ago from ice age burnt offering is just a superior card it's just the same thing except you can get uh 
black or red mana. No reason to play sacrifice unless you're just an alpha league. Right. In the in terms of Although I must say it Well, just in ahead. terms of the art, it's got the classic <laughs> Dan Frazier uh swirl paint background, but a very murky blood red, which is interesting. There's no <laughs> actual blood on this art, not even at the point of the knife going into the skin of the chest mm-hmm. of this hapless victim. Uh but it's strongly evoked by the background swirl pattern. <laughs> I was going to make the same observation. Yeah, there's no, there's no accident. The swirl pattern and the colors of it in this card. This is another in a long line of cards that really loses something in white border. <laughs> in this case, the black border really serves to emphasize the starkness of the red because the red is really the only color in the card, and it stands out much more in black border than it does in white border. All right, next up, let's talk about Samite Healer. On the short list of utility creatures, as we've defined them in Alpha, or Limited Edition, Samite Healer is 1W, Summon Cleric, tap to prevent 1 damage to any target, and it is a 1-1. Before, Obviously, bef- this card competes in a very direct way with Prodigal Well, Before Sorcerer. we talk about it tactically, what I wanted to say, Kevin, is that for those of you who don't know, Samite is a, by a dictionary definition, is a rich silk fabric interwoven with gold and silver threads used for dressmaking and decoration in the Middle Ages. Hmm. FYI, so. Well, and the art seems to very clearly evoke that with multiple visual references to fabric uh, with a very soft tones. But uh, tactically, yes, this is the uh, analog to Prodigal Sorcerer by doing the opposite. And they shaved off a little bit of mana to make it a little more efficient in doing so. This card is mm-hmm. actually kind of funny with Banalish Hero decks because you can save your Banalish Hero from at least a little bit of damage. I suppose <laughs> I suppose uh, you need multiples of these to really make your, your band of heroes invulnerable in each case. But. <laughs> well, especially to scale up with those darn rats. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, I want to hear your thoughts on the notion of the mana cost here because you're talking about blue and white two allied colors with uh, uh, opposing abilities preventing damage dealing damage both at common and the mana cost here seems to be a pretty strong assertion of the difference in power between preventing damage and dealing damage but it's also really interesting to note the comparison of that and healing stab versus lightning bolt yeah where they they kept the uniformity of aesthetics Whereas in this case, they didn't. I would not, I mean, you could see a universe and it would not be a very distant universe in which Samite Healer costs 2W and we'd all be living in that universe and not even notice True. really, right? I just find that very interesting. Well, I think you make a good point. The point you're making is that in general, the designers of limited edition are telling you that defensive spells are a little bit more efficient than offensive spells. I think the better example of that is righteousness versus giant growth at a single mana you get a huge, mm-hmm. you know, like a 2.3, yes. <laughs> you know, times is as much on defense as, you know, in a defensive use as you do get in the offensive capacity. I think that the other thing, I think that your point about Healing Salve versus Lightning Bolt is interesting, but there's two considerations just that are obvious. One is that uh, it's hard to make the Lightning Bolt more efficient than it is. You can't make it free, right? You can't get less than one. And the second point is that if you were to expand the damage or increase the damage dealt, then you would be destroying the cycle 
of one for three. So I think that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the cycle of Boone's was was adhered to slavishly, <laughs> right? That's why we got ancestral recall. Yeah. <laughs> but and so there's no denying that. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to note that they took this opportunity in the case of these two cards to acknowledge the difference in power level and somewhat account for it. Yeah. I mean, Samite Healer could cost one mana and be a 0-3 and would have seen barely more play than it does now. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it is woefully underpowered think, compared to Prodigal I Sorcerer. I think that in limited edition, the designers of the set were... were there's no 0-3s, even in walls, right? I mean... Well, there's sorry, wall there's wall of wood. But I, my point is, okay, l- <laughs> yeah. let me rephrase. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> there are no non-wall zero threes, and I think what that's saying yeah. is that um, for utility creatures in Al- in Alpha Beta Unlimited and, and Limited Edition, they are trying to make them one ones that have some sort of ability. Prodigal Sorcerer, uh, Royal Assassin. Obviously, the exception is the mm-hmm. artillery, which is which is why we spent so much time talking about it. It's such an interesting case, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's generally what they're trying to do here is say, you know, we believe that... The, I guess what we're saying is, from a top-down perspective, these utility creatures are very weak, but they have some sort of interesting thing that they do, and so we want them to be 1-1. They're not just... You know, they're very weak in combat, and they're very weak in terms of offense and defense, but 0-3 would make them kind of like... You know what? They have to be powerful on defense. This doesn't seem like a three toughness thing. Like this is a weakling. Uh, well, you know, I see your point. Absolutely, from a flavor standpoint, I absolutely see your point. Um, at the same time, okay, maybe I overstated. Maybe zero two would have worked, but there's no such thing as a zero two <laughs> creature in Alpha at all. Like that's not a power toughness they thought was available. <laughs> right. Basically, right. back then. I think for the reason <laughs> I was just saying, there is. A- Exactly. There is a single zero three, and it's a, it's a wall, and there's a reason for that. A lot of the walls had zero power, but your point is well made. I from a, I think it's noteworthy from a historical standpoint. I think it's also noteworthy that th- while underpowered, the Samite Healer was still kind of a standard for a while. Like the, it's it's actually kind of fascinating. The first iteration of the card being Samite Healer. The second was Samite Alchemist. And so when I say iteration of the card, I mean cards, sorry, cards with literal Samite in their title. Uh, the second one was Samite Alchemist. Twice as much mana, 3W, and has an activated ability, this is Homelands, of WW tap, prevent up to four damage to a creature you control. Tap that creature. The creature does not untap during your next untap phase. They, <laughs> At some point, they became really afraid of how good damage prevention was. And I, I don't quite understand that point because the very next printing was in Tempest and it's a, a legendary Samite, Orim, Samite Healer. 1WW for a 1-3, tap to prevent up to 3 damage to any creature or player. So we got this really strange articulation of the power level of damage prevention. Samite Healer, a little underpowered but still costs less than the Prodigal Sorcerer at 2 mana. The Homelands version, and we, almost everything in Homelands is overcosted. And then you get to Tempest, and you just tack one more white mana onto a Samite healer, and you get a 1-3 that prevents three times as much, <laughs> which I think is, is getting pretty close to the actual accurate um, <laughs> the actual accurate reflection. The most recent Samite card, and this is a long time ago, is, was back in Future Sight, and it's Oris, Samite Guardian, another legendary creature. She is a 1-3 for WW1 that taps prevent all damage that would be dealt a target creature this turn. It doesn't protect you, but it prevents all damage to a creature. 
and she happens to have grandeur too, which never gets used. So <laughs> over time, we've seen the full spectrum of these kind of effects. And in particular, the, the Samite lineage has gone from low power to ridiculously low power up to, I think, reasonable levels. But that's hasn't been continued since um, Future Sight. We haven't had a card with Samite in the title since Future Sight. Well, this is, this is I think, a testament to the evolution <laughs> of, of magic cards over time, right? Mm-hmm. More than anything else. Well, you're absolutely right. And so the most recent... Uh, incarnation of just this ability prevent the next one damage to uh, that would be dealt to any target this turn is in the form of is still a long time ago ironically in the form of Abuna Acolyte which is a direct callback to Samite Healer it was but it was from Scars of Mirrodin Scars of Mirrodin is the last time we had a card that had the language prevent the next one damage would be dealt to any target this turn wow but it's a Samite healer. It's it's one W for a one one. Prevent the next one damage that would be dealt to target creature or player this turn. It has a second ability, which is prevent the next two damage that would be dealt to target artifact creature this turn. So it's in the obviously an artifact focus set, and it's the a, the healer that's better at healing artifacts. The it's really strange that even though we've graduated a long way, you still don't get much better of a healer than this even in the modern day. I think part of it is because they recognize that this kind of tapping a creature to prevent damage is just so low-powered fundamentally that you can't scale it up and have it be interesting. Like, you, you could have a one-mana... Like I said, you could have a one-drop that tapped to prevent 100 damage to a creature or player, right? And it's still not that tactically interesting. And so you can, and you can't scale down on the cost enough to make it interesting... And the only way to scale up on the effect is to turn it into preventing all the damage. And so I think that's just what we've observed over time. I don't know I don't know what the most recent example of prevent all damage is. I can take a look, but I can tell you it's probably not that interesting of a card. Find it. Yeah, sure enough. I mean, it, the last version of that language was back in Lorwyn. Well Gabber Apothecary, which congratulations if you know what that card does. Five mana, two, three merfolk that has an activated ability... 1W colon, prevent all damage that would be dealt to target tapped merfolk or kithkin creature this turn. It's just not that interesting of an ability, and they've basically stopped using it. Yeah. Samite Healer, we barely knew ye. Uh, it's funny, it's a card that I encode very strongly with limited edition. Partly because, again, revised, I had a big stack of them, I put them in some decks, it's not a big deal, but I just, I just am surprised this is one of those cards that didn't have as powerful an impact on the game in the long term as many other cards that I think really outlived their usefulness. It granted it was a printed a bunch. It was it was printed in almost every core set up to tenth edition. It serves but a number of still. functions though. It it continues to demarcate parts of the color pie. It tells us the relative efficiency of defense versus offense. It reminds us that mm-hmm. these utility creatures are fairly weak in terms of combat, but they have you know some minimal stats. Um so it's useful from a design perspective, but not useful from, I think, a play perspective for the most part. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And you want to know an interesting uh, related point, Steve? This card's not in Gamma. Hmm. Along with Royal Assassin. It was added to... Is Prodigal Sorcerer Yeah, it was added to gamma? Alpha. Yes, yes, definitely. So apparently it was a little bit of hole filling too, which lends a little bit more evidence toward the fact that it, it doesn't share the same costing parallel with say the boon cycle they i guess they felt like they had more leeway to cost this thing quote unquote properly as compared to prodigal sorcerer 
That's interesting. Well, next up we have Savannah. And we don't need to say too much more about dual lands. Savannah is sadly it, the art on it, it while it's it's pretty, it has a lot in common with the basic planes art where there's just next to nothing going on. <laughs> it's just a looks like a, a a wheat field perhaps, maybe not literally a wheat field, but it looks like a wheat field and there's a a mostly level horizon with clear hazy blue skies and just nothing going on except for some slight texture in the middle distance yeah it's pretty unfortunate that that a lot of these dual lands suffered for a lot of the same problems that the basic planes do well it does steve do you have affinity for savannah as a card this card is obviously in one of the weakest color combinations in magic white and green (laughs) now Mm -hmm. I, i say that from the perspective of an eternal player school player yeah uh, savannah is like for a long time i think was just the worst dual land right it got yeah. it got somewhat useful in in vintage when hate bears became a thing and you you could cast things like gadoctique with this um but so kevin according to wikipedia savannah is a mixed woodland grassland ecosystem characterized by trees being sufficiently widely spaced so that the canopy does not close um, the open canopy allows sufficient light to reach the ground to support an unbroken herbaceous layer consisting primarily of grasses. So in a savanna, you would want to see basically a lot of, it's not wheat, but just a lot of grasses, which is what you see in this image. It it does that, but what's missing from this is that you don't really have any of the trees. <laughs> There's no really about it. You don't it. have, you any, don't trees, have yeah. any trees. <laughs> which seems to be part of the savanna. Which so is... if, you, if you were to Google and look up an image of an African savanna, you would see trees you know, spaced fairly mm-hmm. decently apart. Yeah, it's ironic. The uh, basic planes B art would have been a more convincing savanna than the actual savanna. Because <laughs> <laughs> basic planes B at least has some trees on it. It's literally showing a savanna. This is just showing a field. Yeah, it's a it's a shame. And unfortunately, the the pattern will continue with the next dual end we get to as well, because the next one is in my opinion, <laughs> not in terms of play, but in terms of art. Yeah. Right. No, but in terms of art. Um, okay, well, I don't want to say much more about Savannah. I don't want to continue to rag on it. But I would say from arguably worst to arguably best, <laughs> we move on next to Savannah Lions. Now, Savannah Lions are famously a single mana for summon lions, and they are empty with the flavor text, but a 2-1. A 2-1 for one mana, which I think you and I can agree has colloquially become the characterization of a savannah lion, yeah. right? A one mana two one. And much like the gray ogres of the world and the hill giants. Savannah lions, I mean, these are these are where it's at in terms of aggressive creatures this and health. Big game. Yeah, yeah. No two ways about it. And it, rare. Yeah, which is of no, note. it's extremely important the fact that this was rare because it just meant that even in like the revised revised days, you didn't have a lot of these walking around. I think that the oddest mm-hmm. thing about it though is that this is the most aggressive one drop in the entire set and what is by far the least aggressive s- color in the set of limited edition, right? I mean, so yeah. that's there's a bit of color incongru- incongruity there. <laughs> that you know, if this had been in green, you know, then you would have seen <laughs> the kind of wild dogs. You would have seen this in in the early championship decks of all ninety four, ninety five, and even later. But to to you know, this was eventually splashed in a lot of zoo decks. But it was really the only white creature, unless potentially they had a couple Sarahs. But it's usually like, you know, Naya Zoo, right? <laughs> With Savannah Lions, Disenchanted right. Swords. Um, 
But yeah, the most aggressive one drop in the least aggressive color is the headline of this card. Yeah. And another very interesting assertion of the role of rarity yes. on on cards just in general for the reasons you stated. I I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the discussions about rarity on Savannah Lines. I think they missed the boat. They missed the, the boat on that big time. This should this should have been an un- uncommon in my opinion because it rare it's just too hard for people to accumulate a bunch of them to be able to do you know look yeah. Kurt Ape becomes kind of the defining aggro creature of the early game out of Arabian Nights you know, with mm-hmm. taigas and mountain and forests and this could have been this could have played that role absolutely couldn't agree more and, and it had a negative formative effect on me personally in terms of my early days of the game because I I, I don't know the reason exactly. I was not attracted to small, aggressive creature strategies, but I definitely saw Savannah Lions and thought, oh, this is cool. This would be really good if I got a bunch of these together with, with other things at low right. mana cost, but it's rare, and I've only got right. this one, so and I can't Kurt build Ape that. Kurt is a deck. common. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I built Kurt Ape decks. Yeah. Well, another interesting point about the Savannah Lions and its relative power is that, see, kids huh. today, <laughs> kids today are a little bit pampered by uh, power creep, especially in the specific niche of one mana two one creatures, <laughs> because these days you get venerable knights and gutter bones and hex drinkers and just sky marcher aspirants. I mean, you get pretty good two ones for one mana with lots of upside not just a little upside we're not talking like we're not talking like trample or banding or something we're talking tons of upside oh um when when savannah alliance was printed the next several one mana two ones all had drawbacks yeah like matenda lions was yes. the next Wild iteration dogs, of this Gaz effect and mirage yeah, yeah. Uh, you're talking about you've got to pay mana to upkeep you've got you can't block you've got uh Jackal Pup yes. says for one each one damage oh, dealt God. two Jackal Pup, it deals one damage to you. I mean, they were really afraid to make one mana two ones for many was years. Was Jackal Pup a rare and uncommon? Jackal Pup was uncommon. I don't think anyone today who's just, you know, in, gotten into magic in the last 10 to 15 years can possibly appreciate how powerful Jackal Pup was when it came out. I mean, <laughs> in context, in con- I mean, yeah. it was Jackal Pup was enor- like enormously powerful because it was in the aggressive burn you out color and the perfect one mm-hmm. drop god mm-hmm. it's it's amazing to think about that no you make an excellent point i remember when they printed because this was about the time i was playing in the magic invitational but it was just after they had printed the forgotten set for a mice age block what was that set yeah, called cold uh snap. cold snap and they printed in that set a 2-2 savannah lion that had legendary as the drawback. And that was viewed as, whoa, you've got a 2-2 now that has no drawback, besides the fact that <laughs> it did really did have a drawback, in the sense that like you couldn't play more than two or three of it in a deck reliably. You're, I think you're talking about Isamaru. Isamaru. And Isamaru was actually in Champions of Kamigawa, My mistake. not Cold it was, it was around the same time, Isamaru. Yeah. Around the same yeah. time, yeah. Uh, that was a big deal, you're right. It right. was noteworthy. And now... They just print this like it's willy nilly with with upside uh, in addition, <laughs> not with downside, but with upside. <laughs> well, to put that in a little bit more context, Steve, Isamaru uh, Champions was printed in two thousand four. But if you look, if you just go on Scryfall and search for CMC one Power two Toughness one, 
and then look over and sort it by release date. <laughs> Savannah Lions is printed, right? Then let me just run, run off a list for you. Matenda Lion, Jungle Lion, Jackal Pup, Spindrift Drake, Goblin Cadets, Goblin Patrol, Wild Dogs, Molting Harpies, Scarred Puma, Carrion Rats, Razorgrass Screen, Lightning Serpent, Drifter Ill Doll, Norin the Wary, Uktabi Drake, Flamekin Blade Whirl, Una's Gate Warden, and Tattermunge Maniac. Those, what did I just say? Something like 20 creatures take us up to the year 2010. Huh. 2010 is the year we get Elite Vanguard in M10. Elite Vanguard is the first creature since limited edition, since Savannah Lions, to be a 2-1 for 1 with no drawback. 2010, Steve. 17 wow. years between yeah. Savannah Lions and Elite Vanguard. And those, those are the tent poles. Elite Vanguard was the turning point where we started to get two ones for one that yep. didn't have draw that illustrates the point i was making about it isamaru as well mm-hmm. yeah no i remember exactly yes isamaru like the was nine there. the nine forest stompy decks that had land grant from like 2000 like 1999 to 2001 were basically like yeah. you know, matenda lion pouncing jaguar wild dogs <laughs> cosmonoga mm-hmm. rogue elephant um yeah, all the all the aggressive one drops with you drawbacks can fill in. with egregious drawbacks. Uh, every one of them has yeah. egregious drawbacks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, I think if you're the sort of player, and I know most our show tends to be older players, right? Our show tends to be people who've lived this. But if you're the sort of person who maybe started playing in the last, I don't know, decade, you might not appreciate the notion that two one for one is deal. a novel thing for us yeah, old timers. Like yeah. A, yeah, novel. Its novelty is really its most important thing, right? Which should have worn off. I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, like since um, <laughs> since Elite Vanguard, we've gotten another. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Another seven white two ones for one that all have better upsides. I mean, that have upsides, I should say. So it's no longer we're no longer languishing in the realm of two one for one means you have to pay. It means you get upside. Now the most recent one recent. The most recent one being Venerable Knight from Eldraine, which has just straight up upside. When it dies, put a plus one, plus one counter on target knight you control. I mean, that's that's <laughs> big upside compared to all the terrible drawbacks we had to languish with for years. Anyway, obviously Savannah Lions was incredibly formative. It was reprinted many times, but but sporadically. ABU and Summer and Fourth, but then it took a break until eighth and ninth edition. And then it was reprinted in in uh Masters this, 25, but so it, it it took a break for a number of sets and then came back in the But this is one of those cards art. that when it was reprinted, unlike Sarah Angel and so on that were terrible, I believe this card was probably good when it was reprinted, is my guess. That's true. Well, that's true, <laughs> because when it was reprinted in 8th edition in 2003, we still hadn't seen Isamaru yeah. yet. <laughs> Isamaru was <laughs> so a year Savannah away. Lions was still... And then you could play them together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Savannah Lions, in, I, I know, in 8th edition was still a big game. For its efficiency. Yeah, you're right. Well, Steve, uh, anything else about Savannah no, Lions? Very, very powerful card. Easily top 10 creature from this set. Just the challenge being rare <laughs> is its real only real drawback. <laughs> right. And just the oddity of it being in white. The mo- most aggressive one drop in the set in white. Very odd. It's worth noting that in Gamma, Savannah Lions was just known as Lions and was a 1 1. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh huh. Very interesting and simple change that uh, appears to have been very purposeful 
Um, and oh, it was a common one, one, I should say. Oh, God. So they wanted to beef up its power, and the rarity must just be a strong recognition of the effect that would have. Uh, I don't, I'll add this to the podcast. This is not of interest to 99% of you, but. There's a rumor that the reason this card is so expensive in Alpha, if you if you look up the price of this card in Alpha, you'll be shocked. And the rumor is that there's someone who has oh, collected... Boy. So there's only 1,100 Alpha Rares. It means there's only 100, mm-hmm. 1,100 of these in existence. It, it, you know, At the time they were made, probably some that had been lost through damage, attrition, so on and so forth, disposed right. collections. But the rumor is that there's someone out there who collects these in Alpha, which has taken a huge chunk of the them out of the market. <laughs> it was already a tiny market. And that explains why it's so hard to find. And so expensive. Well, simply a sad truth about limited edition is it is possible to corner the market on <laughs> yeah. rares. Yeah. I'd like to point out the uh, unintentional comedy of the flavor text here. The traditional kings of the jungle command a healthy respect in other climates as well. Relying mainly on their stealth and speed, savannah lions can take a victim by surprise. And here's the funny part even in the endless flat plains of their homeland. (laughs) (laughs) The irony, of course, being that there's just nowhere to hide in the art of an actual uh, limited edition Savannah. (laughs) 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 All right. So from lightning fast and at the peak of efficiency to slow and methodical, (laughs) we get to scathe zombies. A card which, you know, for one reason or another, just didn't have the, the cultural sting that a, a Grey Ogre did in terms of to, you know, outlining its power yeah. and toughness. <laughs> Skate Zombies are simply 2B, Summon Zombies, flavor text for a 2-2. It doesn't get any simpler than that. We don't really need to talk much about the, the uh, mechanics of the card itself, except to point out that with respect to its lord, Skate Zombies is much more potent than uh, Merfolk of the Pearl Trident or uh, <laughs> the Mons Goblin right. Raiders. Is this the third 2-2 two, two for for uh, 2X that we've covered? So we covered Grey Ogre, we've covered Pearl Unicorn, there's Skate Zombies. Is that the universe of them in limited edition? I think so. I'm scrolling back through just to make sure I'm not forgetting. Yeah, so in white you got Pearl Unicorn. In red, obviously, there's a stack of them, right? But that's common, it's Grey Ogre. There isn't one in green at common, is there? No, I mean, we talked about grizzly bears, obviously, is is the version of this yeah. at green, yeah. in green for you, common. You jump up from two mana yeah. with grizzly bears to four mana to war mammoth, a 3-3. Three, three. So there's right. nothing in between. And then the red three, I'm oh, sorry, the blue three mana tentpole common is your prodigal sorcerer. Yeah, there's nothing at 2-2 two, two there. So, right. yeah, there's a lot of this effect in this set. Um simple i'm kind of surprised by how frequently this was reprinted uh i think that the issue with this card and part of the reason it never did anything is because just there's never been a good enough lord for zombies beginning with the zombie master here which we'll get to at the very end but it's it's clear that those lords are just that's the weakest lord of the grixis lords and this card suffers as a result i mean for for many many years yeah yeah i meant it in the first yeah some years of the of the game what's the best zombie lord today that exists well i mean historically there have been several now like lord of the accursed from um amonkhet actually i think it was our 
which is other zombies you control get plus one plus one and it has an activated abilities that put some mana into it and tap it it says all zombies gain menace until end of turn yeah that's pretty cool i mean there's a new zombie lord just in m21 liliana's devotee zombies you control get plus one plus zero and there there have been a handful of others throughout the the years death baron gives skeletons and zombies <laughs> which is pretty funny because it, it it harkens back to alpha and, and pumps your drudge skeletons so there's a couple of you know there's actually several decent zombie lords in this day and age but we didn't get the first decent one of those for many years to your yeah. point that's why this card was basically garbage <laughs> yeah yeah you're absolutely right if if zombie master had actually given them a power and toughness buff the way the white and sorry the way the red and blue lords do, this card would have been much more yeah. happy. So this card only appears in two places. In limited edition limited, where you just don't have enough creatures for your deck, it, and, and it's and even then it's very marginal. And in theme decks. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's also of note, and we can dovetail into our next card too, which is Scavenging Ghoul. So <laughs> the zombie tribe has been retconned in the limited edition sense. Because the next card, Scavenging Ghoul, which is four mana, so three black, Summon Ghoul, which is the noteworthy part. Summon Ghoul, uh, at the end of each turn, put one counter on the ghoul for each other creature that was destroyed without regenerating during the turn. If ghoul dies, you may use a counter to regenerate it. Counters remain until used. And it's a 2-2. You probably noticed that I referred to this as Summon Ghoul, and this was Summon Ghoul all the way up until, well, its last physical printing, 4th edition, still said Summon Ghoul. So at some point between 1995 and today, which I, I don't know when that was, Scavenger Ghoul was uh, eroded from a ghoul uh. to a zombie. And now, and that serves to double the number of zombies in Alpha. And so I, and retroactively, Zombie Master got a lot better but there was never a point at which people were playing Zombie Master with just yeah. these two other zombies. <laughs> so, it's yeah, it's, it's highly ironic that we've talked already about how the, the tribes, as they exist in, in limited edition, are, are very sparsely uh, articulated, right? And it's, it's funny that now we, in, in hindsight, have double the number of zombies. Granted, Scavenging Ghoul is an uncommon, but it's, I still would have been able to build a zombie deck back then if, I, if Scavenging Bull had been one. Yeah, and, and the ghoul is very distinct from a zombie. Well, somewhat distinct. A ghoul is... A zombie is the uh, is some is an individual person who is dead, but came back to life, mm-hmm. right? The undead. <laughs> Whereas a, a ghoul mm-hmm. is a... Uh, is just an evil spirit or a phantom that, I guess, especially according to the dictionary, one that feeds on dead bodies. So zombies feed on the living, Whereas ghouls feed on the dead, I guess is one distinction. Yeah, and a ghoul—it's unclear yeah. whether a ghoul was ever human, you know, or not. I mean, we have ghouls in uh, Arabian Nights. Are there still creatures with the type ghoul? I hadn't bothered to look. <laughs> there probably aren't. Well, there's Cabal ghoul. Let me see. Yeah, I don't know what type that has right now. I'm checking. So no, there are no creatures anymore that have ghoul in their type even though like Ashen Ghoul was printed as a yeah. ghoul. But there are, there are plenty of creatures that have ghoul in their name. Look, looks like about 40 of them, give or take. There's one non-creature, it looks like. <laughs> Oath of Ghouls. Uh, yeah, Cabal Ghoul, which is, a, was of course, printed as a ghoul, is now a zombie as well. Weird. 
yeah so that abu uh, arabians legends antiquities kind of zombie tribal deck is actually way better today than it would have actually been in 1995 <laughs> which is a shame uh this yeah i would love to have played a zombie tribal deck with kawagul in it back then i like the i like the built-in mechanic on this card it's kind of interesting that it's gone through a lot of mechanical iterations too so it's noteworthy that it it says at the end of each turn which in the alpha context is actually some unique language, right? There's not a lot of cards that specifically refer to the end of each turn. There's a lot of cards that refer to the beginning of each turn, right? Which are now your copper tablets and your wanderlusts and that whole crowd. But this one happens at the end of the turn, and that's not normal in the limited edition context. It's especially noteworthy in that in the modern parlance, it's actually the same really? language, basically. Well, not exactly. I mean, it says at the end of each turn. Today, that says at the beginning of each end step. But the fact is, is that there, we've talked about a zillion alpha cards already where the which turns it was referring to was ambiguous, right? And, and the, a, a strict textual reading of the card would have it happen every turn, like Cursed Land and its, its ilk. This one is another one where it's pretty clear at the end of each turn, right? But this one has kept the fact that it happens every turn, I think, which I think is I think somewhat it's unusual. that it says that it has it's, the oracle still has the beginning of each end step end of turn i would have thought that they would have turned this or if you were designing it today you would you wouldn't you say that whenever a creature goes to the graveyard at the end of yeah. this turn put a counter on it right for each well there's in, i mean you could do it that way if you wanted to for some reason they were really afraid yeah they were really afraid to make things happen in real time in the <laughs> early days this and Kabul are two perfect but examples of that. Of real, and there's, but there's there are many lots more. of things that happen in real time. You mean in terms of delayed triggers? Oh, what I mean is today there'd be no reason to make it wait. Today this card would just say whenever another creature dies, put oh, a counter I see on what this, and then remove a counter to regenerate. Like that, that's a simple design by today's yeah. standards. There's no reason to make it wait. Um, and the, the only reason the Oracle wording today makes it wait is just because of a original. of a, a loyalty to yeah. the original text. Some, yeah. some, some intentionality it, around being faithful to the original design. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's worth noting, too, that... So, the alpha text, the second half of it, it says, if Ghoul dies, you may use a counter to regenerate it. It's pretty clear that that gives you the choice. The gamma version, though, which is effectively the same card, doesn't give you the choice. Ah, it says, each time any other creature dies, put a counter on the ghoul. When ghoul is killed, it only is discarded if it has no counters. Otherwise, it just loses a counter. <laughs> I think I... <laughs> That's literally what it says. Otherwise, I it just I loses a counter. I think I prefer that because for two reasons. Number one <laughs> is that, by the way, I like the thematic that we talked about how what ghouls are is they eat the dead, right? So this is suggesting that it's yeah. you know, gaining some vitality mm-hmm. from from mm-hmm. the death of other things. But the reason I like that I like that for I like that uh, lack of agency for the planeswalker for two reasons. One is that you know there is a sense that as planeswalkers we don't entirely control all of these creatures, right? I mean Lord of the Pit, et cetera, et cetera. There yeah. are things that if we don't if we don't do what they required of us to do, they can turn on us. You know. Um but also it all, yeah. you know in terms of it doesn't make it a missed trigger, <laughs> which has become kind of the bane of contemporary <laughs> magic. <laughs> Um, in paper, yeah, at least, yeah, and that makes it. Uh, no, I think that. I mean, who who is who doesn't want to regenerate this? The the corner cases are going to be tiny, in which you wouldn't want to regenerate this. Um, 
So I think yeah. I think making that mandatory was perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I think it would have been sure, and you could design the card either way. This card was reprinted in just the early sets. It made it up to fourth edition, and then never again. Have, it's kind of <laughs> noteworthy in how starkly it dropped. It's not a reserved card, no. right? So there's lots of reserved cards that followed a similar pattern up to revised, for example. This one went up to fourth edition, and then. It has literally never been reprinted. <laughs> it's just too underpowered. Kevin, have you ever seen this in play? Uh, not since my youth. I mean, I cast some of these early on out of necessity, <laughs> like just didn't have a deep enough card pool and was you, experimenting like you with things. It in a starter. But even <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even then, I it was a disappointing then, right? Four mana two two that occasionally regenerates was just too. So underpowered that's the thing I'm then. curious about is how often, even in a limited environment, would this thing actually regenerate? Just a point of curiosity, not and not a very intense one. <laughs> um, well, so if you're talking about, are you asking in the context of today or back then? Well, suppose you were playing, you know, like the Silver Jubilee or whatever that was, right? And you open this and you put this in. <laughs> How often will this regenerate? I would Sh- argue that showcase. this would probably regenerate a fair amount. Yeah. I would argue that in that context, this would probably regenerate a fair amount. What's it would fair be amount? A decent Third card. of the time? Two-thirds because of the time? <laughs> Um, the thing is, is when you have this card in your deck and or in play, you are incentivized to navigate yourself into scenarios whereby it gains yeah, counters, true. right? That's and a good point. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of creature combat in, in alpha or limited edition, limited environment. I would argue that this card's actually pretty good. Yeah. It's not going to trump true trump cards like flyers, you know, your dragon whelps and your air elementals and stuff. But on the ground, yeah, I bet you could actually manage to get a handful, two to three regenerations out of this in a game. It's, it's not that tough. Makes sense to me. And it yeah also plays very well with banding. Oh yeah, <laughs> put all put this on the the yeah put put all yeah. the damage on this. I that's a good point. I it does strike me though that it's probably better on defense. The reasons you say so you have it set out there until you can get it to oh, regenerate yeah. and then. Because it's just too small. It's too small to be a threat on offense, but it it does uh-huh. sit out there long enough that if your opponent decides to attack the first time, you can block with something else. Let that something else die to get the regeneration counter on this, and then the next time you block, yep. you can block with this. This will survive. You know the. Um, yeah, that's the it exactly. Situation. All right. Anything else on scavenging nope. ghoul? Well, I'm sorry to say we said it was going to happen. At least I did, and here it is. <laughs> We're talking about Scrubland. <laughs> so you said it yourself, Steve. This is not the worst dual land. Like it's had some place uh, in, in competitive contexts. But speaking with some authority, as someone who has commissioned altars for all 10 of the unlimited dual lands and thought long and hard about what I wanted my alternatives to the arts on these to be, Scrubland is literally the only one of the whole set where I just came up with a different image. <laughs> that was probably a wise approach. <laughs> I just I just picked something else that I liked and said, hey, paint this on it, because there is just nothing going on here. I mean, imagine a boring Savannah. <laughs> well, we... <laughs> just, just... We, I mean, yeah, okay, there's a little bit of literal scrub, like yeah. what we were colloquially referred to as scrub there, but holy moly, is there well, nothing we, going on we here? reviewed planes... Right, and we said in the context of planes that the that the planes art C was pretty desolate. There wasn't a lot going on in there, and and 
Mm-hmm. Those were done by Jesper Meifers. Meifers. This also was done by Jesper. Mm-hmm. And I think this is pretty close to the <laughs> to the sea art of that, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, but it's even less interesting. There's like there's there's only one straight line going on in the horizon with a tiny what I guess it could be yeah. a, like a plateau off in the distance on the right. And there's just a little bit of super nondescript plant life in the foreground. But it's so nondescript <laughs> that you could even you could even look past it as maybe it's just discoloration on the ground. Like there's a couple of allusions to a stalk <laughs> somewhere you studied here this. and there. This is it's it's just really it's So it's this hopeless. is a case of of an artist being uh, losing sight of artistic vision in an attempt to be overly literal. Right? There's no artistic I think what's you're that? right. There's just no right. artistic license here. <laughs> In fact, it's the opposite. It's like a deliberate attempt to avoid artistic license, to be like hyper hyper literal. <laughs> to if if you, I, I'm no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> if you go on Wikipedia and search for well, if you, if you Google Scrubland and you look for Wiki, you're going to end up with Shrubland, <laughs> which I think is is what this is closely related to. If you scroll down the Wikipedia page for Shrubland to the fifth image. You basically see this, <laughs> a a gray-brown wash of color with a hazy blue horizon, and it has actually more interesting stuff going on than this magic art. Like, there's actually some <laughs> shrubs and some different coloration in the land, and there's actually, oh, there's a bird. There's actually a bird in here. It looks like a vulture. This scrubland, you're right, Steve, really could have used some artistic license, and I gotta be honest what is black about what is swamp about this there's nothing swamp it's a about dried this. yeah there's no this, water at all yeah there's there's nothing swamp here the swamp requires at least either moisture the lingering moisture or uh the plant life right the desiccated trees and neither of those things are here and so this is also i think an unfortunate reach from just from a flavor standpoint i don't think scrubland was the appropriate intersection of white and black yeah this is a and fail. it's also noteworthy that <laughs> a multiple levels. yeah it's also noteworthy that that all of the subsequent white black dual lands that we've seen since then have not focused on the the geologic or geographic elements of the land itself. Some other duels, uh, well, most of the other duels of of other types and other color combinations can fall back on some of the geologic or landscape or terrain aspects, the black-white ones never do anymore. They're always about what's happening in the land, like isolated chapel, right? Godless shrine. Well, that's a city context, but isolated chapel is a good example, right? That's not about the land. That's about what's going on on the land. Whereas, uh, a, what's a good example? Like a blue-white land, glacial, um, not glacial chasm, but glacial fortress, right? A blue-white land. Well, the... That's rooting the the thing in the geo- geologic phenomenon. The glaciers aren't geologic, but you, you get what's going on. You know what's going on on the land. The glacier is the focus, whereas black white lands just have a hard time being being rooted. You know in the what? Land. I don't think I ever noticed it until this moment. But mm-hmm. the the alpha dual lands. Sorry, let me restate that. But the limited edition dual lands are very much trying to replicate environs that exist on Earth, whereas. And Very much the so. Ice Age ones are kind of somewhat that in somewhat fantasy locales, which which is the first five the first example. five cycle of painlands, right? Yeah. Well, what's well, an example? So brushland or underground river is you know a real thing, 
but the Carplusen forest is not. The Darkar Waste, those are yes. fantasy contexts, Brushland being real. But when you get to the final, the rest of the cycle, out of, what was it, Apocalypse, that has the, the, the five painlands, painlands yeah. those are all fantasy contexts. Lenoir Caves of Coilus. Yes. Battlefield Forge, Shivan Reef, Yavamaya Coast, Lenoir Wastes. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that Ice Age split the difference and then they just said, you know what? <laughs> we're not going to go, we're not going to try and replicate a real world environment. We're just going to, you know, situate this <laughs> in a fantasy context clearly. Um, yeah. And I think in the case of Caves of Coilos, that was a good decision. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. My favorite from that whole 10 land super cycle, of course, is Sulphurous Springs with the <laughs> goblin bathing in it. The Foglio art. Yeah. 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 It's fantastic. <clears throat> Anything else on Scrubland? No. Steve? It's, I mean, out of the 10 dual lands, we're getting near the end of them. You know, the, mm-hmm. most of the dual lands are on the back set, half of the set. You know, the, the white black, the white green, the white red are the ones that were historically the least played, the least demanded. Um, yeah. desired least desired and well i think white black is the pinnacle of that even in the limited edition context because white and black were the two colors that were most well were two of the colors that were the least likely to splash yeah. right least synergistic and and the the knights yeah and the knights were formative to that right, two, right. the only two drops in the set that were double designated yes. and so you were incentivized to play yeah, monocolor I mean, white green even in limited edition as a set there's a lot of synergy there you know, you can play yes. with unholy strengths and giant growths and more mammoths and, you know, scrib sprites and, you know, put white and you can put white and green together fairly effectively with a lot of, a lot of synergy. Mm-hmm. Um, just doesn't really, white and black is just, it's hard, it's really hard to mesh those colors. <laughs> That's why you see white and black only in like crazy combo decks together, not, not, not really <laughs> in a lot of other decks. Trying to think where else I've seen white black, white black decks in the history of, of these formats. The one that stands out to me is Saber Bargain. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say uh, Academy the Rector deck. and Cabal the Therapy. Deck where, <laughs> yeah, where you rectored out a, a bargain and then you used Renounce to sackle your permanents and draw cards. In Legacy, yeah. I played for a hot minute the... Um, the uh, Oh, God, what was it? It's the... There's a, there's a, a one-drop creature that you can sacrifice it and gain life for all of the... Um, yeah, with, Children of Corliss. With Lich, and that was fun. I played that for a minute. Yeah, yeah. The Children of Corliss-Lich combo <laughs> is a good one. Well, and to to make a, a maybe a more contemporary point, Steve, you and I have played plenty of Esper decks in our days, various combinations. You know, Paradoxical yeah, Outcome maybe being the most recent. But they've always anchored in blue. <laughs> we, right, you, you never had a Scrubland in <laughs> <Right>. those decks. <laughs> yeah. All right, we don't need to rag on Scrubland any further. Let's talk about Scrib Sprites. Not much to say about the Scrib Sprites, of course. A single green mana summoned fairies for a 1-1 flyer, which was recapitulated almost immediately after this point as flying men in, in Arabian Nights, and I think correctly so. The Scrib Sprites has uh, ha- always held an interesting position in my eyes in terms of, I think, well, it's pretty clear that they were not in the right place in the color pie, and it has since shifted away, you know, from green having small flyers. <laughs> yeah, and and frankly, I'm glad it's here because this is such a sweet card, and it's played such an interesting kind of. It's never kind of been the center stage of any of the decks with it, but it's always played a, like a mm. significant secondary role. 
and lots of interesting decks. You know, the Argothian Pixies, I'm going to buff it up with some, you know, Giant Growth, Giant Growth, Berserk, you know, with a little bit of evasion to win the game. The art is phenomenal, too, and establishes green as this, you know, nature, the set of nature, but also gives it a little bit of flying. Um, And, you know, that carries over into Killer Bees and Legends, you know, as a flying... Help me out with something. Was there a, a, an established archetype of blue-green flying and buffing that, yeah. it, that is really that put up the strong results? I'm talking about so, this in, in Flying Men plus unstable, Giant Growth and Unstable yes. Mutation. It was, it was called the Granville Explosion deck. Now, when you say results, okay. I would say it was more notorious than sort of like a tournament world beater. It was, it was, a, <laughs> okay, it was it, it's hard to pin down tournament results from 1994 there are about a half dozen instances in which i've been able to do that but even then it's hard to verify sources there's a lot of you know people claiming that they've won all these tournaments they're it's not always they're not always sanctioned you know wizards didn't collect deck lists um but there was the granville explosion deck which did have appear to have a lot of these a lot of this effect and yes scripts rights was a part of that and scripts rights berserk too of course yeah yeah. And script sprites carried over also into some of the later, you know, the later versions of Stompy with Briar Shield and all that other or other sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, and th- there's no denying. I mean, it's just incredibly efficient and good at its job. I- incorrectly so, <laughs> I would posit for the color pie. But uh, I, even I, in my early Timmy days, was drawn to because oh, starting with revised, I was getting unstable mutations and script yes. sprites in my packs a lot. Then the first time I saw Flying Men which was, you know, a couple of months later, whatever, when I got exposed to a broader set of cards, I was like, oh, okay, all right, we're <laughs> on to something here. And so and so I jammed together the four Scribs, Brides, Floor, Splying, Flying Men, four Unstable Mutations, four Giant Growths. I didn't have Berserk for whatever reason because, well, I know the reason. It wasn't in Revised, of course. I hadn't picked any up. But I still put together those 16 cards plus some other cheap stuff, Counterspell and, I don't know, Unsummon. Yeah. And you know it was it was good. It was one of my earlier lessons, yeah, in tempo exactly. And you know, for me, it was kind of an exercise to see if I could make unstable mutation worth it, right? I because even though I wasn't good at the game, I was still decent at mathematics, and I could see, okay, if I hit for three and then two and then one, that's six. What if they're dead before my creature starts (laughs) getting smaller? (laughs) Never be part of a mathematical, you know, a deckless design to win as quickly as possible, but it will show up in real decks. I love seeing deck lists from Dave Firthbard, and he always posts these interesting old-school decks. He likes to play green. So a lot of his decks, I'd say an inordinate number of his decks, have script sprites. And I'm just scrolling over his Twitter, right, his his Twitter timeline, and like the last three posts with deck lists have script sprites in them. <laughs> so even... Nice. Now, are they all tempo well, kind of decks? Well, the one he posted most recently was he went 5-2 and two in an old-school event that had four script sprites and four Atogs and four Argothian Pixies in them. Um, it was, yeah, I would say this is a, this is a green, red, blue tempo deck. It doesn't have any, it has a little bit of counter magic, but it's mostly just blasts, you know, in terms of the counter magic. And then he played one that had, yeah. it looked like he got to play Homelands in it. Yeah, it's a Homelands expansion de- deck and it's got a bunch of script sprites and then looks like, is this, I know I can't quite see the detail enough, but it's a bunch of homelands fairies <laughs> in them with script sprites. The point is that <laughs> the, that script sprite is kind of the back the backbone of David Firth's 
old school repertoire, I would say. <laughs> he loves some script sprites. Nice. Well, to to go back to my earlier point about the the color pie, it's pretty clear that it, the the fairy creatures fit pretty strongly in green as as forest entities, right? But the the notion of a small flying creature has obviously transitioned over into blue and the 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 fairies and sprites a little bit with them. But in the early days of the game, you had these scrib sprites, and then there were kind of a raft of them at two mana, uh, two mana one one or one two flyers, fire sprites, willow fairy, uktabi fairy, moon fairy in or yeah moon sprite excuse me in uh, in portal. It's just that green kind of had a had a recurring theme of this one or two mana small flyer for a long time. Then insects started to creep in: emerald dragonfly, bayou dragonfly, then. There's another insect later on. I can't find it. Oh, th- then Zandit Swarm, famously. <laughs> Zandit Swarm. swarm. <laughs> I know, right? But as time goes by, what you see is that the green creatures, even at this small size and this low mana cost, transition to having reach, right? It took a while to happen, and it was overdue, I think. But then you get, what's a good example? Odyssey has Sky Shooter a 1-2 with reach that has an activated ability to destroy attacking creatures. Or green gets other things like treetop scout, which can't be blocked except by creatures with flying. So strange combinations of reach and flying and interaction. Green really got away from having these small flyers, and I think rightly so. The last time green got a legit one or two mana flying creature was, I guess, technically Uktabi Drake. Which is a which is like a flying savanna alliance with haste, but it also has echo three, so you can get it out early if you want to hit for two. But then echo three means it should be much. You should wait if you want to keep it around. The last best good green flyer was Scrib Ranger <laughs> from Time Spiral, which is obviously a direct homage to Scrib Sprites, and and there's a reason why the last time it happened was in Time Spiral, right? That was a big time callback. So well, R and D wised up. It, it took a it took a decade or more, but R and D finally wised up and realized that green was not supposed to have. Oh, this I effect. have no regrets for for placing it in green in limited edition, but I understand <laughs> your observations. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that the green, the top down part, is properly low mana cost, flying, and green. It's just they shouldn't be efficient beatdown creatures. They should be more like Birds of Paradise. They should have no power. Or they should have, I don't know, something like Defender or they can't deal damage or whatever, I don't know. But they should not be good aggressive creatures is, is really my primary point. All right. Uh, obviously, Amy Weber, this yes. art is fantastic. You already it, said well, I didn't understand. it. It is phenomenal. I really enjoy it's it. It's one of the most superlative pieces in the, in the set for her. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I love the sense of scale yeah. where these tiny creatures are on these berries. That's just fantastic. It's very Beautiful. geometric in a very satisfying way. It doesn't try to be yes. too realistic. You know, it's interesting. So the card has only ever been printed in paper with this art. But it was only printed up until, what is it, 4th or 5th edition? I can't... I'm just checking now. It was in summer, and it survived to 4th edition, yeah. And so 4th edition is the last paper... No, 5th edition is the last paper printing. But there is a really fascinating and beautiful Magic Online promo of Scrib Sprites for some reason with a Brian Snowdy art, which I think is interesting, an interesting callback, using Brian Snowdy, of this little fairy sitting on a tree branch with uh, what looks like a tiny like sparrow next to her. 
but the sparrow is like the same size as her, <laughs> which is hilarious. And she's wearing these wonderful crown of leaves and leaf clothing. Oh, it's just a really, really great art, which I think is a nice callback to Alpha in the sense that they used Brian Snowdy. And it's uh has a lot in common with the original Amy Weber art. If you if you aren't familiar with the Magic Online promo script sprites, go take a look. It's fantastic. All right. So from maximum efficiency to what I would argue is maximum <laughs> <Yeah>. inefficiency. <laughs> what a transition. We get Sea Serpent. <laughs> Five U. Summon Serpent. Um <laughs> we've already said as much. This has island home, right? Sea Serpent cannot attack unless opponent has islands in play. Sea Serpent is destroyed immediately if at any time controller has no islands in play. And it's a 5-5. Five, five. Yeah, that double, that double uh, conditionality. <laughs> double whammy, yeah. Uh, well, we've already talked about how this temporarily was called Island Home, uh, but we haven't really talked about how just lousy this card is. I never, I never, I tried to avoid terrible. casting this card. I would love costs. to see a world in which it didn't have those conditionalities. Right, you could just play this as a six mana five five. It would have been interesting to see how we would regard this card if it didn't have those. But that's sadly a universe, a simulation we don't live in. <laughs> <laughs> now, I like the fact that this card is basically the progenitor for basically all of the uh, basically all of the sea creatures um, that are not sentient sea creatures in Magic, right? This is the first. This is the progenitor to your leviathans and your all of the whales and Island all of the other sea creatures. Yeah, exactly. This is a part that I really find very satisfying about Sea Serpent. It's just a shame that it is so just incredibly unnoteworthy. God. Yeah, I have I have bad um I have bad associations with this card, especially the revised copy <laughs> so that I just had them. stacks on and, and hated it. <laughs> uh, I think there's more trauma than enjoyment from some of these cards, which suggests <laughs> that there were some big mistakes in design, right, to give us cards like this. Yeah. I mean, it's not even as if, in, at least in the case of Islandfish Jasconius, we can say, wow, those are some impressive stats. And there's a, it's cool. I mean, it's cool art in both cases, but man... Yeah, is it Island Fish? Is at least has a lot of cool novelty yeah. mechanically. <laughs> this card is just it all really downside. <laughs> this is another art, and I don't want to belabor this point. I like this art genuinely. I do. It's Jeff Mangus, yeah, and it's a really um, active art. There's, it's got a great composition. This is another art that really looks way better in Black Border. The Black Border serves to highlight. The, for one, the, the sea serpent itself, it serves to highlight the creature because the creature stands out as having a lighter color against the, the sea. And the black border also stands, serves to highlight the splash of wave that's, that's going over the ship, right. which you must believe has, has been caused or, you know, by the serpent itself. Now, there, um, it's a little ambiguous to me if this, well, that splash of wave is actually the tail of the creature or not because right. it's, it, the shading is hard to tell, but I think it's meant to be, the uh, water covering the 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 yeah the the tail of the creature about to capsize this boat that comes much through stronger in a blackboard yeah. version. No, it's kind of classic piece of Jeff Mingus art. Uh, unfortunately, the the quality yeah. of the card kind of in my eyes diminishes the quality of the the regard for the art. Um, I don't know if this is deliberate, and some people say it's not deliberate. But if you line up this card with Water Elemental, have Water Elemental on the right, juxtapose them and put Water Elemental on the right. They do do appear mm-hmm. to be part of one continuous piece of art. 
Oh, that's interesting. Is, do you think it's so much so that the boats in both pictures are meant to be the same boat? Well, that's the thing, is the placement of it the boat seem does like make it. it seem like they are, but... The scale is different. That's why there's some boats, dispute though. over one's a, it. But if one's you a line sailboat. it up, they look pretty yeah. much like... They line up very nicely. I'll say that. They definitely look like they're taking place on the same day and in the same water. Yeah. <laughs> that much is clear. <laughs> Yeah, I like the comment you made about how the quality of this card really drags down the appreciation of the art by association. One of the things I like to do is to use Scryfall to just look at random magic arts out out of context because it's just inevitable that we as magic players calibrate our appreciation of the art by how how good its associated (laughs) card is. And there are so many cards that have just incredible art that just go by the wayside because they're kind of draft commons or whatever. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Sedge Troll. Now, this card is, in my opinion, subtle in a way that it shouldn't have (laughs) been for me as a player, but I want to talk about that in a second. Sedge Troll is (laughs) 2R, summon troll. Troll gains plus one, plus one if controller has any swamps in play, and then it has B colon regenerates, and it's a 2-2. Mechanically, there's a lot going on here. Visually, there's a lot going on. I don't even really know where to begin. This card, <laughs> well, I have a, 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 a moderately interesting history with this card, but uh, that's not the point So I'd like to here. begin by reminding everyone that this is one of the five top-down cards that was inserted at the end. So this is the one in red. And when you say at well, the end, what do you mean? This is the, the cycle of five cards that were top-down that I think were inserted towards the last minute. You know, uh, okay. stasis. And that's um between yeah, gamma and stasis, alpha. Stasis, uh, birds of paradise, sedge troll, word of command was the fourth one. Uh, the fifth one was okay. um oh it was um oh island sanctuary was the fifth yeah island sanctuary. So so this card came in without presumably a lot of testing. The art is amazing on it in terms of a piece of art. Uh, the this card is also a top ten card from alpha. Probably the most notorious use of this card, and I'm sure you've seen this happen before, Kevin, is with Navinral's disc, mm-hmm. the pure and control decks. It'll, it'll sit on defense, yeah. and it's hyper-synergistic because the troll can just sit on defense, clog up the ground, right? And then once the opponent's overcommitted, lay the disc, untap the disc, blow up the disc, and then counterspells clean up the rest. Um, yeah, there's some hilarious type 1 community stories about this card like randomizer with the ict the invincible counter troll you know the mm-hmm. <laughs> which was a deck in case our audience doesn't oscar know. tan's nemesis <laughs> but this is also the the <laughs> look this grixis version of this deck of of counter troll is it's called disco troll in old school it's one of the best it's one of the top tier the of the top three top tier decks you know blue blue red counter burn disco troll and the deck, it, those are the top three decks, generally. You know, there are some other things mm-hmm. that are pretty good, like, um, you know, Skies, things like that. But but this is one of the better decks in, in old school 94, built around this card. It's a very formidable card. And I my moderately interesting anecdote about that is simply that this is a card... I, I opened one of these and revised somewhat early in my opening packs days. And completely didn't understand it. I looked at it and thought, well, that's weird. 
I'm not going to have black mana in my red deck. <laughs> and so I immediately, I mean, it's not like I was immune to building two-color decks. I just kind of looked at it, and it was impervious to its power and its synergy. And so it just kind of went into my box for years and years, and then I came back to it much later as a player and thought, why was I not playing with this? It's so powerful. It's so efficient at such a good rate. And so I have a strange retroactive appreciation for this card, even though I didn't play it as a kid. I never got, I was never in a place in my magic playing career where I had a deck or was playing in a context where this was the right thing to play and I understood that it was the right thing to play. <laughs> so I kind of missed out on all my times getting to actually uh, enjoy its, its value and its power. But I have a strong appreciation you know, in hindsight. As you were speaking about that, I think <laughs> it's interesting that there's a narrow band where this card really hits peak power. And that band is mm-hmm. not in limited edition. Because to really maximize the power of this card, it really is in a control deck. And in a control deck, you basically need a certain number of lands in order to build a consistent mana base. That's hard to do in lim- mm-hmm. just in limited edition, especially in limited edition alpha, because you don't have Volcanic Island. <laughs> and you, and you, right. And your, your absolute best control color in blue is really hard to get right. access to in Grixis. And this, it's City of Brass is of limited use in this context because you need swamps. So mm-hmm. so this card is kind of hard to build around and you really need it to be Grixis, right? Cuz you need you need the red to cast yeah. it, you need the black to regenerate, and you need the blue the blue for the counter magic and power. So, I mean, I think in all the versions of this deck and all the times that I can think of, it's been in Grixis. And so there's a limited window for that, right? Where you can have enough mana consistency yep. in order to do that. I can't remember whether ICT was pre-Fetchlands, but I think it probably was. <laughs> yeah. It must have been. Yes, it was. <laughs> that deck wasn't a real deck, but this guy was the biggest troll in the Type One community, <laughs> and he it was it was a joke. And clearly, in retrospect, it was kind of a, a, a punny joke because he was saying that his troll deck yeah. was the best deck in Magic, right? And he would constantly, yeah. you know, uh, claim to uh, to Oscar Tan to like Oscar Tan's great annoyance that, that his deck always was beating the deck. And I think I even met that guy <laughs> a couple of times at some events, Kevin. You probably did as well. Yeah, I never did. Uh, if I did, I don't remember. <laughs> the randomizer. But um yeah. But yes, it in old school 95, I, I, and sorry, in old school 94 this thing is a menace, a legitimate menace. But it's hard in just black red, it's really hard to get the maximum maximal value because you don't really, I mean, black and red is such an aggressive combo of colors with lightning bolts, you know, rituals. You're not going to mm-hmm. want to be putting the Venerals discs in your black-red deck very often. Now, that's, ex- there's ex- exceptions, of course, like with Necropotence and so on. But that's the exception, sure, not sure. the rule. I feel like we're burying the lead a little bit on this card, Steve. This is the only card in Alpha that legitimately rewards you for playing a different color. Interesting. Mechanically. Well, it's Kurt Ape. And it's, it's the, the it's the precursor yeah. to it's the precursor to gold cards. It's the precursor to Kurt Ape, and it that makes it wholly unique in the limited edition context. That's a great point. I mean, it is also fairly clear to me, and this is a rare too. Um, it is fairly clear to mm-hmm. me that that the designers of Five Magic's limited edition wanted people to play multiple colors. They didn't want you to be stuck in a single. There's a there's a reason there's nine dual land in the <laughs> yeah. first thing. <laughs> yeah, and this is probably the best example of that, right? You get it's it's a gray yeah. ogre, which isn't terrible, you know, by itself. 
but with black, this be- <laughs> no, it's fine. Gray ogres yeah, on rape. But with, in, <laughs> with black, this becomes one of the best creatures in the set. Yeah, well, and it doesn't help that for the reasons we already stated with respect to Scrubland, that black does not play well with others in the limited edition context, right? Nightmare, pestilence, drain life. There's a reason why they changed sacrifice to burnt offering in Ice Age, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, of all the colors, if you were to look at all the colors in limited edition and say, what's the one that I is the easiest to pair with? Black would probably be last on that point. list. Yeah. And so it serves to mitigate the power of this card in the limited edition context. And it's partly for that reason that this card didn't get reprinted. Like it's an alpha beta unlimited revised. It, it was, and it's one of those cards that was on the summer list, but never made it to fourth edition. Hasn't been reprinted ever again. I want to draw an aesthetic point here. And it's one that our audience is just going to kind of have to take my word for. If you're listening to this and you have access to your phone or computer, go on Scryfall and search for Sedge Troll. And then click on the link that says show all the unique printings, right? View all prints. <laughs> this card is a hilarious exercise in <laughs> aesthetics because it's been printed five times in paper. Uh, None of them you know, are In like. English. None of them and are a, like. And then a couple of times online. If you were to look at the seven printings of this card, they are each, they look, every one of them looks like a different they magic really card. They really do. And it is so Uncanny we've, we've already how they explained to do that. multiple times, or stated rather, that in instances in which they retemplated the cards from Alpha to Beta, the Beta art is much darker, and also by mm-hmm. definition has different text. So the the Alpha text, it, it the la, the regeneration comes last, and Beta the regeneration comes first. So the Beta much more resembles, I think the well. I don't know what the template. It's back to being last again in the, in right, the modern, exactly. modern oracle printing, last. unfortunately. So yeah. it, it alternates. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the the coloration, the um, I don't know how you describe it, but but the the tinting is really stark through them all. I mean, yeah. So beta is darker than alpha. Unlimited, the white border creates a very different accent. It makes it almost seem darker than beta in some sense. Then. Revised does, gets that yeah. washed out feeling, and then you get that. Then it's bright all of a sudden with summer, and you get the the central uh-huh. the color of the skin becomes very greenish, gangrenous. That's not really yeah. you don't. That's it's really the most green since Alpha. Absolutely, it yeah. It really the green is dialed up. All the saturations dialed up to max in summer, which is one of summer's characteristics, but not in a dark way, in a bright way. And so then you suddenly notice, oh, this thing's been green all along. It's just that when you look at the revised one, the revised one looks like a, a Jeff Mangus um, color scheme, right? Almost monochromatic. <laughs> and you look back at the beta one, and yeah, there's some hints of green, but wow, it is just incredible to me how much different every printing of this card looks. If you were to sleeve up four different printings, put them next to each other, I would think you were, I would genuinely think you might have different cards. Like, I'd have to do a double take to realize that you actually had right. four such trolls. <laughs> <laughs> That's so incredible. So let's move on. I mean, we're really hitting the, the sweet hitters. spot here for creatures. Yeah, the next the next couple of creatures are just, we've said it once, we'll say it again. This is really where it's at in Alpha. So first up, we have Sanger Vampire. What can be said about Sanger Vampire that hasn't been said before? Uh, three black black, summon vampire, flying. 
Vampire gets plus one, plus one counter each time a creature dies during a turn in which Vampire damaged it. Unless the dead creature is regenerated, which is, it's a 4-4. Four, four. The phrase, unless the dead creature is regenerated, is a hilarious one. Um, I mean, obviously, this is one of the, the, the triptych of, of amazing, uncommon 5-mana 4-4 four, four flyers, and the art is just off the hook in terms of iconic. And, Un- totally and unforgettable. And the selection of Ansonmatics for this piece was a brilliant turn. The thing, the thing that's mm-hmm. so strange about the art, so first of all, there has become well let me just say this in terms of flavor that in homelands you get a whole kind of coterie <laughs> the whole family of senjir elaborates on this yeah. you know this name uh the surname whatever it is um but in terms of the specific art so first of all the face here extremely evocative of nosferatu right the, the very um, much uh, weimar era uh fw marnau film right that Gives you a visual image of Dracula, you know, in in, the, in that film was supposed to be based on Dracula, very much looks like that. And then in the seventies, you know, there was a, another movie that had the same kind of imagery. And then you know, anyway, that so it looks very much like that. But to you get a headshot, you don't really see much of the body, but you have this very strange, so some very str- strange things going on. First of all, to just in front mm-hmm. of in a profile view in front of the head of the vampire, which has, by the way, this kind of like ivory, yellow ivory skin color, not pale alabaster, but very, you know, almost golden yellow hue. This out-of-body network of capillaries and veins and arteries. Just Just free-floating in space, you know, as, (laughs) you know, just... And then the smear of blood on the face of the vampire... You know, but two smears actually, several smears, and then the tongue kind of extended as if it's reaching out to lick the blood coming out of the network of veins. I have to say that if you were going to, when when Jesper made this assignment, I I imagine that he was quite struck when he got this back. <laughs> right, this piece, this is not <laughs> what he expected, but the uh, the strangeness of it, the starkness of the profile view of the face, the and the like. Oddness of this network of of veins makes this card just so indelible as a piece of art that it's just you can't forget it. And I think it actually makes the card feel stronger than it actually is in terms of power and tough. You know, like this card doesn't really get, gain power very often, very rarely. Like, yeah. luckily, yeah, you'd be lucky if it happens more than one out of twenty times. <laughs> There's very few creatures in the limited edition context that can that would block this yeah. and die, or that would attack into it and allow you to block. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Attack into it. So, so it's not. It does have ability, but the ability is this is functionally basically just a four-four flyer for five. But it's the art that makes it just so darn cool and attractive as a as a I playable think card. I agree with everything you said, and in addition, I think the fact that this figure has no noticeable clothing right. on makes it even a little more uncomfortable because yeah. <laughs> there's some implication of the context by the fact that there's no noticeable clothing on the shoulders or neck. Yeah. So what's going on here? What is this? <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. I mean, this person could be free floating in space, you know, with wings and just like flying around, you know, they could be, it's just right. really hard to know what's going on. You have no sense <laughs> of it. It's fantastic. So fantastic. 
Yeah, it's it's like almost waxy skin color, but clearly, you know, vampirism, however you define it, it's clearly the case. It's just so odd and strange and alluring. It's just, you can't, you, there's so many small oddities to this card. Accumulatively, it just becomes, as I said, an indelible image. You just can't forget it once you've seen it. Yeah. But but presumably well, the card mechanically the case, presumably you know this is not this is not a weakling figure this is a four four flyer which means that this card a oh, yeah. flies so there's some implication or inference that this is a creature with wings right secondly that this is a muscular you know powerful creature not some sort of like flimsy or at least strong in a supernatural sense image yeah absolutely. Speaking of strength, this card sets up a couple of things mechanically. It's the only vampire in Magic until Ice Age. The second vampire is Kravikin Vampire. Sanger sets up a few things, maybe tacitly and maybe purposefully. One is size. Four, a 5-mana four, 4-4 four flyer is just much bigger than any other humanoid in Limited Edition. Right? Keep in mind, this is a set of Banalish Hero, White Knight... Uh, Mesa Pegasus. Yeah. Like, think about this. Think about this in context. You're comparing this thing to an angel, a djinn, a dragon, and an elemental. Like, this is just a vampire. You, th- I mean, we're, we should be meant to believe that this used to be a human and, and got bit by some other vampire and became a 4-4 flyer. I mean, that's mechanically sets vampires into some rarefied air. And sure enough, the first, I don't know, couple dozen vampires we ever got in magic were big creatures. The first, I'm just going to read off some mana costs. Five, eight, four, five, seven, five, five, four, six, five, six, eight. I mean, this goes on for years. <laughs> Vampires were huge creatures all the way for years until Child of Night in M10. I assume you're not Child counting of Vampire Night is the bats, first. But <laughs> okay. I, well, I'm not. I'm not counting Vampire Bats. Um, well, for one, they're not vampires anymore. Wow. They, they, they do not have the type vampire. Uh but you're right, vampire bats. Uh, Child of Night was a a, a wave. A, a Child of Night was a signpost, a two mana vampire, and this is M10 we're talking about here, right? So 17 years later, <laughs> that was a turning point. After Child of Night happened, then we got Vampire Aristocrat at three, Bloodseeker at two, Bloodgast, Gatekeeper of Malakir. Vampires quickly transitioned into the size of efficient, small, aggressive creatures to go with a couple of signpost big ones like the Legends, Kalitas, Bloodsheath of Get, Butcher of Malakir, Anawan, the Ruined Sage. So the vampires kind of diverged into these are efficient, uh, sometimes disruptive creatures, and the Legends are the big ones that are the, the tent poles that are huge. And so it's noteworthy that Singer really f- f- blazed that trail. Also, mechanically, the the element of growing based on a creature's death, right? That was a big feature of all the oh. early vampires. Uh, you know, Baron Singer is just a, a bigger Singer <laughs> vampire, right? Eight mana, five five that gets plus two Cost instead of mana? plus one. Right? I've forgotten that. He, yeah, Baron Singer is way overcosted. <laughs> so then for for years they did all these variations on what it meant to feed off of others after homelands there was a ravenous vampire in, in mirage for example during your upkeep sack a non-artifact creature and put a plus one plus one counter on ravenous vampire or tap it 
obviously there's some overlap with um lord of the pit there but you see what i'm getting at is they they monkeyed with different variations of vampires feeding off of yeah. other creatures to to gain their strength and that was definitely the pattern for but many, they, many but, years but the point is that they of started late, out strong in the first place that's right they did uh, of late it was innistrad innistrad finally took the plunge and said you know what vampires aren't just black vampires are creatures of passion and a fascination with blood they also overlap with red and so it was an innistrad block that we got a whole a whole raft of red vampires and now vampires are basically shared in the innistrad context they remain mostly red and so whenever we revisit innistrad we get a bunch of red vampires but then when you get <laughs> when you get into Ixalan block they suddenly took another turn and made vampires white and then we got into the realm of vampires being not just flavorfully evil but creatures that were kind of afflicted and they had things like life links so that speaks to their physical condition but they're not feeding off of others anymore they're they're trying to have a society and be and be not governed by passion and or death <laughs> and so you see a bunch of white vampires in ixalan so vampires have is kind of spread over the whole mardu spectrum and in this day and age now it kind of depends on context in terms of which plane you're at as to the nature of the vampires and their colors by association wow yeah um, it's interesting they've, they've really come a long way a couple of other things i just wanted to point out about the art one is so thank you for the history of <laughs> vampires and magic it's really interesting um I wonder, by the way, Anson Maddox had a lot of kind of content in early issues of The Duelist. I wonder if there's a, a an elaboration on this vision that would give us more of a sense of what's happening in this art. Um, oh, that's interesting. That would be really yeah. cool if there was. The other thing, though, Kevin, is that I think one of the reasons this card is so cool is because it looks great in both Black Border and White Border. This is one of those cards that even in the revised edition – the art is still just about as powerful. It's just different, you know, but... I agree. I agree. It highlights different elements of the, the highlights and the shadows, but it does work yeah. in both cases. That's very important because most players encounter these things first with, uh, as you put it, you know, in revised. As, you know, so that so that becomes very yeah. important. It's a shame. So Sanger Vampire has had a strange reprint history. ABU... In revised summer and fourth edition with that Anson Maddox art, but then it took it took a break. Um, keep in mind it was an uncommon in all those printings. The next printing, this is a really strange and unique pattern. The next printing was in Torment as a rare. <laughs> I remember this with new art by Kev Walker. This new art, which positions the vampire as kind of an aristocrat, right? It's wearing a suit with a high collar, right? Very interview with the vampire era. Torment is noteworthy for those who may not remember or know that Torment was a set that had more black cards than any other color. It was an experiment by R&D and one they've never repeated, really, at least not in this kind of way, where it, was, it had way more black cards than any other set, which is part of the reason why Sanger Vampire was brought back. You know, they wanted an iconic black card. Well, then what that started was a little bit of a tradition of reintroducing Sanger into core sets, ninth, 10th. Uh, 12th and 14th the latter two uh back to uncommon so I, for, I forgot to say but it was a rare in 9th and 10th which in my opinion is a mistake i think it was a little bit of an overshoot in terms of nostalgia and definitely an overshoot in terms of power then the card was properly returned to an uncommon in 12 and 14 and then well those are the last the last non-reprint basically uh printings it's in mystery boosters and 
jumpstart as well for flavor reasons. The Kev Walker art is, in my opinion, fantastic. Is that Absolutely the one? Love it. And if we've is that never the one had, where it's kind of like he's reaching out, the vampire is reaching out. His his clawed, yeah. big clawed hand is in the foreground holding something. I can't quite. It's bloody. I can't quite make it out. But um, if we'd never had the Anson Maddox art, this would have been an amazing piece that would have been if just as iconic, if not more. It's so it's, dramatic. I think that that piece is actually too stark for me. It's like too intense. Whereas the Anson, the Anson <laughs> Maddox piece, it's very yeah, the Anson Maddox piece has a lot of enigmas about it that makes it subtle in some ways. Well, it's hard to compare yeah, the two so because it, there's, you're not wrong. The Kev Walker piece is incredibly intense in a way that the Antimatic piece is not. Uh, but at the same time, my point is simply they're both fantastic. There's not a lot of re- uh, replacement arts, so to speak, for an alpha art that I would loud this much. But I really do like that Kev Walker art. By also. the way, while we were speaking, I just verified this. Anson Maddox was interviewed in the first issue of The Duelist. He had a piece in there okay. called uh, called The Art of Anson Maddox. And I'm... Well, in, in conclusion, Steve, I want to point to the, the Gamma version of this card, which is effectively identical, but the language is hilarious. It has all the same numbers and stats, but it says it says flies, and whenever a vampire kills or helps kill a creature, put a counter on it representing plus one, plus one. <laughs> I like the notion of yeah. helping to kill a creature. <laughs> Anything else on Sanger, Steve? Uh, they put this card in Jumpstart, which is interesting. Yeah, it uh, is pretty cool. It's got pretty, I mean, not surprisingly, it's got pretty good ratings. The players and Gatherer like it. It has like basically a 4-2 over all these, uh, in the revised even. Four two, even It's almost a 4-3 rating in revised. No surprise there. Well, a lot of things that we would say about uh, <laughs> the mechanics of Sanger Vampire also apply to this next card, and that's Sarah Angel, right? Two of a kind, Sanger and Sarah. Sarah, of course, is three WW Summon Angel flying, and in the alpha parlance, it says uh, does not tap when attacking, and she is a 4-4. What can be said about Sarah Angel that has not already been said, both in this show and in our whole culture? <laughs> this card has become emblematic for so many parts well, of Magic. Well, the first thing to say is that it's the first in the long line of what we would call control finishers. Right, Sarah Angel to Morphling yeah. to Psychotog to you know all the to Darksteel Colossus to Monastery Mentor, you know that that this is the first in that lineage, right? And it really, in some in some sense, the most important creature from Alpha. In some sense, I'm not saying it's the best creature in Alpha, sure. but you know there's a reason it was selected. The other, the thing that it does that Morphling does and other things do is that it plays both offense and defense, and that's really the critical component. Is that you can play, you can deploy it, and it's immediately useful, and you can continue to attack and protect yourself at the same time. And so that simple wording does not tap to attack. <laughs> it's so simple, but it has such profound strategic implication or tactical implication, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, really amazing. I remember when I saw Morphling the first time, Kevin, I was like, because I had always been endeared of Sarah Angel. And then to see Morphling was like, my God, they built the deep spawn ability onto it. They gave it untapping. They gave it the ability to scale up and down power and toughness to become a 5-6 with damage on the stack. Just 
I was like, my God, is Sarah Angel outclassed? And it's blue on top of that. But Sarah Angel will always have a special place in my heart. You know, what's interesting is, as much as I played it back in the day, I really haven't played it much, barely at all, in fact, in old school environments. And I've been playing old school since 2014. <laughs> you know, I just haven't got my <laughs> my Alpha and Beta Sarahs just haven't gotten very much use because I don't play the deck and I don't really play white much in, in Alpha League. And I don't play um, much white in, in 95 either. Maybe someday. Yeah. But Sarah Angel is the first in that long line. And and it also helps, by the way, that you have, I you know, Douglas Schuler with iconic art here, much like Sarah. I mean, much like Sinjur. Naturally, naturally. I mean, a lot has been made of this particular art over the years. Um, it's obviously the, the only angel in limited edition. And and it's it's just has such a powerful impact in my experience on everyone who sees it, right? different people take different things away from the sarah angel but it's noteworthy that the angel was kind of a revered creature type in magic for a little bit of time like we started to get angels and vampires and kind of a similar clip but you the the funny thing is is that the second angel ever printed in magic no is a fallen angel (laughs) yeah that's the second angel. There are two angels in Legends. One is Fallen Angel. The other is Gabriel Angelfire. Ah. A legend. It's green-white for some reason. <laughs> uh, obviously, most of those legends were top-down designs for different reasons. But you hit upon the first next angel that was really in the same class as Sarah Angel, a mono-white angel, and it was Seraph in Ice Age. Yeah. Interesting. Angels had some similar characteristics to vampires for the reasons I've observed in vis-a-vis size and mechanics. Like they all fly. Oh, I don't know what percentage of them, but it's close to a hundred percent of angels fly. Um, some of, uh, there are some cards that were retconned to be angels, like say sustaining spirit from uh, uh, alliances, which is some in guardian in its original printing, but it's very clearly an angel with angel wings. That's an angel that's small and doesn't fly. But in general, the pattern for size and mechanics held even more strongly for angels than it did for vampires in that they're all sizable creatures, mostly five mana. There's some smaller ones, but the smallest angels for years were four mana and they all fly and they tend to have combat abilities. Sarah Angel really set the stage differentiating from vampires, which tend to have creature interactive abilities, right? When it kills something, you could sacrifice something, blah, blah, blah. Angels just tend to be good at combat. Vigilance is big. First strike, protection. There's a whole cycle in the saga block that has protection, right? They tended not to have activated abilities for many years, but then later on they got more interesting. It's also noteworthy that angels, while centrally in white, also spread to other colors. In fact, every other color in a way that vampires vampires, rarely do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the second angel, the third angel, arguably, is Gabriel Angelfire in green. It was only a couple sets later that we got Guiding Spirit in blue-white, Selenia, famously famous character from the the Weatherlight Saga in in white black, and uh, Radiant. Do you remember we played Oath of um, Angels, Me Deck Angels, <laughs> with uh? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, our Oath deck had a Chroma, and in the sideboard platinum. it had a uh, uh, pr- pr- iridescent. Pristine. No, pristine. The one that has protection from all colors yeah, when it's on tap. Right. It was pristine, and I think did we have a yeah. platinum angel in there? Or we did not. I think some yeah. derivations did when we were going up against combo decks. We did, but that didn't make the cut so, for our SCV so, list. So interesting uh, that Angel was quickly went into other colors. But 
Here's the thing that's, struck, that's striking me as we're, as we're speaking about, you know, we talked about this in the context of Scavenging Ghoul. You have basically roughly 300 game pieces for limited edition. And there's so much ground to cover in terms of fantasy themes, fantasy concepts, fantasy tropes, fantasy characters. I mean, mm-hmm. Kevin, there's only one angel and one vampire in limited edition. There's only one <laughs> yep. ghoul, right? There's only one, uh, is there only one elf? Um, there's one. I think there. I think we retconned in a few more elves. I mean, what's more kind of like fantasy than a unicorn? Yeah. Right. There's the pearled unicorn, and that's you know. So there, there's just too much ground to cover. Let's say that you know, I I don't know what percentage of this of the of limited edition is our creatures. Probably twenty percent, maybe. I don't know. It's gotta be more than that. I mean, I know it's it's spell and enchantment heavy, but it's gotta be more than twenty. I don't know. Well, well, I don't ten, know the answer. Well, yeah, I can tell you the answer. Ten percent would <laughs> Sorry, be thirty. Twenty percent would be sixty creatures. Tell tell me what it is. There okay. are ninety. There so are ninety-two it's creatures. About thirty percent of the set is creatures. That's ninety. That's in ninety cards. That's a lot of ground to cover. Once you. Well, it is, and and a lot of that ground is taken up by mundane exactly. stuff like walls. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of elementals too, right? You take a wall and you take out elemental. Let me let me just do that real quick. I'm I'm curious to see what that number is, right? So creatures, there's 92 in total, but when you take out wall and you take out uh, elemental, you're down oh, to just 78. Yeah, we've <laughs> lamented the the not the absence, but the insufficiency of merfolk and orcs and goblins. Right? There just aren't enough. Everything, Everything is, is spread thin. Right. There's nothing that you have a lot of in alpha except for auras and yeah, walls. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's striking. <laughs> one angel, one unicorn. Yeah, I mean, I guess I yeah, guess it's hard absolutely. to iterate unicorn. To answer your question about elves, there's only two: Lanowar elves right, and Elvish two, archers. Uh, two elves. I misspoke earlier. Yeah. Um, one treefold. <laughs> one gargoyle. Right? Yeah, you're completely right. And it's something we're going to get to when we get to our overall um, our summation, right, of the set. But the set is a fascinating exercise in breadth right. and depth. Um, but getting it back to Sarah Angel, I just wanted to talk just one more moment about the lineage of angels. Angels have not dipped down into lower mana costs to the degree that vampires have. There are 176 angels in magic, unique angels at the moment. And when you look at those that are CMC, let's say less than four, there's only 14. Wow. 14 out of 176 are smaller than four drops. And a few of those are ones that were not originally angels. Sustaining Spirit, Angelic Page, which is ironic, and Angelic Courier from Saga Block. Both those cards with Angelic in the title were not angels. They were spirits, which is interesting. So if you take those things out of the equation, there's you know, the Watsis only ever printed 11 cards as angels that were smaller than four, yeah. four mana. Well. <laughs> You know, That's for the 1990s, noteworthy. it took a while. It took a long while before wizards started ramping up power and toughness and efficiency and power and toughness to mana costs. I mean, it really took a remarkably right. long time. Right. That's why Arabian Nights had ridiculous staying power in Magic is because you just couldn't beat the power and toughness efficiency <laughs> of Arabian Nights until, God, probably well past Invasion, honestly. That's why Serendip Afrid is such a staple yeah. of old school. Um. But Sarah Angel was still, I mean, so Ninth Edition came in and Sarah Angel was basically useless in that time. But that was probably, what, Ninth Edition probably came, so if Sixth Edition is 98, and then Eighth Edition comes out around Invasion, Ninth Edition is probably, okay, so like 2001, 2002. 
that's when things begin to turn, right? You get like the you, yeah. there was a spate of really efficient spells that were printed around madness, around onslaught and odyssey block, when they begin to become more aggressive in terms of power and toughness, and you can see SR Angel being outmoded. But it's the kind of card that was, I mean, seen play for a long time, is my recollection. Even until like 1998, people were still playing Sarah Angel until until really until Saga. Yeah, and the history of printing of Sarah Angel follows kind of a similar path to Sanger Vampire, ironically, which there's no surprise. I mean, they're reviewed coincidentally in a lot of ways in terms of their place in their the game. Pairings. Sarah was only printed, yeah, with her original art until fourth edition. Then there was a break, and she was brought back as a rare in seventh, eighth. 9th, 10th, M10, and then, no, sorry, between 10th and M10, she was uh, demoted back to Uncommon, and then in 11, 12, 13, 14, and then only reprint since, since then. So M14 is the last time Sarah Angel was really in a set, and that wasn't just a reprint set. The So she outlived um, Sanger yeah. Vampire by a little bit, but followed a similar trajectory, taking a lot of time off and then coming back as a rare and then getting put back into the uncommon slot. Right. In, in 8th, when they brought her back, they wanted to make her special, not just a mere uncommon. Yes. That seventh, was 7th, yeah. actually. 7th. So, one of when the things... I, well, I want to talk a little bit more about what it's like to play with this card, in case you haven't. Um, okay. But the other thing, you know, back in old school, and I don't mean in old school, contemporary old school, I mean back in the day. But the other thing, just to note, Kevin, is that <laughs> um, in terms of the composition of the art, Although off-center by a significant degree, your gaze drifts very quickly to the sword. That that, that this is an image mm-hmm. of power. That she does. It's unclear whether her mm-hmm. eyes are closed or open, but the the kind of the focal point of part of the focal point of the art is draw is drawing power to her, drawing attention to her power. That she is a this is a powerful creature. This is not you know this isn't someone's you know and like in Paradise Lost was it. Um, the angel, uh, right. Michael or whatever, you know, uh, sitting down talking with Adam and Eve. This is a this is a creature of great power and fierceness <laughs> and battle testedness and battle worthiness. So, what's it like yeah. playing with this card? Back in the day, it just massively outclasses everything, you know. And it's it's the the weird thing about it though is that unlike with the monastery mentor, you just throw it out there and win with tempo. You really wouldn't deploy this unless you had basically absolute control over the game. And that usually meant a moat, a disrupting scepter in play at a minimum. <laughs> you know, a disrupting scepter <laughs> to clear the opponent's hand. Because with just two Sarahs, right. you had enough wiggle room that you could sacrifice one, but you also didn't want to be in a position where you could risk decking and not being able to win. The other thing about Sarah Angel sure. is that... Um, what can I say? Uh, oh, yeah, I remember. The, the other thing is there was this thing known as the Angel Gambit. Which is every, every occasionally <laughs> the deck the deck player if they had Lotus and Sarah Angel would would throw out the Angel in turn one because there was a, a decent chance that you could race whatever your opponent was about to do and that was sometimes considered a you know an actionable line of play um, but in general Sarah Angel had a lot of interesting interactions so you know the the main competitors the main things it would face would be Hypnotic Spectre in which it clearly would win. Uh, Jade Statue, which it clearly wins. Juggernaut, which it clearly trades. And then the problematic matchup on the board is Juzim Jin. That you can't deal with yeah. the Juzim with the Sarah. You have to plow the plow or otherwise 
moat the Jusum. That's really the goal is to moat the Jusums. And then the Jusums are working against their owner. Um, Can you help me understand uh, what role Mishra's Factory played yeah. in the early original so it's iterations of the deck? That you mentioned that. Mishra's Factory had basically never, did not see any play in the early versions of the deck for a very simple reason. Back in the day, you could not <laughs> activate and then pump Mishra's Factory in combat like you can now. Um, mm-hmm. And all. So you could not block a, a Black Knight yeah, and survive. Just, it wasn't possible. The other thing, the other thing about Mishra's Factory is that Mishra's Factory, the main piece of defense in the deck was Moat. Um, whereas in contemporary old school, the main versions of the deck don't use Sarah. They use the Abyss and Factory for obvious reasons because Factory mm-hmm. is massively overpowered compared to what it was back in the day. And, uh, and therefore the Abyss you know, is correspondingly superior. Use the abyss to clear out everything in play, and then you know win with with factories. And also, factory is just in some sense better defensively, right? Um, you know, it clogs up sure. the ground faster. You don't need you only need like two to win, so you can sacrifice some of them to do early trades, like with curd apes and things like that. In contemporary old school, buying you time until you can find and deploy the the abyss. Um, I I I have a supposition. That if old school environments begin to <laughs> restrict Mishra's factory, which I think they should, because it's just, it's massively overpowered compared to how it was intended to be, you know, played <laughs> compared to how it worked back in the day. Um, that, right. the, that the deck players would shift back to the moat and Sarah Angel again. Um, but one other, a couple other interesting things. There were control decks that used factory. Um, they just weren't, they were just not nearly as po- popular as the deck. Because again, factory couldn't you couldn't do what you can do now, which is the um, pump itself and block. The because it, the, the way things worked back then is you couldn't be blocking. And, yeah, I mean obviously everyone knows this yeah. that you can't. <laughs> basically, tap creatures don't deal damage back in the day. Right. Um. The last thing I just say is that so Sarah Angel was very basically you had two kinds of players in back in the day. You had players that had bad decks. In which case, Sarah Angel just massively <laughs> outclassed everything. And you had competitive decks, in which case, Sarah Angel outclassed most things. But there were a handful of things that it couldn't outclass, which includes Juzum Jin, um, opposing Sarah's, um, some tactical things. But it's, you know, it marginalized cards like Sarah and uh, you know, which could be played efficiently, you know, to try and get a couple of points of damage in. It marginalized, um, Sedge Troll, which never saw any play, to my recollection, back in the day, for partly for that reason. Um, you know, very frustrating to be playing Jade Statue against a Sarah Angel, too. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Naturally. But, but Sarah, and Sarah Angel was also critically out of Lightning Bolt range you know, for a single bolt as well. So it was just, it was just the creature, the defining creature once, post Legends, once, once, uh, creatureless, de- so-called creatureless decks became salient in the format. It became the de facto. Yeah. Sometimes you would play Mahamodi like I did. I played two Sarahs and a Mahamodi, but Sarah was just the you know so good tactically, couldn't be beat until Morphling. <laughs> Kevin, what what are your memories of seeing Sarah? The it didn't take long in the early days, obviously, for the good uncommon <laughs> flyer cre- flying creatures to cement themselves, right? And so my first experience with Sarah was not uh, a dramatic one. It was not like oh, this is obviously the best creature. I just 
had some deference for the creatures I had fewer copies of. You know, I know I started to know what the uncommons were. I was attracted to black cards early because of Sanger Vampire pretty strongly because the image was so cool. And so I, I played the black a little bit more early on. But as soon as I played up against some mm-hmm. Sarahs with my Sangers, I started to really notice the, the power. And so I actually just have a lot of respect for Sarah Angel. I, I fitted into as many decks as I could. I was not, you know, a, a, a competitive or controlling player back then, but it didn't take but one or two experiences playing against her to <laughs> to really gain the appreciation for it. And so, yeah. I just had kind of have a lot of respect. I played it in a purely casual context, but every chance yeah, I Yeah, Siri Angel's a little bit like Royal Assassin in that sense. It's good in a ca- casual environment and good in a competitive environment. I think it's probably much... I mean, it was the best creature in old Type 1 back in the day. I think clearly the best creature. Uh, let, me, let me see something. So I have on my shelf... Here it is. The top 10 lists in the... Um, Hold on. That's not going to make much sense for the... Uh... Oh, I found it. Yeah. So, so Kevin, in the un- the unauthorized Magic the Gathering book, the Advanced Player's Guide by Brady from Brady Games, and it was published in early 96, Mark Justice has a chapter in there in which he has, and this is in early 96, the top 10 creatures in Type 1. And from descending order from 10 to 1, it's Org, Savannah Lion, Sulkanar, Hypnotic Spectre, Mahamodi Jinn, Urnum Jinn, Juggernaut, Birds of Paradise, Juzim Jinn, and then number one is Sarah Angel. That's that's pretty close to how I would rank would have ranked them back in the day. I think I don't I probably would have ranked Hypnotic higher, um, Sulkanar probably lower. Um, you know, but Mark Justice was clearly a superior player to me back in the day in, in the sixty in, in their mid nineties. Um, but I think that's right. I think this that list underscores just how good Sarah was regarded in com- in competitive constructed magic even before Type One became yeah. The designation for that format. I think in old school today, Sarah Angel is may not be the top creature though. It's hard to figure out what is, but I mean, so for example, <laughs> a, a top ten list would be generated today. Atog would be on that list. Um, yeah, Serendib would. Hypnotic Specter. Hypnotic Specter was here. It was just sixth. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kurt, Kurt Ape. Ape would be yeah. on this list. I think. Uh, trike might be on the list. Well, I guess the thing about Trike is that it's really dependent on whether Mishra's Workshop is restricted or unrestricted, how good it is. Well, also how the rules work, uh, Good too. point. Trike's power vacillates wildly with the Very combat rules. Um, but I don't I don't know that Sarah Angel was ever better than it was back in Type 1. I think that in contemporary old school, it probably isn't the best creature in the in the in in, in that format. Old school 90, 94. That, that, I think the best creature is probably Serendibifreet, honestly. Because Serendibifreet goes in the blue-black decks, the blue-red decks, the blue-white-green decks, the blue-red-green decks, and it goes into Atog decks, either sideboard or main deck. I think Serendib might be the best, which is weird. Um, <laughs> I would not call that weird. I would call that well-justified. Serendib has the most incredible rate, and it's in the best <laughs> color. True. Right? And it has. There's a reason that it has the best position in terms of dodging lightning yeah. bolts, right? Yeah. No, oh, that's that's weird. That's it's. It costs a full two mana. But it's so stark Angel. to think about it that Serendib isn't even on this list. I just read from Mark <laughs> Justice. You know, he has Mahamodi on this list, yeah, and Mahamodi is not even in the top ten for old school today. You know, <laughs> that's that shows you the divergence yeah. between the two. Um, 
But but I will say in Alpha League, I think Sarah's in the top five. Number one is pretty close to a tie between Jade Statue and, and Hypnotic, so that's one and two. And depending on the day, I vacillate mm-hmm. on the which is more important, which is number one. <laughs> I think probably probably yeah. Jade is the best in Alpha League. And, and at number three, I used to have Sarah, but I, I think Llanowar Elf is just number three based upon le- how League is designed. It's it's so much better than than Birds of Paradise um, yeah. in League yeah. context. And then after that, it's probably Sarah Angel and or Juggernaut. Although Juggernaut is, I think, pretty overrated. But Sarah Angel <laughs> is phenomenal because it lands and it hits. It strikes fast. It's You can play as many as you want. It's, a, it's not moderated because it's not a rare. Yeah, great card. But wow, wow, it's it's yeah. literally at its, well, Sarah Angel is its most powerful, hits its peak back in historical type one, <laughs> which is interesting to think about. The, I didn't say this for many cards, but Sarah Angel has a very, very famous and hilarious <laughs> yes. misprint. So I think you alluded in, to this, but go ahead. In sp- yeah, well, in Spanish 4th edition, Sarah Angel was printed with the border and art of Time Elemental. And so you get this fantastic mix-up <laughs> of... It has all the text, all the, the words, all the mana cost, and the power and toughness of Sarah Angel, but just this Time Elemental flying mechanical dragonfly instead of a Sarah, <laughs> which is hilarious and awesome. I also want to point out, since I'm enjoying doing this occasionally, that there is a perfect rendition of the limited edition aesthetics of this card in foil and they're incredibly rare and i honestly think they're a little under costed with how rare they are but and this is this is really obscure but magic online used to sell merch and this is not magic online the software this is wizards of the coast's online store used to sell miscellaneous (laughs) merch and I don't know how long this lasted. It's, the card itself is dated 1999, so it's been a while, right? But they had promo foil Sarah Angels that they would throw in with your purchase sometimes. I don't know what the rules of the engagement were, but regardless, if you look on Scryfall and you look at all the different versions of Sarah, this one's called the Wizards of the Coast Online Store version, and it's just straight-up old-frame original art. They touched up the art, obviously, because the art is much smoother, looks a little more airbrushed, uh, but it's a beautiful old frame foil. And so, if you want to foil Sarah Angel and money is no object, I got to be honest, that is the one I would choose. If you're on a little bit more of a budget, I'm a big fan of the Rebecca Gay alternate beautiful. art from from the Vault Angels. The only printing of that particular art, and I'm a big Rebecca Gay fan anyway. But uh, well, anyway, it's just fantastic. Take a look. Uh, Steve, anything else on Sarah it. Angel? Oh, let's talk about Gamma real quick. What does Sarah Angel look like in Gamma? Was it just say Angel, probably? <laughs> <laughs> You're spot on. As you can imagine, yes, it's just called an Angel. And it's exactly the same card. No difference. Five mana, white, white, four, four. Does not tap on the attack. It says flies slash not tapped on the attack. <laughs> sure enough. Yep, same card in, in Gamma. All right, let's move on to uh, just another strange one in green. Shannadin Dryad. Oh, Dryads, excuse me, it is plural. So a single green mana for Summon Nymphs, which is a 1-1 with Forest Walk and a whole bunch of flavor text. This card is, 
I think, uh, not deservedly, but very, very under the radar in terms of the whole creature base in Alpha. Shannadin Dryads does not get any respect. <laughs> I remember, this is the kind of card, you know, we talked about all the ways you punish colors and lands in Alpha. I definitely played with, with Shannadin Dryads in, um, in the early days. Because you got enough, you know, so you got to know your friends and what color decks they liked, right? <laughs> and this is just an incredibly powerful way to punish a green player without, uh, without resorting to something foolish and angering like, like, uh, death grip or something like that, right? Not, not a true pure hoser that was going to make them have a bad day, but just playing a Shannon and Dryads on the first turn against them was, was good for a lot of damage and a lot of fun. I have never seen this card played. Do you have any? I've never seen it played. I've never played with it. <laughs> I have no experience with this card. <laughs> what strikes me about the card, Kevin, is the so few cards in this set that naturally have a, a land walk ability. And just oh yes, you know yep. why this? Why you know are they are they testing the waters? Seeing you know how, what's the you know proper cost and efficiency for a land walk creature? I I just don't I don't get this card. The very fundamental I don't level, I don't get it. Right. In terms of cards printed with a landwalk ability, there are only two. Yeah. This and Bogwraith. Obviously the Lords all reference right. um walk of the appropriate type, and we've already talked about burrowing. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. In terms of printed landwalk abilities, this is one of two. And I, I'm with you. I don't exactly know why. I mean you could make the case that creatures of each color, there are some types of creatures of each color that should inherently have the ability to be unblockable in their land types. Like, for example, you could make a case that a sea serpent is unblockable if you've got islands, right? It's just the way a bog wraith is unblockable in the swamp. Um, you could make a case that some goblin digging team could have been unblockable in the mountains. So I'm not sure why it was distributed the way it was. I can't explain it. But I can tell you that if you want land walk and it's going to be good, having it on the first turn on a 1-1 is definitely the way to go <laughs> because this just hits early and often. And especially in the case of green, green's the worst color at removing a Shannadin Dryad, right? So, yeah, I definitely caused a lot of ruckus with Shannadin Dryad. <laughs> did you in put an early unstable days. mutation on this? <laughs> no, I, you know, I never did that. And I, it's, a, it's a little sad that it's, it's before the days of equipment. Obviously, we had some auras, but I wasn't big on buffing auras. Like, you know, I didn't put Aspect of Wolf on a Shannadin Dryads. That was reserved for rabid wombats a few years later, but uh, still, still, I, I I got in some damage. The Shannon and Dryads were reprinted uh, several times, but in a kind of spotty fashion. They were reprinted in ABU and revised, summer and fourth, fifth they got a different art, and then seventh they got another art. So it was another one of those creatures that looks like it was viewed as a staple, kind of like the hill giants, where it was a staple of green for most of the early core sets none of the expansion style core sets like ice age or mirage tempest but still every core set for the standard cards up through seventh edition and then never again hasn't been reprinted since seventh edition i like the art in the in the what it evokes with respect to the dryads being one with the tree folk right you could imagine that this card could be a tree folk in today's uh then we wouldn't have creature typing but ironically well, I know, but I know the type nymph dryad, which is a strange combination. They're I don't know why both it's boxes. both. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, 
unfortunately, most of the depictions of this card, there are three different arts, and it seems like each one of them is just intended to depict scantily clad women, which is obviously a down point and, and not something they well, obviously it hasn't been reprinted since 7th edition, but I have to believe that if if this card were reprinted again, it would have characters that were not that, were not nearly naked women. And the simple truth is, is that we've got dryads in magic, uh, not not too commonly. We've got dryads, and they're not super common. There's only 40 of them, but we've had one as recently as Theros Beyond Death in Dryad of the Elysian Grove. They seem to be, they seem to come up in Ravnica and Innistrad with more regularity than other sets. But it's still a somewhat common creature type. Tristani is famously a dryad. Yeah, in, in both of their printings. And obviously, Steve, in the vintage context, we've got Quirian dryad, which we've, you know, is formative for the vintage players for reasons we've <laughs> spoken to ad nauseum. I'm curious now to compare that to nymph. How many nymphs are there? Only 17 nymphs. Oh, you want to know the irony? Dryad of the Elysian Grove is also a nymph. <laughs> They've reversed Just it. like Shannon and Dryads, the Dryad of the Elysian Grove is a nymph dryad as well. That's funny. Yeah, there's only uh, there's only 17 nymphs, and nymphs are interesting. Oh, this is fascinating. Nymphs are used for the Theros enchantment creatures. Here's a fascinating bit of trivia. Sure enough, Shannon Dryad, the only nymph in magic that is not also an enchantment. Every other nymph is a Theros enchantment creature. That's a good one to tuck away in, in your mind there, Steve, for a, a future uh, brain buster or trivia question. Only one nymph that is not an enchantment. Fascinating. This is another Anson Maddox piece, by the way, which, while beautiful, is not nearly as grim or stark as many of the other pieces, like the Sanger and the Land of War Elves and the, the what was that lousy enchantment that we couldn't figure out what was going on? Life tap. <laughs> Is that the one? Yeah, life tap. All right, let's move on then and talk about Shatter. A formative card for old school, I know. Shatter's pretty straightforward. One R for an instant that says Shatter destroys target artifact. I like an instant that refers to itself <laughs> in the third person. <laughs> Kevin, this is this is a remarkable card for a number of reasons. One is that you know, for those of us who really cut our teeth on Revise, maybe had fleeting glimpses of limited and unlimited edition, it's easy to forget mm-hmm. that Shatterstorm is not in limited edition. That there are precious few oh, ways yeah. of actually dealing with artifacts in this set. Because the explosion of, of artifact removal doesn't arrive until Antiquities. Right? You get... I mean, artifacts are just... Mm-hmm. That's why they had to be restricted initially, because there's so few ways to deal with them. Um, and basically, there's only two ways that target artifacts directly. There's Shatter and Disenchant. And then there are other a few other ways yeah. to deal with them. There's Neveneral's Disc, and there is Chaos Orb. Those are obviously a bit more... Yeah. Uh, less targeted, <laughs> right? They're less right. narrow. Um, but the thing about Shatter is that Shatter is actually much better today than it was back in the day. One of the reasons for that is that in old school, everyone plays with Mistress Factories. Mistress Factories are used in the Atog deck, which is part of the reason Atog is so good. They're used in Counterburn. They're used in the deck. You know, they're just ubiquitous. And so main decking Shatter is like, you're going to have targets. You're going to have good targets, right? In Alpha, 
context or just 93 constructed, people are going to be playing with juggernauts and jade statues, icy manipulators. You're going to have good targets for shatter. So, and then, and then old school 94, and it gets the ATOG deck, it's even better than that. Because you get hits onks of Mishra's, sometimes copper tablets, sometimes black vises at the right time. You know, plenty of targets for shatter. Mm-hmm. So shatter is an interesting, you know, typically this effect is a sideboard card, right? But, um, it's better, it's better today than it was back in the day. And of course, disenchant was a main deck card, but disenchant had even more flexibility being able to hit artifacts and enchantments. And I haven't even mentioned, you know, disrupting scepter and JM Day Tome, which were, heavily played back in the day. Do you think that in the year 1994 and 1995 that we weren't playing both enough Shatters and maybe the the right decks to leverage Shatters? Or do you think that there just isn't the right combination of red and the, the colors of mana that you need to have a good Shatter deck? You know what? I think I think the issue is that it, it's so tactical. For the Zoo, let's just call them Zoo-type decks or Tempo decks. Um, when they're playing yeah. against control decks, what they need to deal with pri- first and foremost and primarily are Moat and the Abyss, right? It, that's really, mm-hmm. but for, you know, for the control decks, what they need to deal with are a much wider range of things. So it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think in the zoo decks, you s- could certainly have used Shatter. I don't know. Maybe you can pull up Bertrand Lestray's finalist deck from 94. My guess is he probably had Shatters in the sideboard, not in the main deck, which for that strategy is probably the right approach. There are enough artifacts to warrant shatters in your 75, but your question is, were they underplayed? The answer is probably yeah. yes. The other thing to bear in mind is, though, is that Mishra's workshop was swiftly restricted, and it's not restricted in old school, so shatter is even better, right? In, in environments where Mishra's workshop is not restricted, that all gets, that all gets much better. And in fact, at that point, energy flux becomes a very good sideboard card, both for the Agtog decks and the deck, which is now so much heavier on Felwar Stone and the Workshop decks. So I think in general, there are several contextual structural factors. The first is the power of Mishra's Factory today compared to how it used to work. The second is the unrestriction of Mishra's Workshop. And the third is just our general appreciation for how good artifacts are compared to the lack of deep, deeply instilled knowledge and awareness of that back in the day compared to today. So those, those, yeah. that's, well, I was just going to say, I think that's all very reasonable. But you only get, you know, shatter, you only get shatter and disenchant for targeted removal for, for artifacts. And so in, in limited edition, so shatter is, shatter is quite important. Well, and to your hypothetical about Bertrand Lestre's deck, he did not have any shatters in his sideboard. Yeah, it, by the way, that's not surprising now that I think about it because that was in August of 1994. Right, and so, yeah. If that had been played a year later, the d- answer would have been different. Ironically, owing to our prior conversation, he had four copies of Serendipity <laughs> right. in his sideboard. <laughs> Proto Zoo. Yeah, Shatter has followed an interesting trajectory in terms of reprints. It was in every core set up till, gosh, up till M10, plus some other large sets. So, Ice Age, Tempest. And Mirrodin, it was in all the core sets and those other three, so a, definitely a staple. But then it takes a break after M10, and it is in the weirdest collection of the next three sets that I could have imagined. 
The first is Scars of Mirrodin. Okay, that's not too weird. That's an artifact set. Then it was Scars, in Khans of Tarkir. Then in Kar. Right. Well, it was okay. it was in the first Mirrodin too. Yeah. But then it was in Khans of Tarkir and Ixalan. Huh. Weird. What a strange place to put Shatter. Those two sets. Those Ixalan's the last printing in terms of a non-reprint set to to determine its legality. What a strange thing. Obviously, Shatter, you know, this is another one of those cards like Sacrifice and Grey Ogre that is become synonymous with its effect, right? Anything that destroys an artifact is a Shatter by today's standards, at least for our playgroups. But at the same time, the card itself, while simple, has become a little outmoded, right? In the vintage context, we would never deign to play a Shatter anymore. At worst, you're going to get Wear Tear, right? But if you want more bang for your buck, you're going to play either a cheaper card like Nature's Lore or Fragmentize or a, a more card-advantageous card like Shattering Spree. Kevin, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, I remember when Overload came out and it was like, okay, we're going to give you a cheaper Shatter. And then they printed Oxidize around Mirrodin block and they moved it to, gr- uh, moved it to green. And then we got, uh, yeah. what's the just generic Shatter that was just red instant? Who was that? Smelt. Smelt. Then we got Shattering Spree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the history of shatters, lit, you know, red shatters that you and I have oh, played in vintage is actually long. super long. <laughs> like, I, I'm, yeah, the heady days of Mog Salvage and Rack and also, Ruin. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, we've, we've toyed around with, um, the one that gives you sapperlings, artifact yeah, mutation. We played the, we right? played the buyback one for a little bit. Pulse. Sh- shattering we, Pulse. We played Rack and yeah. Ruin was a staple during the Trinosphere era. We've played, mm-hmm. you, you've liked pulverized. <laughs> uh, Vandal Blast. Yeah, Pulverize. Lots of Shatter Effect. Yeah. Don't forget Ancient, Ancient Grudge. Grudge. Ancient Grudge. Oh, yeah. Huge. Yeah, Vintage is littered with the history of Shatters. <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. I also like how the Alpha art uh, forms a... Not just a functional, but an aesthetic dyad with yeah. Disenchant, right? Both of those cards depict an object, uh, and illustrated by Amy Weber in both cases, depict an object being, well, being acted upon. Shatter is far more, in my opinion, literal, right? We had this conversation when we were reviewing Disenchant, and I asked you what exactly you thought was going on in that Disenchant art, which is still, I think, an, an unanswered question. Shatter is obviously a, a bit more literal, there is pieces of the thing flying off in, in red energy, breaking it apart. No. Anything else on Shatter, Steve? I want to look at, just real quick, I want to look at the Gamma version to see if it's any different. It's called Destroy Artifact, <laughs> and it says Destroy One Artifact. Nope, no different. <laughs> All right, so in continuing our recent spate of just high, high-quality creatures, let's talk about Shivan Dragon. It doesn't get much higher quality than this, Steve. So for the low, low price of 4RR, in the alpha context, you get a Shivan Dragon that says Summon Dragon flying and then R colon plus one plus zero until end of turn and five five. It's of note that the fire breathing ability on Shivan Dragon is separates itself from the fire breathing card because it says until end of turn, right? Where, and I've already made this case, the fire-breathing card, the aura itself has no time restriction on it. Shivan Dragon is just, in my opinion, everything that's right with magic. 
right? A beautiful card, powerful, evocative, gets players excited. And this Melissa Benson art just uh, could not be better in my estimation. I, I have a lot of affinity for Shiv and Dragon. This is a case in which her hyper-rendered and detailed art serves the game extremely well by giving it a mm-hmm. kind of marquee image. Now, this was on the cover of the, if I'm not mistaken, the revised rule book, right? Yeah. And I think it... Replacing Bogwraith. Yeah, <laughs> a, a much better decision that should have been should have been the case from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, I don't think this card is nearly as good as players think, but it's you cannot argue with its iconic stature. Definitely. Yeah, there's no denying the fact that this has never... Even though it shares similar stats, right, with Mahamodi Jin and is in a similar rarefied air with the five mana uncommon flyers, for for whatever reason, for metagame and other considerations, it has just never been, it's never held the same place. It's never been the go-to finisher like Modi sometimes was. It's not quite as efficient at doing its job as Sarah is. It's never been quite in the right colors. You know, there's never been a big mana red-based control deck that wanted this. It's just always kind of <laughs> on the wrong side of the line when you're when you're making these tests. I think one of the reasons it suffered, I, I've alluded to this earlier, is that Juzim Jin became such a, an incredibly important part of the environment so quickly. And this card just doesn't mm. appear favorably to that, whereas Mahamodi actually can survive in that environment. And like it or not, old school, I mean, back in 94, 95, even with as many cities of brass as you wanted to throw in, it was just really hard to make a three-color control deck Yep. back then. And you just couldn't justify this. I really love the fact that the art, the, the viewer in the art is from the perspective of below the dragon. Yes. Obviously, the dragon is, is a dramatic figure no matter what the you know the, the large fangs and the open mouth and the, the enormous claw but just it it gives you the viewer a sense of smallness in comparison to this creature like you don't get that sense with sarah angel yes she's a dramatic figure looks powerful ready for war ready to battle mahamodi jin right like the jin is not it's not frightening to the tune of what a 5-6 flyer would be if you were to actually come up against it. <laughs> but this dragon, this is what I'm talking about. This and Lord of the Pit, to me, are the, the sort of things that nightmares are made of, right? Like, I'm going to run in fear yeah. from this dragon. No, everything about the art is phenomenal. The composition, the detail, the choices about background. It appears to be like stars in the background, so you get a sense that you're being on the ground looking up. The, the action... Mm-hmm. On it. it's just it's just a phenomenal piece. The glistening, the gleam on the underbelly and on the yeah, everything is great. Yeah, perfect rendition of the high fantasy trope too, right? Combining the best of D and D and Lord yep. of the Rings, right? Beautiful piece. Yeah. So I take it you just didn't play much with Shiv and Dragon when you were no, early in the game, did you? I, I don't think I. It's possible I tried it once, but I've never I never played. I have no recollection of playing with it back in the day. And and I have no recollection of ever fearing it. Because I would just deal with it just the same manner that I would deal with them with the Juzum. Right? Now it in yeah. Juzum is just far more terrifying because your opponent could ritual mox it out on turn one and it could kill you before you could even get a moat out. Right? Whereas this right. there was no right. threat of that, realistically. 
were there ever any i mean i don't know what kind of people you played with i don't know what your metagame was like but was there ever a time when you had like ostensibly you had control of the game you know you had your moat and your scepter and your angel going and your opponent just top decked the shivan and put it out and i, ruined I your have game. no recollection of that and i doubt that ever happened yeah. <laughs> all right fair enough i think there's a funny instance actually where i played it against it in a type one tournament in the early aughts um you know, where someone played it like a, a deck with this and and i was playing mono blue control and i think i control magicked it Wow, what a beating. (laughs) This next card, by the way, is incredibly contentious. But but I I want you to wrap up. Okay, hold on. We we gotta we gotta we gotta not yeah, we gotta not skimp on Shivan Dragon here for a minute. Well, Steve, it's one there's one thing about Shivan Dragon that we should probably at least acknowledge. We don't have to review it in full, but that is Shivan Dragon is okay, is held up as an example of the effects of the reserved list in many forms of that discussion with respect to the fact that it has been reprinted a zillion times like it was still in m it's still in m20 as a rare (laughs) for some reason and and just lots of core sets in between and yet so it's been reprinted a bunch of times and yet the alpha and beta editions of the card are just astronomical in price right um commanding a rate that is above even the normally exorbitant alpha and beta rates right in terms of non-power, like non-reserved list cards, this is definitely the pinnacle of modifiers that you're going to pay for the collectability of Alpha and Beta. Yep. The uh, and and I don't bring that up to dispute it or anything or to to make this show about the reserved list, but I would just point out that Shivan Dragon has, I think, a bit of a unique place in the history of Magic, and it's kind of like you know, it's our version of Charizard. Uh, which the Pokemon versions are going nuts in terms of collectability and cost these days. And it's always going to have a high degree of cachet in that regard and right. collectability the, in that regard. The demand for Even this if card, you wanted to get a cool version. Is the vast majority of the demand is made up of collectors or people who want it for old school. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even like a, a foreign blackboarded version, just a non-English, like the equivalent of fourth edition which is is barely playable in any context. Like, yeah, you could play it in old school, I guess, if you wanted to have fun, but even those go for like 80 to to $100. It's just, there's so, so, so much nostalgia baked into the old copies of this card. Yeah, the revised ones aren't too much, 10 bucks, but the, the, the fact remains is that this card is the pinnacle of what you just said, the, the combination of nostalgia and collectability. All right. This next card is one that I've actually been pretty excited to get <laughs> it's, to. It's a surprising, <laughs> a surprisingly exciting one. Yeah, and we, we hinted at it already when we did reverse damage, but this is Simulacrum. 1B <laughs> for an instant, which is noteworthy to some degree. Uh, this alpha text, all damage done to you so far this turn is instead retroactively applied to one of your creatures in play. If this damage kills the creature, it can be regenerated. Even if there's more than enough damage to kill the creature, you don't suffer any of it. Further damage this turn is treated normally. A couple of highlights here, like you know, the callback to suffer, the word retroactively, which we talked about previously, and the, the, the bit of strategic advice in the form of if there's more than enough damage to kill the creature, you don't suffer any of it. I like all those things. What's the first thing that you think of when you see this card, Steve? 
Well, the first, so first of all, I never played this card back in the day. And, and I've only now, you know, 27 years later, encountering the dilemmas and debates over <laughs> this card. So the first thing I think of mm-hmm. is the question that we debated earlier is the retroactivity question seems to be very tricky to figure out how to deal with. So to me, yeah, so to very me, this tricky. is a rules nightmare. <laughs> so one of the mm-hmm. arguments in, in old school is that you should be able to use simulacrum even when the damage is more than enough to kill the player, right? Well, that stands to reason in old school, just because up to a point, you got to live at less than zero life. Yes, but that's not. But that's not. I mean, true up to a point in, in history beta, is what I'm saying. Limited. That's only true in when revised edition comes out, third edition rules that allow you to live mm-hmm. in zero or negative life until the end of the phase. Well, it's silent in the first edition rule book. Let's say that, and it's clear. It's clear and <laughs> yeah. revised that this is permitted. So the. Yeah, silence should not be interpreted as not permitting it. It's just not, you know, when playing under first edition rules, people assume that you basically die immediately, basically at the end of the stack, so to speak, if you, if, if you have Mm -hmm. zero or less life. But, um, there's a complex argument around simulacrum that, that, uh, that you can resolve at the same time as damage, right? Like reverse damage. And so if you apply, if if that if that application applies to reverse damage, then why wouldn't it apply to simulacrum, right? Yeah. Except that the text says retroactive, it doesn't say reverse. What what's the text on reverse damage again? All damage you have taken See? from any one source <laughs> this turn is added to your life total instead of subtracted. So the form from it. of the verb t- to take in taken implies past tense, right? Oh yeah, it absolutely does. Well, also it says. Um, added to your life total instead of subtracted from it, which suggests that it has already been subtracted from it. Yeah. Right? By necessity. <laughs> yeah, the we've already touched on it a couple of contexts about how the passive language in the limited edition rules is not doing it any favors, right? Like, in the case of reverse damage, it refers to damage you have taken. In the case of simulacrum, it says all damage done to you, Right? But then later on, it says you don't suffer any, you don't suffer any of it. So Simulacrum actually uses both sides of the coin, referring to damage done to you and damage that you suffer, which is funny. And I don't understand why it would use both of them within the same the context of the wait, same. Wait, say card. that again. I didn't. I didn't track your last point. Just that Simulacrum uses both damage. both oh, action okay. words. It uses done and <laughs> suffer. It. The the Alpha League Rules clarification document says cannot be used to prevent a player from dying, as the damage must be dealt must be first be dealt in order to be instead retroactively applied. So, so Alpha League Rules are using immediate yeah, death. Basically, there's no lingering right. until the end of a that's phase right. or step. But but the okay. the argument that you should be able to use it the other way is that you should be able. I guess that you should be able to use it basically. On the stack, so that spells resolve simultaneously to prevent yourself from dying. I guess. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you wouldn't die um, because under Alpha first but, edition rules, just to clarify, remind, remember, all spells and effects that are played around mm-hmm. the same time resolve simultaneously. So, I guess there's an ambiguity because it's the first that's edition rulebook is silent. Do you die? Can you die in the middle of the stack, or do you die at the end of the resolution of the stack? Is essentially what that argument's asking, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially. Especially really since there is no stack in the sense of sequential resolution, 
right? It's all simultaneously, so simultaneous. But then it, it raises the question: What is meant by simultaneity? Because, because if you <laughs> if it's at the same time, then do you necessarily have to sequence it because it's retroactive, right? So does does it does it mean? In other words, there's does it draw a distinction between playing something around the same time and when things resolve? You know, just because you play at the same time, does it mean that does it mean that they must resolve sequentially? I don't know. It's, it's hard to know. It's, yeah, it's exactly. unknowable, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, <laughs> and that's not the first time that we've said that. The I, I'm with you though. There, you could interpret a version of the alpha rulebook that allows for a giant lethal fireball to be completely offset with a simulacrum. There's definitely a, a version of reality where that makes sense. But there's also some strict reading that says, and this might not be supported by the alpha rulebook directly, but there's definitely some strict reading that says the only way for something to have been done retroactively is for the original happened, thing yeah. to have already happened. And if but, the original thing already happened, you've lost. So, <laughs> so, so the text of the card, there's, the, okay, there's four, basically four clauses. Well, no, there's more, there's many more clauses. Mm-hmm. There's basically four statements. The first is just a declarative state statement that all damage done to you is retroactively applied to one of your creatures in play. So far. The second yeah. is if this damage yeah. kills the creature, it can be regenerated. Fine. Even if there is more than enough damage to kill the creature, you don't suffer anymore. And then finally, further damage of this is, this turn is treated normally. So the first statement is the only one that really applies, right? And so if, I guess if someone casts a fireball at you for five and you're four, it doesn't matter. If someone casts a fireball, a lethal fireball at you, you're the f- f- fireball for five, mm-hmm. and you're five, and you cast this. If things quote unquote resolve simultaneously, that's hard to figure out what it means because if they resolve simultaneously, <laughs> one way of looking looking at it is that you have. Let's just say you haven't been done de- dealt any damage this turn so far, which means that simulacrum resolves, but because you haven't been dealt any damage, nothing happens. But if you interpret simultaneity to mean that the fireball resolves, but you don't die until all the spells resolve, I think that's a reasonable argument. Actually, that's a reasonable argument because if you if you understand simultaneity, that means that you don't. You, there's no stack to die at the end of. It, this doesn't say. <laughs> I guess the word retroactively is the word that people get tripped up on, right? It's retroactively yeah. is doing a lot of work, but that's just because. We we don't have anything better to go <laughs> yeah. on. Like, it's you you can make a case, a textual case that makes a lot of sense, but there's no justification yeah. for it. Either in the rules. way, it's just your interpretation of what it means. Yeah, here's here's a brain bender for you, Steve. If you're at three life, and I and this is in the alpha context, and I lightning bolt you, and you respond yeah. with healing salve. Yeah. Well, here's a question: Do do you yeah, survive? I see what you're getting at. You are pressing the question of simultaneity. And the answer should be yes. Uh, it's more complex yeah. than even that, though. Does it make a difference which mode of healing oh, salve you chose? Absolutely. Wait. Oh, wait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Hold on. Because if you chose to prevent the damage from lightning bolt, then the lightning bolt damage didn't happen. But if you chose to gain three life, yeah. then you could make the case that you yeah. die in the middle of that stack quote-unquote stack, right? Because you take the damage and are at zero and gain the life, there's a point at which you may 
you're like it's like Schrodinger's life total, right? You could be at zero, or you could be at six, or you could be at three at any point in that process. Yeah, right. It's unknowable. So, so I think the answer to that question is directly related to so, the so let me question. let me read a couple of bits from the alpha rule. I don't know if this will resolve mm-hmm. the issue, but here here we go. Um, okay, the timing rule again. This is all set out on what is this? Uh, God, hold on. There's three parts I need to. Okay, timing is described in pages 28 to 32 of the alpha rule, and what it says it says it starts by saying you should try and cast as few spells as possible. At, at once as possible, because it makes things simpler. <laughs> Occasionally, there will be conflicts of timing when both players want to use spell effects at the same time. When this happens, the player whose turn it is announces their spells and effects first. Then the other player can respond to each one with one or more fast effects, instance artifacts in play, enchantments in play, or creature special abilities. These reactions can be reacted to and so forth, and nothing happens until both players have finished taking action. At this point, all spells take effect simultaneously. There you go. Usually the outcome will be clear, but if the timing of any two effects makes a difference, here's the critical answer to your question, Kevin. The player casting go. the later spell gets to choose whether it occurs before or after the conflicting spell. And of course... That doesn't actually well, matter in the no, simulator. But hold, but hold on. The, what's interesting about your example, though... By the way, then it goes on to say that Interrupts, of course, the exception to this is interrupts, which are resolved as soon as they are announced. But here's the interesting thing, though, Kevin, Mm -hmm. about your example. In your example, you have two modes for healing stuff, right? So one could argue that in the prevention application, it doesn't make a difference. So it doesn't matter because the thing happened, because it's, in in essence, they 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 have occur simultaneously. So even if the three damage will be, will occur, it's going to be prevented. Whether it happens second or first, mm-hmm. you'll survive. But if you play the healing salve yeah. to gain three life, it actually does make a difference, difference which happens because it, because. And you would choose to have the healing salve happen yes. first. I think, I isn't that right? Because yeah. if all things resolve, at some point you go to zero and then you die. I assume. Let's, let's, yeah, well, well, here, let's go. Uh, well, that 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 when begs the question: Is it if you make the wrong yeah. choice and you say you want lightning bolt to happen first, do you die before so, your healing right, salve right. resolves? So, so we I, on page nine it That's says overview question. of the game. The object of the game is to re- reduce your rival's life points to zero, forcing him or her to flee the plane in which you are dueling. If you are both reduced <laughs> to zero simultaneously, then the duel is a draw. So that doesn't really answer the question. Okay. It's still silent on when you die, right? But you could yeah. interpret that as saying that death is instantaneous in magic through a chain of inferences. Yeah. Well, if if that is true, then that extends to simulacrum to say you can't save yourself from anything lethal with a simulacrum. Because if death is instantaneous, then yeah. in order for it to have worked in the first place, right. you would have to already be dead. But if death is not instantaneous, yeah. if if multiple effects resolving simultaneously... So I'm trying to remember this was this was clearer in my mind in the case of giant growth in in lightning bolt, right? Because in that case you're not it's not a player dying it's a creature, so you've got a scrib sprite, yeah. And I play a giant growth and you play a lightning bolt. Well, that's actually a very clear example. Both things can resolve, and the answer is easy. The result or the outcome is easier to ascertain 
to know because <laughs> yeah. if the script sprite yeah. takes three damage but also is enlarged at the same time, then we know it's going to survive, right? But the difference is if it, it would make a difference, then the timing matters, in which case first edition rules say that, what does it say? That the player who plays the last spell decides. So if in that case, if you have a script sprites and you play giant growth and I play a lightning bolt in response, it actually does make a difference, right? If they, well, does it? I guess does it. <laughs> Well, I'm getting tangled up on uh, well, this, and I thought it was clear. I, yeah, I think you're getting tangled up a little bit because I would say that that's a textbook example of simultaneity, though. So the yeah. the notion of one happening before the other can't coexist really with simultaneity, exactly. <laughs> right, you can't have like, sequencing. Yeah. It, it just can't. Like, They're totally the, the, different. The notion concepts. that They're lightning totally bolt would concept. kill yeah. would kill. Right, a, a scrib sprite that's been targeted by a giant growth we, during our, today. You know, our modern sensibilities tell us that that the lightning bolt can kill a thing that's been targeted, but you don't have the luxury of the stack in alpha, so you have to fall back on simultaneity, which tells me that the, it, the your giant growth lightning bolt hypothetical, which is not unusual, of course, it illustrates the fact that the lightning bolt healing salve hypothetical shouldn't matter either. If things truly happen simultaneously, then there's no even ordering of lightning bolt and healing salve that doesn't just result in in a net change of zero. Yeah, I think that's right. It tells me that you can't you can't actually choose to get the interaction wrong, so to speak, if you're faced with the choice. It's still simultaneity is simultaneity. However, th- I was bringing up that hype that healing salve example to il- illustrate that, but also to talk about the weight and the work that the, the word prevention, the word prevent is doing in contrast to retroactive. Prevention has a colloquial image of the original event not happening, whereas retroactive has the exact opposite effect. But if simultaneity is truly held up as the standard, in that, then you can make the case that simulacrum can save you from a lethal thing. Let me throw another because retroactive and prevent aren't aren't doing any heavy lifting in in the context of the alpha rules. They're they're both irrelevant yeah. basically. <laughs> you just look at all the effects and process them all, and then you get to the end of it and determine what the result is. In which case, simulacrum works like a super healing salve. So I want to make sure I understand your argument there, but but I'm my mind is flowing with additional examples to try and clarify this. So so I want to I want to I want to start <laughs> awesome. with just the basic pr- precept. Simultaneity is the opposite of sequencing, right? And the stack is basically sequencing. <laughs> there is a mini mm-hmm. sequence. There there is a mini sequential element to alpha and sequence sequencing comes on into play with interrupts. So it it does have first edition does have both. It has simultaneity simultaneity and sequencing. With respect to interrupts, mm-hmm. it has sequencing. And then it has sequencing with respect to if something makes a big difference, then the player who plays the last belt decides. Which is kind of, it's not really sequencing in that case, it's just going one way or the other. Um, but here's the thing. Suppose, so so we have a couple of examples. We have an example of the giant growth on a script sprite that's being targeted by Lightning Bolt. We have Lightning Bolt and Healing Salve. What if both players are at zero and... Both players cast simultaneous lightning bolts on the other player. <laughs> um, what? Well, how could players get priority while no, they're at I'm, zero? I'm saying is, I'm sa- what I'm saying is, they're both at three life. Sorry, 
both players are at three life, and both players cast Lightning Bolt on the other player at the same time. So, what happens then? It's like end step. You cast Lightning Bolt on me, trying to kill me, and I cast Lightning Bolt on you. Um, in, in Revised, it's clear. Both the Lightning Bolts, third edition, both the Lightning Bolts will resolve. And then whoever is still at zero or less at the end of the phase will lose the game. If both players are at zero or less, mm-hmm. then the game ends as a draw. If one player gains life yeah. to get above zero and the other player doesn't, then that, that player will win. Um, but under yeah. first edition rules, if both spells resolve simultaneously, it means you put everything into kind of the batch and you let the batch resolve simultaneously. <laughs> both players go to zero. At the end of the resol, I guess you, in my opinion, you kind of have the, it, the notion of simultaneity implies that you have to let everything in the batch resolve happen. It's like disenchanting a chaos orb. Right? Under first edition rules, if effects and spells and everything happens, that means the chaos orb has to resolve. Which means the disenchant also resolved. The disenchant will destroy the chaos orb, but it won't stop the chaos orb from resolving. Its effects will still occur. That's not the case in modern hmm. old school, which is, which is we assume that the, right. You know, the disenchant will stop the effect of happening. Now, that may be an, a byproduct, an artifact, so to speak, of the errata on Chaos Orb. Um, <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, it kind of is. Versus the text yeah. of Chaos Orb. So I think, I think what I'm led to the conclusion of is that simultaneous, sim- simultaneity means that you have to let everything happen. If you don't let everything happen, then it's by definition not simultaneous, which means that you have to kind of hold all the effects in abeyance until everything happens. Which means that in my interpretation of simultaneity, uh, you cast Lightning Bolt on me, I cast Healing Salve to gain three life. The Healing Salve has to resolve at the, and so, so I wouldn't die until the end of the simultaneous batch, so to speak. But I'm not dying because the, the Healing Salve will gain me three life. And it can happen either way. It will prevent the damage or gain, gain me life. And it's not going to make a difference in this case. Yeah. What would make a difference, I'm trying to think of an example that would make a difference. Um, in the, in the case of Giant Growth and Lightning Bolt on the script right, it's the same thing. You basically have to let everything happen, and then you see what the state of affairs are at the end of the full batch of effects and spells. So, I th- I'm picking up what you're putting down, and I think I agree. Then the question for me goes back to what I said a minute ago, which is, is there a mechanical difference between the word prevent Ret- and the word yeah, right. retroactive? Retroactive implies that something has already happened. And if things Can I put a yeah, can I put a simulacrum on the stack when no thing has technically happened yeah. yet? I guess right. is kind of the point. Like if you're yes. lightning bolting me and I respond with simulacrum, is the three damage from the lightning bolt something that has already happened while I'm evaluating the simulacrum or not? Right? I guess that's the, you know, retroactive is, is doing so, a lot of heavy lifting, and it's probably not yeah, codified I, in the rules at all. Which goes back to something we said kind of at the beginning of this discussion, that retroactively is really the key word here. Let's go back to alpha reverse damage. Yes. So alpha reverse damage says all damage you have taken from any one source this turn is added to your life total uh-huh. instead. So if spells resolve simultaneously, that means you allow this to resolve, and you interact its resolution with everything else that's resolving. So if you have a, a psionic yeah. blast targeting me and I'm at four, I assume that if the reverse damage can basically prevent that because the si- the simultaneous nature of it means that I'm not going to die until the end of that batch. Yeah. But... I think you just need a well, ruling on it. I mean, is there is there reverse damage ruling in yeah, Alpha League? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you that in a second. But let me just say, I think that 
the taken here from any any one source this turn, I think that's okay because it's all part of the same batch. I think that the problem. L- let could, me look at. Let me see what they say. What the the leak? Yeah. Don't you consider taken to be functionally retroactive, functionally past tense in that's, the same way that ret- the word retroactive is? There is I mean, no they, card, co- card clarification currently on reverse damage. Taken is clearly past yes, tense. Yes, but right. Retroactive is clearly past tense. Yeah, you're right. I don't. I can't think of a universe grammatically where one implies any kind of different timeline That's than the fair. other. Yeah. Like there's no. There's no point at which I've taken something, but I can't be retroactive about it. Yeah. <laughs> or vice versa. If I could retroactively so, do so something, I was already me, taken. I've already taken that. Three. I can't. You know. I can. I believe that reverse damage and simulacrum and healing salve will all function to save you, oh, you, you from a lethal that. thing. I was thinking that I was thinking that healing salve here because it either gains you the life. The difference between healing salve is that it says either prevent or you gain. So that's clear, right? The prevention means that that never happens it, yeah, in, this, but, in one sense, or that you gain life, which offsets the loss. So that at the end of the batch you don't lose. But the past, the past tense of taken a, and retroactively seem to imply that. The effects have to all unspool. You allow them to occur. You you take the <laughs> effects, and then you would cast reverse damage uh-huh. to try and reverse it. I believe that your opinion and the way we're approaching this are hopelessly colored by modern interpretation yeah. of the stack. And I'll tell you why. There's nothing inherently better or worse about preventing a thing versus having it undoing it. Well... In, in the context of alpha magic rules, there's nothing inherently codified that's different between, a, you know, a batch that incurs a thing and then that thing is prevented versus a batch that incurs a thing and then that thing is undone. Well, there is, there is, <laughs> there's, there's no codified difference between those. true. If we assume the death is instantaneous upon the effects being occurring and not at the end of the phase, that's a big assumption. Then. Oh, well, I thought the simultaneity accounted well, for that already. Yeah. So what I'm saying. I guess that so that goes back to the question of can you die in the middle of a batch? I'm assuming that I'm assuming that you can't because it simultaneously, yeah, simultaneity takes care of that, as you say. But that that dovetails with what I'm saying. If you can't die in the middle of a batch, then there's no difference between the order of prevention and 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 undoing of a thing. The chronology of the stuff doesn't matter; they're fungible. Yeah, I think I think there is an textual argument. I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I think we go back to what you're, you originally said. This is just unknowable. But here's here's what here, and we're so way out. We're both way out on a limb here, right? But here's what I would say. Yeah. Well, you just need a ruling about whether or not you can die in the middle of a batch. Well, no. That's let's really assume. Let's assume two things. Let's assume that you die instantaneously and not at the end of a phase. Let's further assume that you do you you cannot die mid batch because spells all resolve and effects all resolve simultaneously. So you you have to let the all the effects yeah. occur. Otherwise, it's not simultaneous by definition. Mm-hmm. Let's make those two assumptions. I think where yep. th- the textual argument yep. for the other side is this, is that the word taken and the word retroactively imply sequencing such that you cannot act. The cards, <laughs> this becomes very subtle and an important nuance. <laughs> but I think... Preve- uh, that, that's my point, though, is prevention also implies um, sequencing. It, you're right. You're right. You can't prevent you're something right, that has already happened. the difference... There's a different. Let me just try and get the first point out first, then we'll get to that. <laughs> I okay. think what what both retroactively and taken imply. So here's the thing: if you're just to resolve spells simultaneously, and you hold all the you, 
you kind of batch up or bunch up all the effects so that they will occur simultaneously. Mm-hmm. There's an argument that the resolution of reverse damage and or simulacrum simultaneously means that that they basically do nothing. They actually, they resolve and the, you go through the text on the card, but they actually... Mm. But you haven't yes, actually taken exactly. damage yet. Whereas prevention mm. yeah. has a hook, a textual hook, right? So it's like, it, it's like, the, it's not quite as complicated as the things that we talked about in the four context, but they do resolve. They just don't operate to do anything. So, so here's the thing though. That interpretation is just favoring prevention because of we have a logical standard or set of comfort with prevention happening before the thing it needs to prevent. You can tease out what you just said in exactly the same way by saying that if you try to process a lightning bolt and a healing salve at the same time, if the lightning bolt has already happened, then there's nothing left to prevent, you know? You can't put you can't put the lightning you can't put the healing salve after it because yeah, you can't so prevent anything. It's something that's already happened, you know. So the the, chrono- the chronological ordering of that argument flows in yeah. both directions. You can take a thing that looks forward in time and say, "Well, it won't work if it's already happened," and you could take a thing that look that looks backward in time and say, "Well, it You're won't work wrong. because the thing You're hasn't happened yet." <laughs> the other thing is we still yeah. haven't dealt with the issue of what what is meant in the first edition rules by if it makes a difference. I've, yeah. I've got an example Go of that, though. While you were churning up your example, I thought of one, and it resolves around the card, <laughs> personal incarnation. So what happens if, uh, if, you, if I control a personal incarnation and you terror it and I respond with healing salve? I control a... Oh, wow. Yeah. No, yeah. I do. I yeah, do. Yeah. You're I killing my personal incarnation and I'm responding so, with the- healing salve. But I'm at, but hold on, but I'm at one life. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. See, right there, the ordering of the ordering of yeah. how you process the matter. death of the personal incarnation relative to my healing salve changes the right. result. It ha- it, right. So the or- in that case, then that that exception kicks in, right? Yeah, you have to yes. you have to order those events in order to get right. a, a, to get a result right. that matters, and obviously. You know, you, so you could do one minus a half rounded up, which puts me at zero, and then the three would put me at three life. Or you can do, or you can do one plus three is four, and then half of that is two, right? So the order of events changes whether I'm on a, at my two or three life at the I end of that I think you make batch. a very good point about the symmetry of the word prevent and retroactive and taken, because both of those things do necessarily imply yeah. sequencing. Like prevention is basically like countering something. And, which means that it has to has to be ordered in a certain way. You can't allow that thing to happen and still prevent. <laughs> you have to prevent something yes, exactly. that hasn't happened yet, just like you have to retroactively have there, to, you know, affect something that has happened by definition. Way. I think you make a great point there. And we are culturally conditioned to understand prevention and, as well as countering because that's the way the rules work today, but there's no reason to support one versus the other I think in the, the case main of simultaneity. Here is that simultaneity is too is too slippery to deal with. And that's why magic moved away from it, right? <laughs> it, it, immediately with the oh, Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> to not have. Yeah. The, the priority, the priority system was a, even a, a more better <laughs> and, um, and valuable advancement yeah. than the stack was. <laughs> right. Because yeah, yeah, everything has to be sequenced. <laughs> and the thing is alpha to some extent recognized yes. that. Well, first edition rather recognized that because it did have sequencing for interrupts. And it had sequencing for if something would make a difference. Well, 
you know so there was there's hints of that there yeah um but what are some other examples of if it would make a difference um well anything that involves you know pure mathematics basically uh i thought up the personal incarnation one just because it was a a mathematical situation right right because there's a different mathematical result um but anything that yeah, exactly. But anything that's conditional on, say, the size of a creature when something like giant growth's involved, right? Um, I can't think of an example right offhand. There, there's none in, in limited edition that, that's conditional on the size of a creature. Oh, wait, I, I lied. I lied. Uh, sword ah, compulsions. yeah. Yeah, so- swords and giant growth. Um, the, the result there necessarily. Oh, no, but you can do that simultaneously, though. You don't get a different result if you treat the whole thing purely simultaneously. Right. I don't know. You, you kind of have to do choose an order for swords pl- versus plow in order to get the yeah, right answer, the math, I guess. The but it does make a difference in terms of the math. So, yeah. So I think that's where that rule would kick in. I'd always assume that that rule kicks in in the lightning bolt giant growth context, but it, it really doesn't. Because the, both, I guess it, it could. The thing, so sorry, I'd always assume, let me restate that. I'd always assume that that rule actually kicks in. In the context of a player dying versus not dying for something happening. But I guess it actually doesn't because if they're not going to die, simultaneity will prevent that anyway. It doesn't actually matter the order. With, I mean, it, it just in terms of it's just as a, if it's a binary, not you, you just either die or you don't, not by how much. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, Simulacrum has given us a much deeper appreciation for first edition rules. I think you're right. I think that. <laughs> there, it seems to me to be splitting hairs to the extreme to try and draw a distinction between healing salve and, as you say, because they are symmetrical in, in a sense in different directions. Yep. Um, the only way you can come to a different result, I guess, is if you just decide a priori to treat, you know, or kind of ex ante to try and treat prevention as differently than retroactivity. Yeah, agreed. Which. There's, you could make a case for that. I definitely support that. But in the literal simultaneity alpha world, I don't think it's supported. So you, if you, just for clarity, if you were a league authority, you would allow both reverse damage and simulacrum to basically function to prevent you from dying. Yes, I think so. I think, I think you could go either way. But if you do go the other way, then you really screw up prevention and you have to create an additional rule to clarify prevention. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah if if i wanted to go a different way i'd want to i'd want to yeah clarify a lot of corner cases that involve so, healing so <laughs> ruling simulacrum and reverse damage that way allows us to avoid that those headaches or at least avoid those <laughs> <laughs> interesting <laughs> that's right <laughs> so i just want to ask you steve have you ever played this not. card simulacrum i have not i have not have you <laughs> I think that I have, and I don't want to lie to our audience because I'm not 100% certain, but I remember opening this in Revised and looking at it and thinking, okay, I don't get this at first pass, and then reading it again and thinking, <laughs> okay, so I've taken a big combat. It's kind of like a black fog of sorts. Like it's I take really a bunch weird. of combat damage, <laughs> and retroactively I shoot it at my <laughs> at my drudge skeleton, so I thought, okay, that's cool. So I, I have some... I have some vague memories of trying this out and then giving up on it because it just wasn't reliable enough. And I was, cause it, it kind of just works like a fog. You know, when you're just playing casual decks against one another, the best use of this really is, yeah. Okay. So if your opponent fireballs you for 10 and they plan to do so again, the next turn, then it's pretty good. 
but in general it's just kind of like a big fog it, it just kind of been up pointing all the damage you took from a combat at one of your creatures yeah no it's not that good uh, i mean the fact that you can put onto a drudge skeleton is i think you know in in black and not at least alpha league that's the that's the obvious application oh yeah oh yeah agreed and that would that's almost certainly what i did with it <laughs> if i'm remembering properly yeah. but who knows i might have been <laughs> desperate um, it's funny, the the gamma version of this card was actually more powerful. It was just reverse damage. It just says, take back all lives you lost this turn. Wow. <laughs> so it's just we reverse damage. We haven't even damage. mentioned the yeah. art on here. The art here is like classic, cool, I don't know what you want to call it, like 80s, 90s, not quite comic book art, but nicely rendered fantasy art, I think. You know, it's not going to be the, uh, Mark Poole isn't going to be doing you know, a novel cover with this this isn't going to be a lithograph but it's it's uh nicely represents what's happening here as well i like it (laughs) it makes me laugh because i feel like there's um (laughs) there's some really sad storytelling going on here because you know simulacrum right it's a it, it the word itself just refers to a thing that represents another thing like kind of like a proxy right well, the, the idea here is that yeah. this character that's being depicted here had this simulacrum of himself on, on some poor and creature. like let it take all these yeah. arrows in the back. <laughs> but this poor thing is pleading for its life now. And there's like this this whole really sad narrative that's built into the the image here that's not really part of the mechanics of the card. But at the same time, you could then graft that on to any situation where you're actually resolving it. Like I'm sorry, Drudge Skeletons, but <laughs> you're just going to retroactively take all these arrows I took this turn. And the skeletons are like, please, sir, don't don't shoot any more arrows in my back. <laughs> it's very sad. <laughs> I think this art is inadvertently telling a, a more tragic story than the card is meant to. But I don't know. It's it's In, in practice, it's a lot like sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> I think better. But, but it's not an interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Next is a card that uh, we've already addressed on a number of occasions, and that is Sinkhole. Simply, BB for a sorcery destroys any one land. It uh, doesn't get much simpler than that in terms of effect, and as we already have addressed the, with respect to um, icy, uh, sorry, Ice Storm, uh, there's obviously a triptych of land destruction spells, and at low rarities too, not at rare in, in Alpha, between Stone Rain, Ice Storm, and Sinkhole. And Sinkhole, in my opinion is obviously the most egregious of the three, right? Because two mana makes a humongous difference when it comes to the tempo of land destruction. And it's also a formative reason why the early land destruction decks that I already mentioned were Jund decks primarily. There were other reasons for that too, but this triad uh, is the basis of that. Steve, I know you have a fair bit of experience with Sinkhole, both in the the old school formats uh, across the years. So why don't you talk about your experience? Well, Sinkhole is a demoralizing effect because, tactically <laughs> speaking, it generates tempo, as, as you suggested, because of its efficiency in ways that the other land destruction, aside from strip mine, and in fact, really in some ways more than strip mine actually do. Because, you know, for example, turn one Black Vise, on the play, turn one Black Vise, take three. Turn two Sinkhole mm-hmm. essentially puts, you know, the pincher, puts the the on the draw player in the same position they were to begin the game. Uh, it's, it's, it's efficiency was, could really be maddening. And so on turn two, <laughs> back in historical type one, in say circa 95, late 94, 
you were basically on turn turn one, a uh, turn two against a black deck. You were facing one of two black mana spells: him to Torak or Sinkhole. And it's a it's a toss up as to which one you feared more. <laughs> In some <laughs> right. cases, you were you were hoping for him, him and others. You know, if you were unfortunate enough to draw a sufficient quantity of land, Sinkhole. But together, they were just devastating. I I think that Sinkhole. I think players. So contemporary players, I don't think really appreciate. We've we've spoken to this a little bit, but I don't think contemporary players can appreciate the role that land destruction played in historical type one or magic constructed. Because there are mana denial strategies, but the primary mode of mana denial in contemporary constructed magic across constructed formats is usually taxing strategies, where you accumulate enough taxing mm-hmm. Effects or disruptive effects that pinch your opponent's mana supply in particular ways, like I don't know, death and taxes and legacy, or stacks, or workshop aggro, or lodestone golem, workshop aggro. You know, in vintage, in modern and more contemporaneous vintage iterations of vintage or vintage formats. But in historical type one, the landscape had a much deeper presence of land destruction. Period. Which means that, you know, yes, there were Jun land destruction decks, there were dedicated land destruction decks, but there are also variants thereof. So you would have kind of mono black decks that had, you know, four sinkhole, four strip mine, and then nether void became another variant of that variant. Um, you also had just, you know, tempo based aggro deck, you know, aggro like control decks that would use juggernauts or juzum jins and back them up with a combination of either sinkhole and stone rain or stone rain and, and, and uh, shatter and strip mine, right? And even in con- in contemporary old school formats, sinkhole is basically mandatory inclusion in the mono black decks. You know that are hippie, pump knights, sometimes black knight, juzum, uh, him, sinkhole. It's just it, the deck almost builds itself, and then once you get necro, then it becomes, <laughs> uh, you know, it was pretty linear to construct. Those yes, decks. you just pick the best the best cards, and they build themselves. Um, but, but there were really, you know, you know, today we think of deck, deck types in terms of other color combinations or like the main strategic theme, like storm or taxing or whatever. But back in the day, it was more of like a, a class rather than a, a theme. It was more, it was a theme, but it was a theme held together by a class of cards rather than a set of p- a particular kind of synergies. So you you had deep, and we talked about this before, hand destruction decks, right? Him, Mind Twist, uh, Disrupting Scepter, uh, the Rack, Balance, so on. Then you had a deep, you know, a deep vein of land destruction decks dedicated. And in my history of vintage, there are examples of those. Um, and then there was, you know, the mass form of both, right? Like Armageddon and Urnum Jin and so on. But there is no doubt that of, of the triptych, as you called them, Sinkhole was the most powerful because of its efficiency, its brutal efficiency in, in generating tempo, especially behind a kind of, you know, uh, of Black Vise or a Dark Ritual Hippie or a Dark Ritual Mox Chusum. That said, that doesn't mean it was always the most prevalent because if the, the, the black black really functioned in some ways as costing more than just two. You've also you've often made the point that gold cards are not just like two mana cost, <laughs> right? That there's some mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's some 
factor in between two and three on that, you know, equation or formula of mana cost that as you bridge, you know, as you go from one to two to three to four. Um, but sinkhole, but in the early game, especially when you got to Ice Age, you had enough dual lands to get black black with consistency, even a three color deck. But before that, it was a little bit more difficult because you were relying on just like say Badlands for a, a base red black deck and say City of Brass or even worse Dark Ritual um, to get that. But nonetheless, Sinkhole and him were so good that once once Fallen Empires was printed, the incentive structure for designing a mana base with consistent black black was extremely high. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. Um, but this this is I think one of the more demoralizing of the cards. In Alpha League, the the Joel Mick Alpha League June 2020 winning deck had like five or six sinkholes in it, such that the League authorities decided we're just going to moderate all the land destruction spells in Alpha, sinkhole, um, stone rain, and ice storm. I think they jumped the gun, not fully recognizing that the efficiency difference actually made a huge difference. Like Joel Mick's deck being mono black when he won in June meant that he was not going to be playing with Stone Rain or Ice Storms, right? And that mm-hmm. I think the League authorities assumed, well, how difficult could it be to get reliable turn to Ice Storm or Sinkhole? But there's a fundamental difference there, which is that, number one, even if you can get, like, Wild Growth or Llanowar Elf consistently, the turn, number one, that doesn't mean that you got consistent turn to land destruction because, you know, the, the Llanowar Elf might be bolted or plowed or whatever. But number two... There is a fundamental divergence in terms of the next step in terms of a three-mana land destruction spell versus a two-mana. Because in the mono-black deck, you have Hippie and Black Knight you know, as your efficient like drop-down spells, right? Whereas in the, mm-hmm. in the red-black deck, you don't really have a lot of the efficient turn, you know, one, two, three drops. You get, you know, we've talked about them, Dragon Whelp, um, I guess potentially central, but that's a rare, so it's automatically moderated. Um, mm-hmm. the, and, and Juggernaut. Juggernaut and Jade Statue, but those are turn three and four plays, yeah. right? And so it's yeah. not like, like in, in, with Mono Black, you can go Ritual Hippie, turn two Sinkhole, turn three Sinkhole, turn four, you know, Black Knight and Sinkhole, right? <laughs> and your opponent is an, <laughs> yeah, awful. It's, it's awful. Whereas if you're playing like Red Green, <laughs> It's like turn one Llanowar Elves, turn two Ice Storm, turn three Llanowar Elves Ice Storm. I mean, it's just not the same. It's not even close to the same. So I think yeah. they made a mistake. They were just they just fear that someone if they number one they didn't want players to invest in alpha cards that they were going to ultimately end up banning or moderating anyway, down to three of. Mm-hmm. There's some wisdom. There's there. some wisdom there, but I think it makes the assumption. That there, there's a way of handling that. Number one, uh, even if you assume more likely than not that that you would ultimately need to moderate those land destruction spells because you don't want someone playing a you know a deck that has you know twelve ice storm slash stone rains, you could communicate that to the league saying putting it on a functional watch list. Right. That's what actually in the late nineties they actually the DCI actually created a watch list because. To, to give notice, in a sense, to the player base that these are cards we're looking at closely. So in, invest in them at your peril, right? At your own risk. The second mm-hmm. thing, though, is to actually test that assumption. 
right? That the the assumption that you would probably need to do something, because I think I think it's unlikely that something would have actually needed to be done, because I just think that the black the the mono black deck is is a higher power level, partly because of dark ritual, partly because of the efficiency of the spells like Black Knight. And Black Knight, by the way, sounds innocuous, but it's massively powerful <laughs> in Alpha because it's mm-hmm. immune to plow, and it's immune to balance, it's immune to wrath, <laughs> it's much more... And by the way, yep. Bad Moon is also another efficient spell that can be dropped in that in that sequence. It's just a really good card. Yeah, specifically because of the way Alpha rules work. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But the other thing is that, the main point I'm making is that I don't think we can assume that because Sinkhole is obnoxious in a mono black deck and won the league, by the way, and only won it once in the number, you know, I think there were three or four months in which it was legal. To my knowledge, it was the only, the only time that a mono black deck won. And, mm-hmm. and also, to my knowledge, there was no evidence whatsoever that Ice Storm or Stone Rain decks were actually, you know, making it to the top eight, let alone the finals in any significant quantities. In fact, any evidence whatsoever. So I think that they should have tested that assumption rather than, you know, take the next step because they're they're so different, you know, so different. I, I don't wanna I don't wanna conclude our discussion my discussion of land destruction though without saying a little bit about Stripmine's history and vintage. Stripmine has a very interesting uh history and vintage, Kevin. I'm sure you're familiar with uh much of Stripmine's history and and also the immense mm-hmm. <laughs> immense debates that have un, uh taken place in old school environments around Stripmine. Right. So just for the record, Stripmine was printed with Antiquities in uh, Antiquities comes in, in with March of 1994 is when it arrives. But actually Stripmine isn't restricted until November 1st of 1997, Kevin. And Stripmine was restricted basically when Wasteland was printed at the same time Wasteland became legal with uh Tempest in October of 1997. So they mm-hmm. decided to restrict Stripmine when Wasteland was printed for obvious reasons, just obnoxious to have eight of those effects. But in environments in which Stripmine is unrestricted, in old-school environments, Stripmine is by far the most played card. I think second most played card is probably Mistress Factory. You know, mm-hmm. And I think they're even far more played than even Basic Lands. Um I I lost track, but I was keeping count for a number of years, and there were basically a number of like eternal weekend old school top eights where strip mine was basically like thirty or thirty one of thirty two possible slots in those top eights. Wow! Consistently, yeah. I mean, it's it far outstrip. Like force, think about force of will and contemporary vintage. Force of will is basically since about two thousand five. Force of will has been in about a two thirds of all decks. Right, two thirds to seventy percent mm-hmm. at most. Right, sometimes as low as sixty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, force of, I mean, that's way below. You know, the prevalence of force of will is far below the prevalence of strip mine in old school environments. Old, strip mine is just dominant to a degree that's mind blowing, where it's unrestricted. Now, it's restricted in, under Pacific rules. It's restricted under Swedish rules, but it's unrestricted under Pack Pacific rules. Beast of the Beast of the Bay rules and Eternal Central rules. And it's hard, in my opinion, to justify that. Although one of the main arguments, you know, there's long debates around strip mine. The main argument right. for restrict, unrestricting strip mine in old school is that it helps d- keep Library of Alexandria in check. And also cards like 
Maze of If and or Mistress Factory. I, I've come to the conclusion, though, that I think that the balanced approach is to restrict Stripmine and Mistress Factory. I think one of the mm-hmm. other arguments for keeping Stripmine unrestricted is that it helps aggro decks by giving, helping, you know, because the deck is so good, right? That it makes, helps aggro decks. Yeah. But I think if you compare environments where strip mine empirically in a systematic way, environments where strip mine is restricted versus those where it, where it isn't, uh, aggro is actually quite prevalent in those where it isn't. It, it is not restricted. Sorry, where it is restricted. But it's actually dominant in those formats in which, like, to an absurd degree, aggro and aggro control decks, where it is not restricted. So, so the mm-hmm. argument that strip mine makes aggro viable is wrong because aggro is clearly viable in environments where it's restricted, but actually makes aggro and aggro control just ridiculously good where it is unrestricted. So, I think any serious right. kind of econometric statistical analysis of strip mine, any se- r- real academic and empirical approach, would show it's just ridiculous. And I think also, one last point, the argument, well, it was it was unrestricted in historical type one, so why not now? If you go back and look at the, the deck list in historical type <laughs> one, I mean, it was everywhere. It should have been restricted, in my opinion. And frankly, there is no old school environment where mana drain isn't restricted. So the argument that, you know, if you want to hew to historical experience, then why restrict mana drain, right? Um, yeah. Strip mine falls into the mana drain category. It clearly, in my opinion, mm-hmm. should be restricted. But it also makes the point that you know a lot of those land destruction strategies were dependent upon a critical mass of efficient land destruction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when, for example, Icequake was printed, the the it wasn't unusual to see necro decks with both sinkhole and Icequake, right? They could <laughs> the necro deck right. could deploy black vise, and by the way, black vise was a card that should have been restricted much sooner and had this restricted, unrestricted, restricted dynamic, unrestricted dynamic. We already talked about it. It's the first card to have been changed four times on the, on the abandoned restricted list. Um, so that's a lot. Um, but Kevin, here's <laughs> where I'd like to start. So what is you, what is your memory of, of Sinkhole back in the day? I've already alluded to one of my first Magic playing friends had a very, very well-constructed, if not fully powered, uh, Jund land Oh, they used all of them. Neither of us had, or just two. Uh, well, yeah, that's the thing is, no, all, all, all twelve. Wow. <laughs> not all. Uh, not either of us had started early enough in the game to have power. We basically started with revised. But he was keen enough in identifying um, land destruction as a strategy he really liked. So he went back just that little bit in time and got those sinkholes from Unlimited, which were not very expensive and still really aren't. But uh, so that's early days. I have, uh, you know, lots of emotional scarring from playing yeah. against <laughs> the, the Jund land destruction decks. And it, it formed, I think I'm better off for it now because it definitely formed a lot of my opinions about tempo and efficiency and how it, it translated directly into the experience that we have on a day-to-day basis in say vintage, whereby you strongly, strongly value each and every land drop. And you think about every land drop in terms of what does this do for me now and what happens if this gets removed. And those lessons were were buried into me deep early on because of Sinkhole and its ilk. Do you have a stronger impression of being hymned or Sinkhole? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Because I definitely experienced both, but at different times. I did not play in the, the... and an environment or the time period where the mono black him and sinkhole decks were popular. I have a little bit of experience with that, but then I played a bunch of later formats 
that featured him to Turok much more commonly. So, hmm, probably numerically it's him, but in terms of formative impact, it's Sinkhole. You know, reflecting on this, I think it's very interesting to note that Sinkhole's presence was enormously hindered by the fact it didn't make it into Revised. Oh, yes. Because... Unlike Stone Exactly. <laughs> I'm looking at Henry Stone's Vice Age deck, Henry Stern's Vice Age deck from the 1995 World Championship. He had four strip mines in there, right? But, and he had, wow. I mean, he had Lenore Elves, or- Orcish Lumberjack. I don't believe he had any Stone Rains here, but you could have easily imagined... Like for example, I'm looking at the sec the world champion, which was Alexander Bloomkey, who played mono was playing basically a heavy. Well, it wasn't quite mono black because he had a splash of white, but that deck, you know, hippie Sengir, him, mind twist, balance, dark banishing, dark ritual, terror, disenchant. Actually, has one power sink, one swords, one disrupting scepter, two icy, three the rack, three Zeran orb, three dance of the dead, pestilence, land tax. That deck right there. I mean, if Sinkhole had been legal, he would have been playing Sinkhole in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just, it just goes to show you that those decisions about what, what made it to revise and what didn't were actually enormously consequential for the regard and connotations that we hold for these particular cards. And also, mm-hmm. I think the power level differential between, <laughs> between Stone Rain, Ice Storm on the one hand and Strip Mine and Sinkhole on the other. Completely agree. Where is, what's your memory of when Sinkhole started petering out in terms of Type One, or did you just stop playing Type One after a certain point? <laughs> well, the I didn't play with enough people competitively in in my in the the, the adolescent years of my time with the game. So my years like two right. and three and four, I wasn't playing much competitively. The next time I the next and really first time I played in tournaments was around the time of Extended. So. I was focused on extended and PTQs and those in that era. So a sinkhole was obviously not a factor there. So really my only experience with sinkhole is at the very beginning and then a, a smattering later on in my experience. Fair enough. I, it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly where a sinkhole sort of disappeared. Clearly these kind of one for one land destruction spells, uh, are no longer a part of, well, strip mine is clearly is, is not a spell, but no longer a part of contemporary mm-hmm. vintage. Just the, Sphere of Resistance was a major turning point, I think, you know, in when it mm-hmm. came out, when it was printed around 1997. But it really didn't see a lot of Type 1 play until, like, 2001-ish, when it started seeing play. Um, right. I don't know. It's hard to pinpoint. I'd have to go back and study. It, sub- it must have been powerfully close to Tempest with Wasteland, right? Probably thereabouts. Probably. Um yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to again because type 1 didn't have a lot of structural tournament support vis-a-vis type 2. It's you know there's there's very few data points to which we can point to and say this constitutes right. a trend. I think I'd probably have to go back and look at Well, let me let me pull up the 1997 Magic Invitational deck list for a second. Hold on. While you're doing that, Steve, the last memory I have of Sinkhole in Vintage was Butter knives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. So, for those of you who don't know, butter knives was a um, is a, <laughs> There's a, a, a throwback, a serious throwback to exactly what you said. The mono right, black disruption right, deck that was was built basically around 2000, 2001, 2002, 
with 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 Seng- with uh, uh, Frexian the Gator, right? Uh, I think that came later. I think earlier versions were more Jusms. old school with just like Black Knight, Hippie, Juggernaut, Juzam. I have the Invitational thing open. Let me just see if I can get the deck list here. <laughs> Chris Pecula played Butter Knives in the 2000 Magic Invitational. His list had hymns but no sinkholes, whereas the more retro versions of Butter Knives had sinkholes but no hymns. Chris's version was, was more evolved than just the mono-black versions. It was actually a three-color deck he had. He had a significant blue component as well as red elemental blast and disenchants. It was actually a four-color deck. So, Kevin, looking at... It's hard to track down some of the type one lists from the Invitationals, but the the I believe it's the third or fourth Magic Invitational, and I think there were two in 99, but one of them was held in, in, in Barcelona. Sorry, this is the third Invitational, Duelist Invitational, was held in Barcelona in February, early February of 1999. And so this would have been... I guess right after Academy, <laughs> right? Academy was, Urza Saga came out, but immediately mm-hmm. after Academy was restricted. And among the 16 competitors, two players had four sinkholes. I suppose sinkhole would have been pretty good in an environment with uh, Necropotence and Academy. But Mike Long had four sinkholes. His deck was a Necro deck with four sinkholes. And David Price also played a Necro deck with four Demonic Consultations and four Sinkholes and four Hymns, four Duress. Nice. So Sinkhole, Sinkhole at least was played through the late 1990s. I'm not going to continue my search forward, but that's that gives you a kind of sense of its longevity. Well, the Sinkhole also happens to have an entirely unique reprint pattern. I'm enjoying analyzing these reprint patterns for some cards because it turns out in some cases they're like fingerprints. I think Sinkhole is the only card that was printed in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, then a Judge Foil, huh. and then Eternal Masters. Wow. Those are the only printings of Sinkhole, and that's a really, really weird and probably unique pattern. In fact, I think I can guarantee that that's a unique pattern because, yeah, there's only 14 cards that are in Alpha, but not revised and are also not reserved right now. Right, it's not a reserved card cards because it's a common. It's not a reserved card, yeah. Uh, so there's only 14 cards in that lane, and none of them have, have... I can just eyeball the fact that none of them have had that reprint pattern. And so it went from Unlimited to Judge to Eternal Masters. That's really funny. That'd be some good trivia in terms of just what sets a card has been in. That one is a unique one for Sinkhole. And it's interesting, too, the Judge... Uh, art is done by Dave Alsop, who is aping very directly the original Sandra Everingham art, which is cool. And I think it, it's burned into my retinas, <laughs> this art. But at the same time, it's a very sparse art. Like the, the what I should say, the composition is very sparse. You know, it's it's a landscape that's just a, a blasted wasteland, basically, with even less detail than Scrubland has on yeah. it. But the damage to the ground and the dirt and the cracks is all very very detailed, very strongly rendered, which I think is really cool. Well, it it well represents a sinkhole, however you <laughs> envision that. <laughs> yeah, some sort of underground Absolutely. subsidence, you know, with with the with the hole forming, you know, beneath the ground and then the ground giving way. It does that quite effectively. Mm-hmm. And the card uh, is entirely unchanged from Gamma as well. Oh, I lied. It has one change from Gamma. In Gamma, it cost 1B instead of BB. So I guess that matters a lot in terms of its splash ability. I'm glad they increased it to BB. Wow. 
that that would have made a subtle but uh, formative change on those early uh, decks, wouldn't it? None too subtle, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It would have changed the landscape yeah, we, of the development of, of the formats as we know them. Yeah, I guess you're right. The the land mox sinkhole would have been a much more common thing. Brutal. And that would have been pretty brutal, yeah. You're right. Well, anything else on sinkhole, Steve? No. All right. To a much more complicated and much less noteworthy card, we've got Siren's mm. Call. <laughs> this one is a single blue mana for an instant that says all of opponents, apostrophe S, creatures that can attack must do so. Any non-wall creature that cannot attack, creatures, excuse me, that cannot attack are destroyed at end of turn. Play during opponent's turn before opponent's attack. Creatures summoned this turn are unaffected by Siren's Call. Just another one of the zillion ways to monkey with combat. We've already seen... All the attacking and blocking switcheroo instants in the different colors, and we've recently discussed uh, Nettling Imp. This is just yeah. yet another one. But at the same time, this one is interesting in that it's a subtle way that you can actually get card advantage by removing multiple creatures. Because you could, well, card advantage might be stretching it, but you could use a combination of effects like Smoke and Icy Manipulator to tap your opponent's creatures and then play this, and they'd be destroyed. Yep. So... I and in my youth I did actually have a siren's call or two in a icy manipulator or royal yeah. assassin deck once I got all those cards together because I was able to do exactly that. You just kind of uh tap down multiples of their creatures with multiple ICs and then play this siren's call and you get yourself kind of a two for one. It was kind of so nice. So siren's call was part of a two card combo that I recall seeing in a very early magazine whether it was the duelist or scry or whatever with festival oh Oh, nice and i think that (laughs) combo even more so than the infamous combos of like channel fireball was one you know or more intuitive combos like lure on a thicket basilisk this that particular combo of sirens call and festival illustrated Mm -hmm. to me the potential of obscure but highly synergistic interactions across smart you know using marginal cards so i think more than anything you know like and it and it paved the way for this kind of like interesting search for you know cool nifty combos you know that became in many cases very lethal like in the form of donate (laughs) don't donate illusions of grandeur probably my favorite favorite combo of all time um (laughs) yeah i mean sirens call and festival are both extremely you know marginal cards that you're not usually happy to open, but together it's 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 a you know a two card wrath of God on your opponent's entire board. Yeah, um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's efficient too with festival. So that's Siren's Call will forever be associated in my mind as is a part of part of a, a, a an interesting two card combo <laughs> rather than a, a tactical well, you know utility spell. And in this day and age, there are many other ways to achieve a similar kind of combo with Siren's Call. Like to use a, a better card than Festival, you could use, say, Cryptic Command, <laughs> which taps all your opponent's creatures. So you could just Cryptic plus Siren's Call them, which yeah. just, yeah, like wrathing the active player. There are a rough. lot of icy type effects like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this card was printed in the core sets up till 4th edition and then never again. <laughs> I am slightly surprised 
given all the other cards we've reviewed that have been reprinted, I think far longer than they should have been. I'm slightly surprised that this one didn't get even some obscure, more recent printing because I don't know. I'm not saying it's a good card. I'm just saying that there's been plenty of worse cards that got reprinted. Yeah. I really enjoy the card's uh, aesthetics. It's only ever been printed with this one uh, really dramatic Anson Maddox uh, uh, profile art. Yeah. <laughs> and there's one thing I like about it a lot, Steve, which is that, it, especially in the black bordered versions, the color palette of the card evokes Island A mm. exactly. If you were to put this next to a stack of Island A's, they would look like they were from the same universe, which I think is awesome. I wouldn't have thought that, but now that I'm comparing them, they kind of do have a a similar palette. Um, I find it really satisfying. Kevin, I, I suspect, this is pure speculation, but I, sus- I think we've noticed that most of the cards that monkey with attacking were phased out. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's because... Yes they were underpowered per se. I think that's because they were basically confusing. <laughs> so these cards, you know, cards like this just, well, what if blah, 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 right? <laughs> you know, just lots of right. that kind of thing. And timing. It's its not so much that they're too difficult to, res, you know, handle in terms of managing the nuances of the rules so much as it is managing the confusion that can arise when people are rushing through combat. I think that's a fair point. I don't consider Siren's Call to be especially confusing. Right. It doesn't create as many impossible to discern situations as some of those other cards, like Camouflage, of course. And But at the same time, it's also, in my opinion, one of the biggest gotchas. <laughs> because if you can assemble some combo, their creatures are destroyed straight up. No blocking, no attacking, just they're destroyed. And that's a really powerful outcome as between things like Camouflage, which just obscure attacking and blocking and such. But you're right, it's it's a borderline mystifier. I don't think it hit the, the full-on Raging River level, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah, still Yeah, I mean, there. just to give you some examples, like, how do you handle this with Jade Statue? <laughs> you know? Oh, well, Jade Statue, I mean, nothing works with <laughs> Fair Jade Fair enough. <laughs> it is a good question, though, because the making things attack is... Um, you know, it's narrowly defined to on your opponent's turn before they right. attack. So you you can't force your opponent to animate a jade statue. But at the same time, if they did, and then you played this and they didn't attack for whatever reason, maybe say Icy Manipulator was involved. So they made it a jade statue. You tapped it and played Siren's Call. Then the next question is, can you destroy that same jade statue at the end of the turn when it's no longer yeah. a creature? I'm not sure how that's uh, handled on the alpha rules. Under today's rules, it wouldn't be a problem because you just look at what the permanent was. But yeah, um, under the alpha context, I have no the idea. The other thing you. is that you know, so Jade Statue can only be animated during combat. So it, right. it can be animated during the declare attacker step is basically, and the declare blocker step. Right, <laughs> that's basically it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think I see your point. So Siren's Call in the Alpha context, we, you've already read through the steps of the attack, right? And they're they're woefully inadequate from a clarity standpoint. But this says play during opponent's turn before opponent's <laughs> attack. So the question is, is there, a, the, in, in the modern uh, context, you know, the attack would refer to the attack phase. And as you just said, you can absolutely move into the attack phase and then animate a jade statue, which would render Siren's Call completely ineffectual against jade yes. statues, right? You would never be able to gotcha a jade statue. But in the alpha context, it's far less clear whether or not that 
the how the two interact and where the timing right. goes. In the under the modern oracle, though, it says it, it, the current oracle says before attackers are declared. So you can still do it in the oh, yeah. in, you know when you, in the pre-combat part of the combat step, right? In in a sense, yeah. Um, and if you, I suppose, yeah. So and you can only play this during your opponent's turn, so you couldn't even cast this on your turn if you wanted. But what it means is that mm-hmm. I suppose they could go. So when, once you go to the uh, declare attacker step, your opponent has priority, and they they have to declare attackers before passing priority. So you would have to do it before that point, right? However, is that true? Is there any window for the player with priority who's declare attacker step to do something else, like animated jade statue or a mistress factory, in that step? Bef- only if you only if you add something to the stack and back them up to the beginning of declare okay. attackers or beginning yeah. of combat. I mean, we're talking about the beginning of combat step, right? Well, I'm thinking about it like in terms of how the step the the phase progresses, like on Magic Online, it goes. Combat, you know, pr- pr- yeah, it's beginning, yeah, beginning of, combat, of combat. Then declare right. attackers, okay. yeah. Then blockers, then damage. So the uh, in the modern context, it's a lot easier to tease out, right? Because the as you said, because the card says cast this only during an opponent turn before attackers are declared. That much it, they could have worded it only before the the attacks uh, phase, right? Or only during their first main phase. But this is more narrowly defined in the in the oracle. So there isn't a time at which um, they th- that if you want to respond or not respond, but if you want to force them to attack with a siren's call, they you know the the time to do it goes all the way up to the beginning of combat phase. Yes, you have you have you have upkeep main phase and beginning of combat of the combat phase. Well, in order to do so, but what I'm trying call. to say is there are all these different points within the combat phase, right? There's the beginning of combat, the declare attackers, the declare blockers, the damage resolution. Right, but there's only one where Siren's Call is legal. Right, at the beginning right. of combat. Um, yes. But you can animate a Jade Statue at any of those four points, is my point. Yeah. That's right. There's only one of them where you could, well, the, the, I mean, you can animate Jade Statue. You're right. There's only one of them where you could animate it and still attack if that's what you're trying to get. Well, at. yes, which would be declare attacks. Well, no, you could you could actually <laughs> right. animate Jade Statue at the be- at the beginning of combat or in the declare attacker step. Right? You can't. Uh, no, only thing that happens in declare attackers. So you would have attackers. to do it in the beginning of yeah, combat. You only okay. have one shot. I, I'm not playing Jade right. Statue under modern rules. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. It's understandably ambiguous when you're used to just the alpha. So content. under contemporary rules. If an opponent wanted to attack you with Jade Statue, you would have an opportunity. Well, wanted you know, you would know the active player would cast it, would activate the Jade Statue if they intended to attack, and then the non-active player Correct. would have an opportunity to cast Siren's Call before they Correct. even declared the attacker of Jade Statue. But Correct. by activating it, they're signaling an intention to attack. <laughs> You would get priority. Act the non-active player would get priority once Jade Statue was a creature in the beginning of combat step and before it had been declared right. But that's probably not the case in under Alpha League. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. unclear. Yeah, it's worth noting this card was in Gamma. It was also called Siren's Call. It had a different mana cost, which was UU, and it was much yeah. less good. It said opponent must attack with all creatures they can in parentheses on opponent's turn. That's it. 
no walls clause, no drawback, and no penalty for not attacking, which is the big part. So they cut the mana cost in half and and made the drawback humongous. Yeah. Yeah, those those nifty it's it's legacy as being part of a nifty two card combo or interesting would yeah. wouldn't even exist. Wow. All right. Let's move on to one that we've already talked about a fair bit, and that's sleight of mind. So we obviously covered a lot of this when we talked about magical hack. Uh for a single blue, it's an interrupt, which is noteworthy. Change the text of any card being played or already in play by replacing one color word with another. For example, and this is on the card, for example, you can change counters red spells <laughs> to counters black spells. Cannot change mana symbols. It's, it's pretty funny that they actually use an example uh, like counters red spells. <clears throat> obviously, we do have Hydroblast, which in, in practice is obviously a, you know, a very similar card, but uh, not Hydroblast. We're talking, we're talking about Blue Elemental Blast, of course. Excuse me. I'm thinking about the vintage context a little too much. But even then, that spell doesn't have that same language. It doesn't say counters red spells. It says counters a red spell being cast or destroys a red card in play. So I think it's pretty funny that they added a hypothetical onto the language of Sleight of Mind that doesn't actually exist in the set. Uh, but that, 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 that having been said, it's funny to me that they use the example of countering a spell specifically as the, the, the reminder text here, so to speak, because... You would not be able to announce, and this is still in the Oracle example, by the way. You can't announce a spell that says target red spell and then change it to be target black spell. The only way you could do that is if the spell in question was red and black, in which case you would have no purpose to do so, right? In fact, the Oracle exam, the Oracle text of Sleight of Mind says as follows, change the text of target spell or permanent by replacing all instances of one color word with another. And then in parentheses, this is reminder text, it says, for example, you may change target black spell to target blue spell. This effect lasts indefinitely. I find that example to be incredible because that's incredibly, incredibly misleading. If I cast an Ancestral Recall and you had death lace no that's a bad example that's not target black spell what's something that there's no thing that targets a black spell what targets uh a black spell? there's there is I, life I, force. I can't remember uh you're right so let's 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 set aside a permanent that does that but let me find something that targets a black spell i'm sorry i gotta get this right okay there's no wow this is terrible there are no non-permanents in magic that say target black spell <laughs> Okay, so this example is terrible anyway, but assuming there was a, a, a red elemental blast equivalent that was target black spell, you're not announced. You're not allowed to announce that spell targeting my ancestor recall, much less than slight it so it would actually counter the spell. It's an illegal announcement, and so <laughs> I find this reminder text to be inexplicable. The only way this reminder text works is, as you said, it's on a permanent with an ability in play that you change before well, using Kevin, it. Hold on. In the case of the Ice Age, Hydroblast, and Pyroblast, you can still target a spell, any spell, but it's only countered if it is. That is specifically because yeah. they don't have the language target blue spell. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes them invalid for the purposes of this Which example. Which means that your, your objection, text. just to be clear, is that <laughs> the... The, the example that they selected, but not with some sort of functional problem with the, the card, right? That's No, not at all. It's just that they strongly imply, although it's not specifically stated, but they strongly imply 
that you're referring to a right, spell. Right, when it could be anything. But the, the yeah, the um, the hypothetical that's in the reminder text here only applies to permanence. It would specifically not work with a spell. <laughs> I just mean that if anyone's, if anyone who, you know, needs this reminder text is trying to rely on it for their understanding, they're going to get the answer wrong if they try to apply it to any spell that has that text That's amazing. It, which I think... Which I think really, really under, under, uh, undermines the validity and utility of reminder text. It's misleading anyway, reminder that's text. A, that's is what a tirade. Uh, yeah, that's a tirade. The, the example you went to immediately, Life Force, is a perfect example of the, the use of this card and one that does obey the reminder text, but you just have to do it in advance. Right. The modern. Uh, we already talked at length about all the color and, and land type changing stuff when we talked about Magical Hack. I mean. I don't know how much we that's need to That's so rehash weird here. that that's still on the modern card. The Oracle text. Why is yeah. that on the... <laughs> that is... <laughs> that's a very good point because once a spell is on the stack, it has to have a legal target upon announcement. So that is very mm-hmm. odd. Wow. It's a funny exercise to look at the history of reminder spells or reminder uh, text on Sleight of Mind. Because the alpha one says, for example, you can change counters red spells to counters black spells which is obviously using an alpha-centric wording that doesn't exist anymore. That wording, counters red spells, <laughs> lasted all the way up till 4th edition. Yeah. No, no, no. It lasted until Ice oh Age. That the final printing. Ice Age printing well, of Sight no, of Mind still says... 5th would be says, the final printing, but yeah. 5th would be, but the 5th changed, yeah. though. That's the thing. Ice Age still says you can change counters God. black spells to counters blue spells, which is ridiculously outdated by that point. But then 5th edition's not much better. Yeah. It has reminder text that says, you may change non-green creature to non-red creature. <laughs> oh my god, it does. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Oh my god. Yeah. They changed the context of targeting, you know, of targeting requirements. It's still just as bad, just, because it still has to be... Well, it's not just well, as bad. Uh, but it's no yeah. longer a targeting example, though. But it's, it's funny how <sighs> they changed it. And so then... So there are three different iterations over time of the reminder text oh on Sleight of Mind. Because there's the two ones that were printed and then the one that's the oh Oracle my God. today. And two out of the three of them are bad. Kevin, and the fifth edition card in the reminder mm-hmm. text says that if this spell targets a permanent, play it as an instant. Oh, right, because in fifth edition it was still an interrupt. I do oh not understand God. that at all, Steve. <laughs> that is a serious power level errata, isn't it? That's 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 given that in all. reminder text, not even rules text. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've never known that before. That is inexplicable and amazing. Wow. Well, this card is screwed up to this day, clearly. Um I just wanted to reiterate the point that we made earlier, which is that uh that this is more powerful than Magical Hack, and that it was part of the Slight Knight archetype. Even to this day, in Alpha League, Slight yeah. Knight is pretty fun. You can get a lot of value with, you know, Northern Paladins and White Knights, you know, and, and Circles of Protection using Slight of Mind. Um, I love the Gamma word. Yeah, go, ahead, go for it. Change the yes. reading, the reading of any card by switching a yes. magic type, and then in parentheses it says a color, mentioned in the spell to one of your choice effect lasts until target card leaves play so that is a i don't know if there's a better allusion to the fact that the game was originally called the five magics that's the best right right well (laughs) yeah reading instead of text is clearly an improvement when they change it to text but also just magic type yeah magic type is awesome wow oh by (laughs) the way notice that in 
Gamma, this is an instant. Oh, I I did not catch that. That's noteworthy too. Wow. Wait, did they have interrupts separated from instants in Gamma? Because I was just looking next to that uh, that and thought lace <laughs> so is also an instant spell. <laughs> okay, so they must not have had interrupts codified in Gamma. I didn't. I don't know if no. we had touched on that before. Wow. Okay. Well, it's noteworthy to me that this card was printed specifically in Ice Age, right? Ice Age, we know, was a throwback to Alpha in a lot of ways. It included the Circles of Protection, the full suite of them, actually. And uh, and so the fact that um, Ice Age had Sleight of Mind is kind of no big surprise. Ice Age also famously uh, had the Pump Knights, too. So lots of recalls back to Alpha there. No, I, I Well, Anything just that I'm Slight? stunned that the Oracle text uses the reminder text on... The fourth edition, ver- well, not fourth, actually, it's the... The Oracle text is Yeah, it's is just unique. totally unique. Yeah, but right. misleading. Yes, it is. Mm-mm-mm. All right, let's move on from Slight. Oh, by the way, someone someone put in the, in the Oracle reminders, you can't slight proper nouns, even if they're, uh, like, black <laughs> in black vies. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> or white in white night. <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion why not yeah <laughs> it doesn't accomplish anything yeah, it's just why not? fun okay so what's the what's off the top of your head what's the funniest thing to B- black to lotus slight that's a that's not <laughs> oh there you go what a good good pull right off the top just like that i was thinking more like um um shoot I will activate this blue lotus. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in alpha, but because you have to look outside of alpha to find a card that has this particular quirk. But like, um, how, how about the called the card altered ego, which has the word red in it? <laughs> so you could be like an alt blue ego. <laughs> yeah, that's not. That's the kind of. That's the kind of stuff I'd like to be able to do. All right, let's move on from slight to smoke. Uh, we've already alluded to smoke we, in a lot of different contexts. We basically covered it to a large extent, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Smoke's pretty straightforward. RR for an enchantment. Each player can only untap one creature during his or her untap phase. Uh, yeah, I don't know what else to add there. Uh, just because we, we talked about this in a number of contexts. Well, it's the, it's the, the um, pair with Winter Orb. That only allows players to untap one type, one of a type of permanent each turn. And, um, and was elaborated into a threesome in antiquities with damping field, which did the same thing for artifacts and then became kind of the progenitor, obviously winter orb more so than this, but the progenitor for things like static orb. Yeah. You know, favorite to griefers. The world over. It is interesting to me that Winter Orb is an artifact that can be tapped with Icy, whereas Smoke is an enchantment that you can't you can't make asymmetric in that way. That's a good point. Also, just interesting the types in and of themselves for reasons we've previously discussed because um, Smoke is not well, arguably not a object, yes. <laughs> right? Now it's debatable. It's an it's inanimate. And it has mass, but the point is, is you know, it's not the sort of thing you carry with you <laughs> for the purposes of utility, like you do an icy manipulator or a gauntlet or of might. Orb. Yeah, it's also worth noting that in Gamma, this is a totally is different it? card, just completely different. It's an enchantment, still called Smoke. It costs R. It says no creature attacks while Smoke is in play. 
sacrifice one creature or one life during upkeep to wow. maintain. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Can you imagine how different <sighs> magic would be if they ever printed that? One life? I can pay one life and keep this around? Oh. So you can't attack me ever? Been for massively overpowered. And red, one red? Oh. A single red mana. Oh yeah. my god. god. <laughs> the deck would just have played that instead of moat. It would have changed magic and... S- wow. Yep. Put Ugh. that with ivory tower. And it's a single mana. What were they wow. thinking? Yeah, I know that plus ivory tower. Yeah, that was the first thing my <laughs> my thought went to. It really, <sighs> it really. Well, very glad that card yeah. is never printed. It also, I think, significantly illustrates the the role that unta- that that certain types of permanents play. Right, that winter orb is so <laughs> frustrating to deal with, and I've never heard anyone complain about smoke. I mean, I I can't even yeah. remember anyone playing Smoke, <laughs> let alone complaining about it. I was going to ask you how much you've seen Smoke in, say, Never. old school. Is it really not played? Ne- I can't played? attest to that, but I can say that I have no memory uh-huh. of it. <laughs> Interesting. I'm a little surprised by that. Just, um, oh, you know, it's uh, it's still a useful card, and combined with an Icy Manipulator, it's a, a fine control effect. Yeah. I, I just... Th- Combined with Icy Manipulator or Maze of Ith, right? Yeah, that's a good I mean, point. It's, it's but, pretty effective. But, I mean, without the Maze of Ith, without the combination, you're still getting hit by their biggest thing. So your opponent has a Juzum Jin and a Black yeah. Knight out. <laughs> you know, or a Mistress yeah. Factory, you know, and a... Oh, it doesn't hit Factory, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that too. Well, that's yeah. fatal. And it doesn't hit Sarah Angel. <laughs> yeah. You're right. The the, the fact, uh, Factory uh, dodging Jade is Statue. Yeah, fatal is a good way to describe it. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. Not everyone's as enamored with Jade Statue as Fair you are, though. <laughs> yeah, Smoke's pretty cool. So Smoke was printed more than you might think for an expensive, by today's standards, resor- uh, uh, unreserved card. Um, Smoke was printed in ABU and Revised. Then it was in Summer and Fourth. Then <laughs> it got new art in 5th edition, and that was its last printing. Huh. The printing in the art in 5th edition is is not... Very good. But I must admit that the art in Alpha, I think, is, um, well, let's call it uh, debatable. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jesper yeah. Mirfors. And <laughs> it, it, the subject, the composition of the thing really, really centers on this object in the center, this subject. And I have long thought that this was meant to be a figure uh, in a, a distant you know, depiction of a figure on a mountaintop with lightning coming out of their, their limbs and a pointed cap, I guess. Is that is that how you read this card? So I think you characterize it perfectly by saying it's debatable. There's 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 basically three <laughs> reads. One is that it's some sort of object that's generating smoke. The second is that it's some sort of figure okay. that's using magic to generate smoke. And the third is that it's some sort of face where the lightning bolts are eyes <laughs> and there's the smoke around it. It's really oh, unclear. Wow. I I could see every yeah. one of those and yeah. It's a little bit the, of a rocket. The first track. one, though, it could be like some sort of like rocket that's you know generating spewing smoke because there is a, an upward movement. Yeah, you know, I think that's dramatic effect. I'm reading it a little bit more like Fantasia. <laughs> like I think this is just Mickey on top of a mountain casting. A By spell. the way, uh, there is a an errata or ruling issued in 2004 that animated lands are affected by smoke. Animated lands are affected by smoke. Now, what kind of animation are I we talking about? I assume they mean Mishra's factories, etc. 
It says, it, here's what it says. It says, well, if on the from- battlefield within a, this is the text. If on the battlefield okay. with an effect that limits the number of land you untap, untapping an animated land will count as one of the creatures and the one land you can untap, thereby limiting you to one thing to be untapped. Very weird. Well, that's just, that's just, yeah, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the problem is how could you animate something like a mistress factory while you're untapping it? You don't get priority during untap. There's no way to have an animated Mishra's factory um, during untap from its own inherent ability. It's not possible. It was from 2004. Maybe someone needs to clean the, clean up gatherer on this point. <laughs> I mean, the text, the, the preceding text is animated lands are affected think, by this spell, period. I think it means lands that have been turned into creatures by other external effects or something. A permanent Like change, living right? land. You've got one of the, yeah. the many, yeah, one of the many Nissa planeswalkers sure. that turns uh, lands into creatures. That would make sense. That would satisfy Good smoke point. and that winter orb one permanent. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't an old school kind of comment. All right, well, we're off from smoke onto one of the heaviest hitters that there is, and that is <laughs> Sol Ring. a single generic mana, mono artifact. Add two colorless mana to your mana pool. Tapping this artifact can be played as an interrupt. This, I would argue, Steve, that this is the card that more Magic players <laughs> know than any other wow. card. And it's because it spans time and space, <laughs> and in particular formats, because the most popular, at least sanctioned and, and supported Magic Commander. format these days is Commander, and this is the most iconic card in Commander. And because it's so good in every possible iteration of magic that they're <laughs> yeah. legal in, right? Um, so I would posit that Sol Ring is the magic card that the most magic players are familiar with. The most, well, this is a, a tremendous card. And Mark Tadine did a phenomenal job with the art on here as well. This is just great, a oh, great yeah. piece. Love it. It's, it's so um, beautiful. I don't even know where to begin. Here's where I, here's the main point I want to make though. Well, let me lead up to the main point. So the concept of power nine, right? The five Moxon, Black Lotus, Soul Ring, and the and the power blue, Time Twister, Time Walk, mm-hmm. and Ancestral Recall. Uh Soul Ring is not in that list in the Power Nine. It's not a rare, number one. Right. It's an uncommon. It also didn't go it it made the transition. It somehow survived the transition to revised. I suppose Mana Vault also mm-hmm. did as well. Um although Mana Vault was yeah. a rare. So it's a different different case. Yep. But the thing that always strikes me is the question, could you imagine if this didn't make it to revised? Just this would be I mean What a staggering like, effect like what a staggering have. historical counterfactual to grapple with and contemplate. Right? It's like right. Right. Would this be more valuable than now? Obviously, it wouldn't be in Commander. <laughs> it wasn't in. Well, well, I don't know. Is that the case? <laughs> right. is, if are there, there's, there's Time no, Twister, mean, which is in Commander, it, but it, would it be legal in Commander? Is is debatable. If the card, so you're hypothesizing that the card had been eliminated from Magic, well, eliminated from the the sets of Magic um, after yes. Unlimited, it followed the same but, path. But did as not the Moxon, no right? because it didn't go on the reserve list because it was an uncommon. But was oh, okay. not subsequently so reprinted more... in any base set. Yeah, so there's no true analog. Well, to there's time twister. To... No, uh, yeah. no, but that's but that's not a true analog though because it's yeah. reserved, right? There's no 
there's only as i alluded to earlier there's only 14 cards that meet the description you've just <laughs> described basically that were in unlimited that didn't, didn't carry not, forward but also yeah. aren't reserved and none of them are mana source right so this would be a truly is, unique is uh, mana vault legal even, in commander yes is it absolutely. heavily played i would say i'd say it is frequently okay. played it is not a staple but it is frequently played it's the sort of card that's viewed more like a ritual yeah than than a soul ring What's, right and that's and I'm oversimplifying a bit, but it's so not nearly as So, what's the most stable. common printing for Soul Ring? Is it in the Commander sets, the Commander products? Oh yeah, absolutely so by far. It's certainly yeah. possible, even plausible, that Soul Ring mm-hmm. would just with its unlimited printing, because unlimited, you know, an, unli- an uncommon from unlimited still has a substantial print run. I mean, it's not, it's not yes. like the the mere what was it like twelve thousand, whatever it is, eighteen thousand right. for the rares. Right, it's probably doubled, if not triple, that. So, right. So, yes, if it had not been reprinted and revised, and was only reprinted, let's say online, and then in the commander sets, or let's say from the vault sets, there would be no revised edition out there. Which is the are there are there there more in the commander decks than the revised versions? Right. By oh, by far, both due to time, but also simply due to repetition. This card has been reprinted in every Commander product since 2013. Yeah. But I don't know how big those Commander products are. I know the revised... Revised rares were hundreds of thousands. So uncommons are presumably, you know, close to a million. Uh, Yeah, but, the, I mean, every Commander product... And it's not just one product, Yeah, it's product, like five, right? six, seven. It's, 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 yeah. it's four or five decks That's every point. year. And those things are mass market okay. printed. I mean, you can get them in Fair Walmart. So, so Sol Ring is ubiquitous, yeah. truly. It's absolutely okay. ubiquitous. So, yeah. but but if it had not been printed and revised, then it probably there's a question as to whether it would even be legal in Commander in the first place. That was the first place I was going to go, is that you have to consider that C- Commander it's was community conceived format. in practice, yeah, right around 2002 or three, basically, give or take. Is when it started to become popularized by it was the elder community. elder dragon Highlander, right? <laughs> correct, correct. Um, and at that point, it was part of the novelty of the thing was just the niche weirdness of playing with weird cards, especially ones that aren't the most efficient. And Soul Ring still would have definitely been attractive to that audience. But here's my question to you: Is if it had not made it out of unlimited, but was still um, not reserved? Then my question is where it would sit in the pantheon of power yeah. from a because you have to you have to believe and I'm sure you do that the rarity of this card just inadvertently served to alter its trajectory right. throughout. Right, it wasn't history. in the power nine. If this had is been the point rare, that off with, yeah, right, which is very hard <laughs> yeah, to fathom. And, and if this had <laughs> been rare, not? like yeah. Mana Vault, but if it had also been discontinued after Unlimited, this it would have vaulted this card up into a near power level I, kind of the way uh, time vault I, I think is it today, would be far right? exceed time vault i think this card would be if this if this had been a rare and reserved and not made it mm-hmm. to revise i think this would be mm-hmm. some significant portion of black lotus's value yeah i think I so agree. i don't know what the most expensive mocks is like let's just say i don't know it's i don't know what prices are on unlimited but what's a mock sapphire and unlimited <laughs> Yeah. Roughly, uh, I don't know. Probably let's call okay, it. And 2, then 000. what's a, a lotus? Uh, four or five thousand. Yeah, I think Soul Ring, if it was a rare, would be somewhere between there. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it would be at yeah, lotus. I think that's reasonable, be, you know, but it would be 
it could be 80% of Lotus. It could be 50% of Lotus. It's hard to know. Yeah. But it would be... I think that's a reasonable a reasonable. I think it would be yeah. more than any of the individual Moxin, though, because it's just more useful, right? I mean, it goes into everything. That I I believe that position would have changed over to, over the last yeah. two decades for various reasons. One is obviously Commander didn't really exist. Two is that, uh, like it or not, Sol Ring is not as good as a Mox in most vintage contexts, right? And vintage would have been the driving force for Sol Ring's um, notoriety in the hypothetical we're talking about, right? And so I think it would have been actually on some even ground and maybe even behind the Moxon up until Commander became a thing. If Commander allowed for it, which is a pretty strong, I I don't think they would have in that context. But if they had, then it would have immediately vaulted ahead of the Moxon. Interesting. It's sort of like Mana Crypt in that way, right? It's like sometimes in some decks, Mana Crypt is better than a Mox. Like in the PO decks and the Workshop decks, you know. um, Yes. Exactly. Vintage has evolved, yeah. right? And it's in its usefulness for generic mana or colorless mana for one. And it's its willingness to play even pay any amount of mana for an accelerant, too, right? I used to play Sol Ring in my Grixis control yeah. decks, right? When I was playing yep. Jace the Mind Sculptors. It's just a situational thing, whereas Mox Sapphire will with re- uh, within reason never be <laughs> a situational yeah. mana source, right? So, but anyway, it's a very interesting hypothetical to to consider because I think this card on power is worthy of being a member of the power, and it's only a PR thing that it's not. <laughs> yeah, and a rarity thing, which is part of the PR. Well, that's what. I, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, public perception element. So, Steve, did you experience Sol Ring as a casual player at any point prior to like I, playing? I I really didn't. I didn't really have much of a casual phase. I kind of entered Magic mm-hmm. and then quick, you know, as quickly as possible figured out how to become, you know, my focus was winning, tuning and winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, Soaring is a card immediately I incorporated into basically every deck as soon as I got one. There was never, you know, it was just yeah. obviously I'm going to be playing Soaring, <laughs> you know. Right, right. How else are you going to speed out those yeah, modes and even, and even before I got, you know, power, Felwar Stone and things like that. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's just it's just ridiculously good. In in alpha, you know, an alpha. I actually think Sol Ring is in old school. I think so. In alpha, Sol Ring is better than all the all the other accelerants by far because of the way the rules are set up. Yeah. You know, there are some decks where you might want to play a Lotus or a Moxon, but those are the exception to the rule. The um, in old school, I think Sol Ring is better than the Moxon. Really do. Uh, you know, in blue red, you get to accelerate out Serendibs or whatever. In mm-hmm. um, even the Atog deck, it's absurd, right? Double Vise, Copper Tablet, you know, whatever. Um, in uh, Zoo, mm-hmm. you know, Serendib, you know, uh, Urnum, all that Juggernaut. It's just, it's just, you know, in in Skies, Sarahs and Serendibs. I don't know. I think, I think. You know, maybe Soul Ring isn't better than Sapphire, but it's darn close. It might just be better. Yeah, yeah. I would say on average, you're you're right. Certain, obviously, specific examples like say Mono Black, the you know the Jets, yeah. <laughs> formative in that that deck's development. But yeah, I, would I mean, agree even with you. even Dark Ritual Soul Ring Juzum, right? I mean, I guess you, you can get that with Jet, but oh yeah, um, sure, sure. Um, 
it's worth noting too you immediately went to commander as a, a point of comparison and one of the high ironies of the pr of sol ring is that it's actually more powerful in commander than any of the moxen would be individually and it's one of the that it's just, legal in the moxen heart it's just one of those <laughs> things yeah that if we could go back in time and kind of reconsider the commander format from the ground up we might take a, a long hard look at sol ring because i don't actually think it's healthy for the format and a lot of people uh feel the same way i mean sol ring is banned in some iterations of different variants of commander like uh, magic online variants and other one-on-one lists sol ring is banned similar for um mana crypt it's i think it's inarguable that commander would be a lower power format if you if you swapped out the legality <laughs> of say mox pearl and and sol ring like if we could all play with one pearl in our deck instead of sol ring the format just takes a big dip in power you know it's interesting it, it i don't i it's it's still a busted accelerant but yeah i've never point. played i don't play commander but um well i have played a couple yeah. games because people have handed me a deck and say hey play this um but yeah. i've just always assumed that commander didn't ban sol ring because it's some sort of identity thing like brainstorm and legacy rather than a I think there's a lot rather of, than like a meaning yeah. or, or strip mine in some old school environments, rather than a meaningful assessment of its real impact, it's sort of an identity thing yeah. rather than an empirical thing. Yep. And uh, you know, there's part of you're totally right. Part of Commander's identity too is variance, purposeful variance, right? It's a Highlander format on purpose, and part of that comes the excitement of getting the Soul yeah. Ring draw, right? <laughs> and what that does. And then you layer in the fact that it's a multiplayer format and politics come into play, right? The idea is that playing a turn one Sol Ring into a turn two four drop commander or whatever is not without cost. It's not just a free roll. You're drawing the ire of everyone around the table who's looking at back at you with their two lands, right? And so part of the dynamic of Sol Ring is meant to be multiplayer politics. I have, uh, permit me to brag for a minute, but I have four Alpha Sol Rings for my for my wow. not alpha league but just alpha 40 deck <laughs> and it's in yeah. again that's 40 card decks with four soul rings it's quite fun that's pretty sweet it's gotta be really really good at powering out uh <laughs> it and it's very fun <laughs> <laughs> so the reprint lineage of soul ring is is noteworthy and unique of course uh obviously we've already covered it made it up till revised and it was one of those cards it was in summer so there are summer soul rings but it didn't make it into fourth edition, of course. In fact, there was actually kind of a long stretch after um, summer, or let's call it revised, after revised, when Soul Ring was just kind of absent from printed magic cards. There was a judge printing in 2005. So wow. think about that. Revised, 1994, to 2005, there was a judge printing. And that, that card is printed in the updated frames, you know, the silver artifact frames, but with the ABU art which makes kind of a striking card. It's kind of neat. But then it wasn't printed again until another promo, basically from the vaults, uh, this time Relics, of course, which is in 2010. So another five years go wow. by. And so part of your point about the inception of uh, Commander and the, the the perception of Soul Ring is, is very, it's kind of already been tested a little bit in the sense that there was, uh, you know, effectively a decade <laughs> approximately between when, Soul Ring was printed in any booster product and when Commander started to really be a thing. And so the fact that it just became a staple of Commander, I think, is a testament to the fact that Commander was established by the community. Uh, established yeah. players. Well, it was established by judges, you know, older invested players who had handfuls of Soul Rings from back in Revise laying around or earlier, <laughs> right? Um, 
So I think that's a big part of it. I think the PR influences things a lot there. Well, then obviously Sol Ring gets printed into the ground in all the Commander products. And aside from that, there was a Kaladesh invention, which is highly sought after and, and very pretty. There was a GP promo, which has got a really nice, intricate mechanical art by Mark Tadeen. Very unusual art in his style. It's it's not the organic, um, soft lines that most of his pieces have. It's a very, very detailed rendering of a machine with the solar ring at its center. It's really, really cool. And then most recently, just, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've had the cards show up in Commander Legends, which is no surprise, as well as the upcoming, I'm not sure if it's released just yet, but the upcoming Commander Collection Green, which has a unique art for Sol Ring, which is kind of neat. Um, the Commander Legends is noteworthy, and that is the first time you can get any kind of borderless Sol Ring. It's got the extended art treatment, which uh, it's with the, the standard Commander art, which is not my favorite, but it's still pretty yeah, it's interesting. The Mark Barrick version is really the first version in which Soul Ring is represented as an actual uh, ring that that is a piece of jewelry. An object. Yeah. Yeah. I am interested. I'd love to see or hear the art description for the <laughs> Alpha Soul Ring, right? Because, well, there's no denying that it's a ring. <laughs> it's very doubtless. There's also no denying that it is meant to be depicting... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a, a coronal mass yeah. ejection, uh, you know, on the surface of the sun. <laughs> you know, so it's a very kind of literal interpretation of just the two words. I, I wonder if that was the art direction or if the card was not named and the art was conceived in another fashion or along another path and then named afterward. I'd like to know that bit of history. If anyone out there has talked to Mark Tadine or happens to know the answer to that, just send us a message. Well, Steve, we've said a lot about Soul Ring. Is there anything else you want to add? Nope. That was great. It's uh, it's just incredible. Just incredible. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on So Many Insane Plays. Ha, 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 ha.